I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the 150th ever episode of the Failed Critics Podcast. God knows how we've made it this far. It's amazing. I am really chuffed uh, that we've made it this far, actually. It's an achievement. So I think I've only missed one. You missed a few. I was looking, because this is how much research. I have genuinely on, on, put on, research into this. this I, know I've, I know I've missed a couple of specials, like yeah. the Glasgow ones and one or two special ones. Like that weren't didn't count in the, the 150, strictly speaking, in my mind. But I, I think I've only missed one of the proper ones, the weekly, regular ones. Two, I think. There was Two. one where James stepped in, and it was me and Carol, and one the other week, which was Matt hosting. But before we go any further, fuck me, that theme tune. Yeah, thanks to oh. James Yule for that. Uh, it's pretty much, when I say failed, you say critics failed. Critics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all down with the kids with that, that dubstep shit. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just me and you here, is it? It's like we've got some guests. We have got proper guests. We did try and get some of the old favourites back on, um, but Carol and Jerry were busy, and I think James was washing <laughs> his hair. <laughs> That's not quite true, but yeah. <laughs> it is, in my mind. Um, uh, but we are joined by Paul Field. Hello, sugar tits. <laughs> Jesus Christ! What, as you mean to go on, yeah. Yeah, uh, Matt Lamborn. Hey yo. And Andrew Brooker. I have nothing funny to follow up with. So <laughs> hello. You're not going to beat sugar tits, are you? No, I don't think I can. I'm, I'll just go to bed now. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just knock it on the head now. This yeah, is may as well. Done. We're done. Yeah. yeah. Um, three but, minutes or three hours, we'll see. Yes, this is going to be a mammoth podcast. We've got. Three triple bills, triple bill of triple bills, a quiz, and a secret Santa movie section, plus some questions and other stuff. Um, so, yeah, this is going to be a long one, but it's going to be conveniently chopped up into sections. So if you get bored of listening to us for a bit, you can stop and come back and listen to the rest of someone else. It's not the best advert. Basically, for those of you who remember this at the start, when we did 
like two and a half hour podcast. This could be longer than that. Um, yeah. Yeah. We or, had a period where we were doing quite long podcasts and we, you know, we listened to feedback. People told us that it was too long. And so we cut it down to an hour. Um, and so today is basically... And it gradually a, crept back up from an hour to... It gradually hour. crept up, yeah. And now this is like a big... <laughs> to everyone who said, do it for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it's a big fuck you to A big everyone. childish fuck, fuck you. Listeners, fuck you. <laughs> Can I just check? What, what are you all drinking this evening? Nothing. Nothing. High on life. <laughs> Uh, I've got gin and tonic. I'm very classy. Very classy. You stay classy, Aaron Hughes. Yeah. I'm on the Disarano and, and lemonade over here. I'm a real uh, man. And Brooke is on the Lambrini. <laughs> damn, damn straight. Yeah. He's pink, on the baby sham. It's pink sparkling wine, man. There's no other fucking way to go. Yeah. White lightning from the spa. Spot Spot of own white. white lightning, not even proper white lightning. <laughs> oh, God. A bit of Tesco Blue Stripe Vodka. Yeah. I believe you're actually recording from in the back of the spa, isn't that right, Brooker? Damn straight. The yeah. best Wi-Fi signal ever is, is near this fucking wheelie bin, I'm telling you. <laughs> I didn't know spas had Wi-Fi, but there you go. <laughs> the, tone, the bin does. <laughs> the bin is more classy than the fucking shop. So is there anything more depressing than the spa in Milton Keynes? <laughs> The cost being around the back of the spa <laughs> yeah, in Milton, Milton Keynes. Keynes. Yeah. <laughs> Living in Milton Keynes. Yeah, well, that's a depressing start. So we've told people so far to skip parts of the podcast if they get bored. Oh, I didn't tell them to skip. Every I, said, I didn't tell them to skip. I said, like, if it's getting on quite a while, just find, find the gap because we're going to cut it up into sections like we always do. And then stop and go and do something else worthwhile with your day and come back and listen to us again later. It's called an intermission. You know, they yeah. used to happen all the an time. An intermission, yeah, yeah, that's better, that's better. Wait, when I, mean, I was a kid, we not only it, did we have an intermission, we used to have a film on before the main feature. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Roger Rabbit. If you, that? If I think that was the last one. I saw that at a film before the film. Oh, really? Was Because I was trying to work out what the last kind of supporting feature was. And I remember some of them when I was a kid. The most memorable one was Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which was played before The Spy Who Loved Me. Well, you're well, right. You probably well, remember those, those George Reeves. Together, didn't they? They <laughs> Can you imagine, though? Because James Bond was, what, two and a half hours? Yeah. And then you'd have a 90-minute film before it, plus an interval, plus an intermission. You went to the pictures in the morning, you came home, and it was dark. And you were Maps fucking up. Milton Keynes anyway, didn't they? <laughs> 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 yeah. But yeah, if, if you want to make this, this like a cinema experience and you want to experience an intermission, just get somebody to bring you around an ice cream halfway through and give them a fiver for it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, we're all on something fizzy, aren't we? So we can all belch at people as they go. That's my local cinema fucking experience. Yeah. Noi- I haven't noi- got any nachos, unfortunately, either, to munch in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I could sit texting. Sounds you could play me. Candy Crush and drink wine and burp, or take your top off. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. I've never seen anyone do that in the cinema. I've seen someone sit next to me use his stomach as a shelf for his nachos. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a pretty empty screening, and he come and sat right next to me. Like, it was it was one of the ones where they say, no, just go and sit where you want. Like, they don't allocate you a seat, so they just sit where you like. 
and it's empty, and I've gone in there on my own to review a film for this, and he's come and sat right next to me, like literally next to me, not even a, a seat gap between us. I was just oh, for fuck's sake. He didn't even offer me in that show either. Prick. <laughs> It's the trouble with being so attractive, Steve, I'm afraid. You just have to people put up with people towards like that. Me. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, when I, anyway. um, go on, I was glassing. When I, when I went over to Brighton to, to, to the cinema there to see Killer Joe, you know Sydney World are quite hot and you're not bringing in your own kind of food and drink. Yeah. yeah. This huge fat guy came in with one of those old lady shopping trolleys and proceeded to pull out bags of food and two litre <laughs> bottles of drink. <laughs> 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 it was quite a sight to behold. Bright and scary. Nothing like a picnic basket in your local cinema. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're, go- we're going to start off with a- with a quiz as we always do. Um, but Owen is hosting this time. Last time he hosted a quiz of this ilk, he fucked it up royally and didn't have a time to <laughs> question. This time he's got three. I'm hoping he doesn't need any. We'll see. Yeah, I've come fully prepared to this podcast. Fully prepared. I'm, I'm hoping you either don't need You're a tiebreaker. You need a fourth tiebreaker. <laughs> Um, I'll just make something up. It'll just be, you know, what number am I thinking of? <laughs> that can be the tiebreaker. Seven. But, uh, no, I have got proper tiebreakers and proper questions, and it's going to work slightly different to our normal quiz. So, you know, every week we have a quiz where we read out an actor or actress's filmography and you have to guess who the actor is. We haven't got any of those in this. It's completely different to that. Um, and I've split you into two teams. So we should effectively have three separate quizzes. And the first is going to be Steve versus Matt. That's going to be the first round. Ooh. Yeah. And that's basically because you two represent our older crew, if you like. You know, you're the guys who've been around since we started almost. And um, it'll be you two versus each other. And then the other one, of course, representing our recently expanded guest rotor will be Brooker versus Paul. So it's an old and then a new. And then the winners of each... Um, Boat, I'm going to call it a boat. Winners of each boat, each round, will then face off against each other in one final quiz. Uh, uh, you said we're, but you said we're in teams, so what happens if someone from the same team gets through to the final? I don't believe I said we're in teams. Oh, I, I know you said you're high on life, but are you smoking something else? No, you did say teams, <laughs> but I kind of knew what you meant. Maybe I am I'm smoking you something else. You definitely said teams, but... Okay, well, that's me fucking... Uh, straight away, there we go. You fucked it already. Fuck smack it already. It. Uh, it's this gin and tonic, you know. I've, I've got too much. Uh, what kind gin. of gin is it? Gordon's. Yeah. Intravenous. Common. <laughs> Intravenous. Uh, yeah, yeah, common. You're supposed to be drinking tankery, mate. Well, I'm not. Um, Gordon's it is. Right, anyway, yeah. Me <laughs> versus Matt. Yeah, so <laughs> you versus Matt in the first one, Brooker versus Paul in the second one, and then the winner stays on, basically. So the final quiz is obviously the winner versus the other winner. That's it, really. Okay. You can ask for a clue if you're not sure what the answer is. Can I have a clue? (laughs) If you ask for a clue, it means you get half a point instead of a full point. That's basically how it works. Okay. Okay. So, does that all make sense? Yes. Excellent. The, The questions, as well, are all based on Failed Critics podcast history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, there's basically three questions each. There'll be one question which is on our Corridor of Praise podcast, one question which is on our Main Review podcast, and one question on our Triple Build podcast. All right? And then um, the final quiz is a bit more of a random selection than that. 
I get the feeling our round's going to go on a long time, Paul. Yeah, it could, uh, be, could be here a while. Hopefully you should be able to sort of at least guess an answer, if not work it out. So, okay. So, Steve, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Yeah, you ready? It. Okay, let's do it. Let's get on with it. Steve, you're going to go first. All right. So the first question, based on one of our uh, Corridor Phrase podcasts, who was present on the podcast when we inducted Studio Ghibli into our Corridor of Praise? It was me. Yeah. It was James. It was you. And it was... Oh, yeah. Who was it? It was somebody who, like... Somebody doesn't appear much, and like it was a, it was a massive fan. Uh, I'm just going to take a punt and say Jerry because I ain't got a clue actually. Well, you're wrong. Obviously. Obviously, because you weren't there. I wasn't. It was me, Jerry, and James. Where? There you go. So the first one, <clears throat> wrong. I'm afraid. I'm lucky, yeah. mate. Unlucky. Nice to see you've got proper sound effects. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, proper sound effects. These, I paid for these. Um, so, you go, oh, I'll put loads of time into this quiz, and then you do it. It's pretty <laughs> convincing. But, yeah, you can uh, at least go to sadtrombone.com. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I didn't prepare that much. Rustytrombone.com. I've got about a million tabs open. <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. Okay, let's have another question, Bob. Another question. Move on swiftly. Is it my turn now? It's your turn, yeah. Okay. Okay, so your first question, again, on a Corridor of Praise podcast. Which new release film did we review on the same podcast where we inducted Paul Verhoeven? Oh, shit. So you can have a clue, and it means you get half a point. Yeah, I'm going to have to take the clue. Do you want a clue? Yeah. It was a documentary. Um, Blackfish? No, I'm afraid that's wrong. No, it was Next Goal Wins. Mm. Yes. Sorry. So, nil-nil so far. This is working out well. We might need that tiebreaker. Uh, okay, Steve. Yo. This next question, you've all got a question like this. Okay, Steve sort of has an advantage, I suppose, in some way. Uh, but basically, all these questions are you describing a film. I'm going to read a quote of you describing a film, and you have to tell me what the film is. All right? So the quote is, It is, as the critics and everyone else who seems to have watched it says, very tense. It's over 50 years old now and still stands up well. Which film were you describing? I think... Yeah. That was that French one that we got sent by that uh, Le Jour de Sève or something like that. Le Jour Sève, close but wrong answer. I reckon I know uh, what that is. Do you know what it is, Matt? You can't I mean, steal a point, but no, you can tell. I reckon it's Psycho. That's close. That's closer than, than Steve got. It was Rear Window. Yeah. You watched yeah. it when you sprained your ankle, apparently. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, there you go. See? No, I thought it, I thought it was going to be that French one that we got sent by that yeah. by what's it? Le Jour Le, yeah, sent by um, Studio Canal sent us that one to review. Yeah, yeah. it was um, wasn't that also known as Daybreak, which is a very good film, but it was Rear Window, which is also a very good film. 
So Matt, it's still nil-nil. You can sneak ahead with this one. And it's again a film that Steve was, was describing. You just have to tell me which <laughs> one it was. Do I get to answer one that I described? No. But yeah. Everyone's got one of these questions of Steve describing a film. <laughs> <laughs> Steve fucked up his advantage, so we ain't got exactly. a Exactly. <laughs> so. It's not an advantage. I get the same review for every film. <laughs> Everyone says it's all right, so it's all right. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> one great, one bad, it's all right. <laughs> Matt. Okay. Okay. Basically, the first ten minutes are tolerable due to Kelly Osborne getting her head bitten off in an homage to her dad. I don't know what this is. What <laughs> holy fuck? Is it Sharknado? Is that your final answer? Yes. I can't give you that. It's Sharknado 2. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll give you half a point. No, you can't, it's wrong! <laughs> it's a wrong answer. All right. Yeah, okay, not, you've convinced me, Steve. Not wrong. Is that all it took to convince you? <laughs> That's all it took. Give me a point. A gentle persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> right. Seriously, though, give me a point. <laughs> You're not having a point, Steve. Yeah. Uh, no, okay. Right. <laughs> so this is your final question, Steve. And it's still nil-nil, unbelievably. <laughs> and this is one of the um, Triple Bill podcast questions. Okay. <clears throat> Which of the following movies did not make Matt's list on our favourite fist fight scenes, Triple Bill. Was it A, Fight Club? Was it B, From Dusk Till Dawn? Or was it C, The Karate Kid? Knowing Matt as well as I do, yeah, I'm going to say Fight Club. Didn't make it. Yeah. You don't think Fight... Okay, you're wrong, <laughs> I'm afraid. That, that did make it. Mm. That's one of his favourite films, I believe. I wasn't there for that one. That was the one I missed. Exactly. Recently. You know, so you could have guessed or you could have listened to the podcast like we expect listeners to do. Well, if I knew it was going to be the question, <laughs> I would have listened. Well, there you go. It was a specific triple bill. Fail to, fail to prepare, budget. prepare to fail, Steve. That's yeah. my motto. Uh, no, it's not really, but anyway. So, your motto. What, what kind of operation are you running here when the host doesn't even listen back? <laughs> Well, we're shambolic. That's like a key word. Into the shite. <laughs> Come on, I'm stealing this this quiz at the this, I can't believe not. There's like five questions and none of you have got one I got right. I got Sharknado, yeah. bitch. Give me the points. Was it wrong? <laughs> it was wrong. It was not wrong. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, what a fucking shambles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Matt. Even half a point, you can steal this one. Okay, so I might as well take the the clue by default. You could, yeah. yeah so take as many clues as you like. Any fraction of a point is going to win it. Yeah, don't give me the clue, clue straight away. Don't the, clue, take, the clue will be the for... Clue by, don't take the clue by default. You'll be like the little dickhead on the, the chase who takes the minus offer. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, whatever. Just, just reel it off and let's see what we... Okay. The clue for these po- these questions, by the way, I'm just going to remove one of the answers, so you'll be left with a, like a 50-50. Alright. So, which of the following did not make Steve's list on our favourite movie dad's triple bill. <laughs> right? Okay. Right, knows what I picked. <laughs> yeah, Steve doesn't even know this one. I'm going to guess one of them was John McClane, but anyway. <laughs> right, okay. Well, was it A, Jack Torrance from The Shining? Was it B, Daniel Hillard 
from Mrs. Doubtfire, or was it C, Marlin from Finding Nemo? Which one of those was not in the top dads? Which one wasn't in his favourite dads? Uh, I'm going to say the, the first one. Jack Torrance from The Shining. Yeah. Is correct! Get in there. You've won, yes. No need I, for a tie-break. I redeemed myself for the sharp name of fuck-up. <laughs> yeah, so, Steve, you lost that one, I'm afraid. I kind of one question I, almost I kind of, exactly for you. I kind of forgot we were allowed to have a clue. <laughs> um, otherwise, I might have taken that option a couple of times, but never mind. Well, it's it's too late now, I'm afraid. Yeah. It's over. So, Matt, you will be joined in the final by Brooker or Paul. So, Brooker, Paul, are you two ready for this? Oh, you kind of yeah. know what's coming this time. So, yeah, you ready? Yep, yep, yeah, go for it, Yeah, straight in. Okay, <clears throat> good. Brooker, you can go first. Oh, thanks. Okay, no problem. Uh, <laughs> this one's one of the easier questions, I think, because I was struggling for another way to do this. Who was the first inductee into our corridor of praise? That's really shit. I've, I've listened to these ones as well. Fuck. I think I know who that was. Yeah. Mm. I'll get a point if I guess it right. No, but I'll come to you afterwards if Brooker doesn't, doesn't get it. Arnie. You going for Arnie? I am. Is incorrect. Oh, mother... Steve, who was it? I think it was Harrison Ford. It was Harrison Ford. Well done. There you go. Point to me. (laughs) No, um, you're out of it, Steve. You've long done. No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how this works. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. I didn't realise. Yeah. But, um... No, I'm afraid it, it wasn't. It wasn't Arnie. It was Harrison Ford. Oh. Okay. Unlucky. Oh. <laughs> Paul, go on. Let's see if you can get the first ever quiz question from the Failed Critics podcast correct, because I believe you've never guessed one of our previous nope. goes. No. Okay. God. I'm still right. ahead by aggregate. Then I'm all right there. <laughs> you, you kind of, yeah. <laughs> Paul. In our Arnold Schwarzenegger Corridor of Praise episode, which film did I say was my favourite Arnie film? Oh, God, I'm torn between... Uh, True Lies. Is incorrect. Oh, was it I, reckon, I reckon it's Predator. It's Predator. Oh. Yes. Yeah. So, you both started as Steve and Matt did as well, so... <laughs> Wait, this is going really well. I just should point out, they had questions from like shows that were on like a couple of weeks ago. And we said, <laughs> well, that would have been too easy because you guys were on the podcast from like two weeks ago. It's, it's logical, guys. You know that Erwin loves John Claude Van Damme, and he was technically a part of Predator. Mm. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, he was. He almost played the Predator before being a bitch on set and being replaced by a mahoosive black dude. Exactly, mahoosives. Okay. <laughs> it's huge. Um, right. That means really Brooker. Brooker. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Matt. You Sorry. can be out in Dictionary Corner. Um, Brooker. Yes, mate. Which film is Steve describing in the following quote? Sharknado 2. <laughs> Not Sharknado 2. But Sharknado. I'll give you another go. All right. I thought it was great, and it was a reaction shared in the whole screen, from men to women to kids, whatever. 
for me, it's up there as the best since Toy Story came along. Be a bit more fucking vague, Steve. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I, the best since Toy, Toy Story 2. Yeah, the best since Toy Story. So, Toy Story 2. <laughs> you, you can take a clue if you want. I'll give you no, another... If you want go to... on, guess a clue. Okay, it is an animated movie, but it's not a Pixar film. How to Train Your Dragon. Is incorrect. Steve, right. do you know what I was describing? Uh, Rango? L- Lego movie. The Lego movie, yeah. Ugh. You'd be 2 nil up if these were your questions so far. They aren't, are they? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not 2 nil up either. I wouldn't worry about it, mate. <laughs> yeah. Booker nil, Paul nil. Um, you could have taken a clue last time. You could have. You can remember for this one. Would the clue last time have helped? I was going to say the clue for Predator was it features a minor acting role from the guy who directed Iron Man 3. Uh, no. Wouldn't no. have helped. Yeah, come on. That would have been instant Predator, surely. Yeah. Hey, that's... Yeah. That's a okay. great clue. Anyway, right. Your second question then, Paul, of course, is a quote from Steve. The plot is okay. It's not exactly foolproof, but that's not what matters. It's just unashamedly brilliant action in the same way as Independence Day and hopefully what Godzilla will be like as well. It's all bravado, people punching and shouting and things blowing up. I think I know what it is again. Oh, God. Uh... I've not got a clue. You you might as well take take the the clue. clue. Okay. Brooker wrote about it on the website. I quite fucking recently. knew it. <laughs> this is going to insult both Steve and Paul, uh, Brooker, if you get this wrong, Paul. Dude, don't. <laughs> uh, I Genuinely, I've not got a clue. The Avengers? I don't know. Oh, no. Excruciating. What was it, uh, Brooker? Pacific Rim. It was Pacific Rim. <sighs> okay. But I, you know, I barely watched that, so... Oh, yeah, I think the new qu- the new quiz from now on is just going to be me finding an old review that I've done and <laughs> like playing a clip of it, and you're having to guess what film I'm talking about. Yeah, it's diffi- It's more difficult than you imagine, really. I guess, but um, you're very nondescript sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Final question, Brooker. Yeah, go on in. Which of the following did not make Carol's list on our favourite film weddings, Triple Bill? Was it A, The Corpse Bride? Was it B, Kill Bill? Or was it C, The Graduate? Kill Bill. Kill Bill? Yeah. Is incorrect. It was (sighs) The Graduate. Damn it. Yeah, which was slightly cheating because I don't think the wedding in Kill Bill was actually a wedding. It was halted. But there you go. So was the graduate. Same as the graduate. Yeah, that's true. But there we go. It was. It. It. She chose Corpse Bride and Kill Bill. I couldn't believe she chose Corpse Bride. That's uh, one of my worst films I had on DVD, which I sent to Paul and made him watch. Oh, you. Oh, you did as well. I did. Are we running at one question right out of the 11 hours so far? That's right. Excellent. Thank you very much. Oh, no, (laughs) sorry. Yep. Two? No, you've got one. Nobody else got any. (laughs) Steve's got two. Matt got one. Mine. 
Matt got one. I'm and then we kissed them. <laughs> you might as well claim it. It doesn't make a difference in the grand scheme of things. You can have it now. No, when you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> you already lost, Steve. It makes no odds. No, if he beats me by two, it's worse than me beating by one. Right. It is, okay. in fact, twice as bad. Yeah, well, okay. Matt, you can have it in your own head, and Steve, he didn't get it. It's, it's a moral victory. <laughs> right, okay, Paul. Final question. Which of the following did not make my list on our favourite car chases in films? Triple Bill. Was it A, the Italian job? Was it B, Duel? Or was it C, Death Proof? I'm going to go for Death Proof. It was the Italian job. Should have turned a clue. You could have taken a clue. I would have eliminated Death Proof as well. But never mind. Too late now. So I believe that means neither of you have got a single question. Dude, we're going to burn out all your tiebreakers. Yep. (laughs) I did warn you. Steve, start researching tiebreakers quick. (laughs) (laughs) Can we do a football question? (laughs) No, no, we fucking can't. The tiebreaker, and I'm going to give you about five to ten seconds to to give me a number. Okay? Mm -hmm. In the failed critics logo on the homepage of the website, how many DVD cases are shown on the top row? Nine. Brooker's closest. It was 22. So, Brooker, yes. you've won. <laughs> it's the shittiest, most hollow victory ever. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be easy pickings in the final, I'm not going to lie. Fucking hell, I'm... Yeah, wow. Okay. Is, there like a, is there like a decent way to describe moping in the fucking corner? <laughs> Uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But Matt, as you like, were the only one who technically won a quiz, <laughs> you can choose whether you want to go first or second. Are we getting bonus uh, clues again? There, there are clues, yes. Okay, I'll go second then. You want to go second? So, Brooker, you're up first again, okay? Yeah, go on him. Right, straight in. In November 2012... James attended the 6th annual UK Festival of Zombie Culture film festival. But, which real-life celebrity guest introduced the podcast that week? And you can have a clue if you want. I would absolutely need a clue. (laughs) Okay, he wrote a series of post-apocalyptic young adult horror novels called The Enemy. Wow. Now I know who it is. (laughs) I, I... I have no clue. I, I wouldn't even know how to guess. Yeah, uh, we've used the clip a couple of times, I think, throughout the years. It Wasn't was... it that Benny guy who was in Prometheus? Or am I just making that No, up? but the, the interesting point there, because, yeah, one of our earlier podcasts, Steve went... Uh, not Steve, it was James, who went out on, like, he gate-crashed a premiere party after going to see the premiere of Prometheus and basically spent the evening with Benedict Wong. That's the guy. Getting drunk. Yeah. Uh, He's like a major film star, isn't he? Almost. But anyway, it was uh, Charlie Higson of the Fast Show fame. Oh, him? Yeah, I ain't got a clue who that is. You've not got a clue who Charlie (laughs) Higson is? Unbelievable. (laughs) I'm glad I went second, though. (laughs) Okay. Right. Well, your your question, I don't know whether you'll get this one either. (laughs) Uh, In March last year, 
another uh, podcast where James went to the Glasgow Film Festival. And he recorded a podcast without me or Steve on it. But who were the celebrity guests he got in to replace us? Uh-huh. Yeah. Actually, I well, I say I know this one. I, I remember it, and I kind of... Yeah, I won't say any more. Go on. Yeah, yeah. give us a clue. Um, there, I can't remember their names. <laughs> there's, there's three of them. They're a professional comedy trio. They've been on so TV. Not they? They've been on TV doing film shows and everything. Yeah. They don't have their own program on BBC Three. They did. They did. Yeah. Yep. I can't remember. Can't remember. No. It was uh, the professional comedy trio Pappies. Oh yeah, those guys. Oh come on! How could you? This is insulting. I'm insulted. Right. Oh yeah. Anyway. <laughs> you okay. You reserve the right. to to be offended, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. Okay, so uh, we're still nil-nil. This is going extremely well. It's going exactly how Our listeners it. are pulling yeah. their hair out. Like, <laughs> what you should have so done hard. was asked everyone what they had for dinner yesterday. If they couldn't remember, you should have scrapped this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We haven't been drinking that much. Okay. Right, Brooker. Yeah, go on. As at today's date, our ma- most downloaded podcast ever is the Skyfall uh, slash Bond special podcast we did back in October 2012. But how many downloads has it had in total? And I'll accept your answer if it's within 100 of the correct number. So this is going to be like your guess. <laughs> I have got just, uh, a thousand. Is incorrect. It's actually had 2,175 downloads. Jeez, since it was published. Yeah. Oh, massively underestimated. Yeah, by over a grand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, hell. Matt. Okay, your chance to, to get a point. Is this like sudden death? Uh, no, it's still... Uh, You're doing free. Yeah. Okay, yes, okay. yes, it is. If you get one of these silly-ass questions right, I <laughs> kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. As at today's date of recording, again, our least downloaded podcast ever was from back in uh, 2012 as well. And it was our review of Paranorman. But how many downloads did that get in total? And I'll accept your answer if it's within five of the correct number. Clue, please. It's less than 120, more than 20. Wow. Was that just you testing to make sure that it was downloadable? (laughs) <laughs> this was like before we started we used to get between about 80 and 120 downloads per podcast and some have been like the Skyfall ones just con- I mean it always gets downloaded every month but um, this one's basically not been downloaded since it was released okay so I can guess within 100 again you can guess within 5 of oh the within correct. 5 yeah God, he just gave you a window of 100 yeah <laughs> Oh, that's what I mean. I thought, okay, you just, that's the answer then. Um, I'll go for 60. Ooh, it, it's 80. 80 downloads. So that's also incorrect. I was going to go 75 as well. That's annoying. You would have got it on 75, but you didn't get 75. Okay, so. next question. Next Steve, question. Steve, do you want to go to the pub? <laughs> I wish, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, this is the final question. Final question. Right, Brooker, bring your A game. In our failed failed Critics Awards, 
as voted for by listeners of the podcast, of course, we have several different categories. However, we've only had a worst film category twice, once in 2012 and again last year. Name either of the films that have won the worst film award. Fucking hell. Uh, I remember listening to it and agreeing as well. Bollocks, I I guess a clue. Okay. One was a Tim Burton film. uh, It was also the main review on our fourth podcast we ever recorded. Um, And the other is an Australian movie. Steve, I bet you know which ones I'm referring to. Home and Away, the movie. (laughs) Good guess, good guess. It wasn't, I'm afraid. Fucking hell. Uh, Australian movie. I think I know the, the Tim Burton one because I think it was the first episode I ever listened to. I know the Tim Burton one. Yeah. You I can name think... either of them, but I'm going to rush you because you have obviously an opportunity to look. <laughs> yeah, I ain't got a clue. You ain't got a clue. No. Okay, 2012's worst film was Dark Shadows. Yeah. 2014's worst was I Frankenstein. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah. I should have fucking that. Known that. Bollocks. Yeah. So, Matt. Final question for you, and you can win it all, even with half a point. Uh, in last year's Failed Critics Awards, two films were tied for 10th place on our top 10 of the year. Uh, name either of them. <sighs> Without looking, of course. No. You can look and um, cheat, but then, you know, it kind of... It's cheated. I um, seem to remember me having Gone Girl quite high, and it was... A little bit further down in the list, so I'm going to go for... Remember, you can have a clue. Okay, give me a clue. They both featured Matthew McConaughey. Fuck. Interstellar. (laughs) Is correct! There we go. It was Interstellar and Dallas Buyers Club. They were both released in 2014 in the UK. So out of the whole failed critics panel, I'm the only one who's able to answer any trivia. Correct. Yeah. For your own questions. For your own questions, yeah. Steve's got a few... And you've got a few of the others, but yes, that's it. You are the champion slash loser. How does it, how does it feel? <laughs> I'm the best of the worst. It feels amazing. Yeah. And we can get on with the, the pod. You're going to be on a promise tonight, pal. <laughs> yeah, I'll be getting me bum tickled tonight. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, so you won with half a point in that final quiz. Yeah. This is, like, tragic. I wouldn't I have got two of Putting the sham into shambolic. Yeah. I've got the two tie break questions. Do you want them just for the sake of having them? Yes. Might as well, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. One of the original Fair Critics podcast members, Jerry, uh, along with Stephen James, officially retired from full time duty on the podcast. What month and year did he step down? March 2013. October 13. I take it that's all, we're, all the guesses we gave. September 2013, so Steve was closest on that one. There we go. Do you want to know the other one? Final yeah. question? Yeah, okay. Callum really Petch. Give him anyway. Yeah, I'll give him anyway. We might <laughs> Callum Petch, probably uh, the most prolific writer I think we've got on the website uh, ever. I mean, he's written like hundreds He's the most of prolific writer ever in general. Ever, yeah. In terms of like the volume of articles and the length of them. Um, but, you know, he's, I really like his writing. He's a great writer. But anyway, um, he's also been on the podcast, of course. But, however, he's recently completed his DreamWorks retrospective series of articles. But how many articles did he write in total for the series? 483. 45. It's 26. 26. I'm going to go 25. It's 31. He's written 31 articles for that series, which he's hoping to turn into a book, I think. 
And the standard of writing in it is pretty damn good. So, there we go. That was a it. Proper, That's what a proper actual book. A proper actual book, yeah. Are we going to get credited in that? Uh, <laughs> probably not. Legally, where do we stand? It's all, it's all on our website. Um, the, the, you know, the, legally, I think it's our intellectual property, but I don't really care, to be honest. You'll be up there when you had your letter published in uh, Penthouse, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, had, I, had a, I had something published in Shoot Magazine when I was about 10. Did you? <laughs> what was it? Can you remember? No. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be the ongoing theme for tonight, really, didn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. God, I thought my memory was shot to bits. Maybe the question should have just been, what is the name of this podcast? <laughs> Still would have gone on a fucking night. Fucking hell. Like, this is Phil Jug, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to say we all live in the moment and our memories don't serve us too well these days. That may be the most poetic way of saying we all suck <laughs> I've ever heard. Yeah. I think we all yeah. caned it too much in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, I would have been 13 or 14 at the end of the 90s, so... Early developer. <laughs> Caned it all the way through, I did. Yep. All the way through. Well, there we go. That's the quiz. That is the most epic-length quiz. That's the quiz. I'm I'm off to throw a kettle over a pub. That's the real quiz. <laughs> <sighs> How are we going to follow up on that epic? I'm just off the kettle owing. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I'll uh, I'll see you there then. Yeah, that, that's all for part one. In in part two, God, part two. We've <laughs> <laughs> been going an hour already. Sorry, I've only got forty five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what day is it? We'll never make it to two hundred. <laughs> oh no! Part part two is 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 uh, bad. Bad Secret Santa. Or, yeah, <laughs> Secret Bad Santa. <laughs> Part two of this special 150th Bell Christmas podcast is called Secret Bad Santa, where it Secret Santa, for those of you who don't know, you kind of at random get assigned someone have to buy them a present. It's a secret bad film Santa is you get assigned someone at random and give them a shit film to watch. Uh, Owen was probably hoping to make me watch Kill Keith. <laughs> Which you're going to have to watch anyway, because yes. you lost the quiz. But you probably wanted me to watch it twice. Oh, man. Do you know what? I was going to keep them back for the next time I won a quiz, but I'm going to tell you what I was contemplating giving you instead. You're either going to have you were either going to have to watch the Keith Lemon movie, Oof. Fuck, no, that's or right. the Harry Hill movie, and I didn't know which one to give you. They're either worse than Kill Keith. Well, unimaginable to be worse than Kill Keith, to be honest. So I went with the one I thought would wind you up the most, <laughs> which apparently I think was the correct choice. Um. So anyway, oh, yeah. so, so yes, does everyone, before we start reviewing them, everyone wants to say what they got, and then we can find out who assigned it to them. Well, that's not the point of a secret Santa, is it? To tell everyone who gave you the thing? I think we should find out who, who ends up giving who what. So we know who to bean with a battery <laughs> when we bleed them. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I got given superhero movie. And that was me. That was you. <laughs> yeah. 
one of those shitty American disaster movie style things that I saw on Netflix called Superhero Movie. Yeah, so it's, it's basically like when they did Scary Movie, it was the first time they started parodying a genre of film. And scary yeah. Movie wasn't actually that bad. But then they just started releasing more Scary movies, And then they just started releasing like um, Meet the Spartans and Date Movie. One of them was Superhero Movie. And it, it's just abysmal. I, I, I don't know where the jokes are. Leslie Nielsen's in this. He's like proper funny. Not in this film, but like in general. Like he's a proper respected comic actor. Not only is don't know what he's doing to end up in this. It's just an old waste of everyone's time. Was there anything in it that was like of redeeming value? No. Nothing. I, I didn't like anything. I don't think any of the jokes work because it's all just like, oh, look, there's someone dressed up as Wolverine and he's doing something stupid. Oh, that's not a joke. It's just that. Was it better or worse than Movie 43? Because that's the way I imagine the level of comedy to be in, in superhero movie. It's like asking me if I'd rather be kicked my left bollock or my right bollock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what and? Was, <laughs> what were the lowlights? Every single minute I had to watch it for. 85 minutes and it felt like it was twice as long. I think the whole bit where he ended up going, going to the school for mutants. Yeah, I think that bit was the worst. Well, it sounds a hoot. It sounds like you've just... It sounds like you watched the trailer. <laughs> no, I actually suffered through the whole film. It was awful. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know why they make these films because they never get good responses. This one's rated at sixteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. That's how bad it is. Yet these things keep getting made. I don't think they even make that much money. It's just bizarre, isn't it? Yes. They must. They must be able to make them for like a pittance and spend all the rest of the budget on, like, marketing. Mm. Uh, mm. I don't know what well. to say. Uh, <laughs> is it, Paul, you're up next. What did, what did you have to watch? I had to watch A Most Wanted Man. A man wanted by most people. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm guessing... This, <clears throat> Matt, did you... Was this your, your doing? Yeah, I thought I was helping you out on it, this one, mate, so I do apologise. The thing is, it's... <sighs> Everyone loves Philip Seymour Hoffman, and uh, I don't. Um, it, it's Why I, not? I just, it's just never really, you know, he's never really been on my radar. I've, I've watched stuff he's been in, you know, neither here nor there. The big thing for this one is Anton Corbian, the director, um, who did pretty much nearly all the kind of Depeche Mode music videos. And Matt, knowing that I'm a huge Depeche Mode fan, picked this on the back of that. Is that correct? Pretty much. Yeah. It's over two hours. And the thing about music video directors, <laughs> they can kind of handle action films okay. A really slow-burning spy drama, not so much. It took 90 minutes before anything happened. <laughs> it's just lots of people staring into middle distance. There's a scene in an elevator, there's three of them in the lift, and it goes up. And it's one of these glass elevators on the outside of a building. And they film it from three different angles. And the people in the lift turn their heads as, as each kind of shot pans out. Nobody's saying anything to each other. And I'm like, this is just ridiculous. This is basically a, you know, a Depeche Mode music video stretched out over two fucking hours. Nothing happens apart from at one point, because it's all set in Hamburg. 
and um, they go into a club and they're playing um, a song called De Mussolini. Do you know it? By DAF from 1981. Everyone's dressed in black leather and rubber, and it's a huge kind of disco-y hit from... That ain't happening. I've been to Hamburg. These places don't exist. The whole thing was just torture. Absolute torture. The story itself, I mean, if you're really interested, do you know what? It's about Muslims blowing stuff up, but (laughs) nobody actually blows anything up. And it's this really long, convoluted plot about trapping this guy who may or may not be sending money to dodgy organisations. And I was just, by the end of the two hours... I was losing the will to live, so, um, yeah. But yeah. It's, set, it's set in Hamburg for a reason, though, isn't it? Because that's where they plotted the uh, 9-11 attacks from, apparently. Oh, is that why? I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't like Anton Corbien's films, full stop. I mean, I, I, I didn't like Control, and I, I hated The American. I thought it was just... It was like this. It was tedious. If you watch the trailer, you think you're going to get, you know, like an action film, but, but it's, that's not what it is at all. Um... There is, Did there you is... like uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy? No. Okay, so Again, they're very was, similar. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, this looked great, very stylish, very cool. And if it was three and a half minutes long, I'd have been bang up for this. No, the only good bit was the uh, yeah, as I say, the uh, DAF and uh, the, their song De Mussolini. Do, do check it out though; very good song. I really like um, "Man Wanted by Most People," as Steve called it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really good. It well. It, it's not the best film ever made, but it it definitely, if people like stuff like Tinker Tailor, I think they'd like it. And I recommended it to, um, you know, Liam, who wrote mm-hmm. on our Decade in Film articles. He's into these sort of slower, European-feeling sort of movies, because it's all in, set in Germany, but they all talk in English anyway. Mate, was, you know, as I said, I love the director's non-film work. Yeah. It's one of my favourite cities. You know, bizarrely enough, I've actually, last I was in Hamburg, was actually to go to a, a Depeche Mode party on a boat in the harbour. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was all the boxes were ticked for me to really enjoy this, but... Yeah, I think I heard uh, Matt orgasming in the background then, when you said that. Well, that's a shame that you didn't like it. Well, I thought that was the whole point. I didn't realise that I actually <laughs> thought he was doing me a solid The original email I got said nothing about bad Secret Santa. It just said Secret Santa. So I thought, okay, give him an Anton Corgin film. He'll enjoy that. So uh, yeah. we got that one horribly wrong. Well, you did. But it, but it actually served its purpose. Perfectly correctly. well, sir. Perfectly well. I imagine we've all ended up disliking the films anyway for a different reason. Because like, I'm the only one who knows what everyone's got. And I can imagine some people aren't happy with their films. Brooker. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> third on the list is yeah. Owen. Is me, yeah. I Obviously, I know who gave me my film. And it would have been obvious anyway, I think. But I got Hitman, the 2007 uh, Xavier Jens Skipwoods film. Oh, Paul. Wasn't Paul? It was what? Brooker. Really? Brooker. Brooker recommended this on one of the following on podcasts from the podcast the other week. I thought oh. I'd, I'd but you were on that. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, I got that one wrong, don't I? We, we, were talk, <laughs> we were talking about video game movies, weren't we? Yeah, we were. Yeah, and I think you said this was like the best video game it, movie. It's one of my favourite ones. It's one of the only ones that's actually anywhere close to playing like the video game and still being fun to watch. Well, I thought it was fun to watch. 
Okay. Well, it might be like playing the video game. I haven't played the video game, um, but I did watch the film. And, okay, there is a bit in the film which I did enjoy watching. I'll come on to that in a moment. But mostly, I'm so really sorry, Booker. It was just really tedious and <laughs> such a massive <laughs> chore to watch it. If if you hadn't have like selected it and told me this isn't like my Secret Santa film, I probably would have ended up switching it off before the scene <laughs> happened that I enjoyed. Is this all with Timothy Timothy Oliphant? Timmy Oliphant, yeah. Yes, Timmy Timmy Oliphant as we'll call him. <laughs> and uh, Duggery Scott is in it, and Duggery. Duggery. Timmy Oliphant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, I don't know. How can I mispronounce this one? Olga... I'll mispronounce it anyway. Olga Kurilenko. Olga Kurilenko. Yeah. Kurilenko. Well, you get that right, but you can't say Dugray. 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 Timmy Oliphant, Dugray, and Olga Kurilenko. <laughs> yes, Timmy Elephant, Dugray du- Scott, and Olga... Yeah, whatever. Fucking <laughs> Peppa Pig by a sound bit. Piggle, piggle, oh dear, yeah. So no, it is based on the 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 Hitman game. Is it actually close to the story of the Hitman games, Brooker? Ish, ish, ish. It's as close as you can get without being completely, stupidly, fucking, unbelievably boring. You can't you can't put the Hitman story into a two-hour film. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. That's obvious, I think. Uh, but they, because... they do try, and they get relatively close. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm not sure what the story of the game is, as I said, but I think the main basic plot to this is you've got a, an assassin who's, like, genetically engineered or, or like, part yeah. of, like, a group of, like, people who've been raised to be assassins and stuff, um, who's only known as Agent 47. And he sort of gets double crossed as he goes to kill Olga Curry Linko. Um, <laughs> um, that's basically all you need to know, isn't it? It is. He then goes, goes on a, a sort of mission to hunt down who set him up and. Hilarity. Yeah, other people in suits. Uh, yeah, like I say, I really found it such a. A chore. It was so difficult to watch parts of it. It moves really slowly. I was expecting it to be like um, Transporter, maybe, or I know it's a different story, but just something that's got a much quicker pace to it. Something that already feels quite European and yeah, okay, perhaps even understand. kind of Luke Besson esque. And it it didn't. It it just felt like cutscenes from a game. It, that's all it, it does felt try, like. Try, I think, very hard to be. A Luke Besson film, but it's still the the, the games are the same. They're glacial in their mm. speed, uh, and as a as a copy of the game or an imitation of the game, I think it works very well. But yeah, I suppose if you don't know or like the game, you're not going to know or like the film. Well, yeah. the, the 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 only one bit that I did don't really like. Say it. <laughs> I know what you're going to say you're going to say the same thing. I've got a mate who says the exact same thing about one certain scene in fucking Resident Evil. Go on. Where they're, they're all standing around pointing a gun at each other. Oh, no, that's right. <laughs> what, were you, what did you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to talk about Olga Kurilenko being nude. I would not be so crass. No, not at all. Obviously. <laughs> uh, as I said, I'm drinking gin and tonic here. I'm the classy one on the podcast tonight. So, 
I don't know if that makes me classy. It makes me a classy bird, according to Matt. <laughs> just makes you classier than the rest of us. Doesn't make you classy. <laughs> oh dear. But um, no, the fight on—is it like a bus or a yeah, the train, the train station? Train carriage. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. That's what I wanted. If the whole film was full of these cheesy as hell fight scenes where you've just got four guys who just like nod at each other and agree they're going to kill each other, but they'll do it in a very honourable way. Yeah. With a fist fight. See, the really ironic bit about that is that is the only bit that is nothing even remotely like the game. Oh, okay. There is well, nothing like that in any of the Hitman games. Well, that's a shame. <laughs> Maybe they should put it into the next one, because they're doing another Hitman film, aren't they? Oh, God. Just... Did you watch the trailer I sent you? Uh, I can't remember. It is the most ear-raping, tor- torturous <laughs> fucking trailer I've ever watched in my life. It's a horrendous cover of the Jimmy of a classic Jimi Hendrix song. It just it's beyond oh, belief that it was allowed to come out. Well, yeah, uh, I I just I'm not interested in it. <laughs> this has put me off somewhat. Fair enough. You know the, the description here because I use Letterboxd to log films and stuff, and the description they've got here for the film: the best-selling video game Hitman roars to life with both barrels blazing in this hardcore action thriller. What the fuck? That is not the film I watched. No, it's not the film I watched either. Someone lied. They must have, because there's no way this is a, one of these rip-roaring, hardcore actions. It is like a straight-to-video Van Damme film. <laughs> one of his worst. <laughs> Timothy Oliphant is just not... He's not an assassin. He, what the fuck? Who decided to cast him in that role? Seriously. It's all better than sticking fucking Paul Walker in it. It was supposed to be in the, the new one. Oh, God, Paul... Oh, yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, that is not good casting. I've got news about Paul Walker. He's not going to be in the Hitman film. Correct. <laughs> 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 was he in Paranormal Activity 5? <laughs> oh, that's... Ouch. Oh. <laughs> that's a low blow. Oh, God. Man. We're all kind oh, of yeah. helpful about that. Yeah, the other thing that annoys me, hasn't you? Hitman. What the fuck was Robert Nepper doing in it? Playing a Russian. Well, it's Robert he Nepper. He just told us he was playing a Russian. Playing a fucking Russian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, he. I well, like don't say what was Alec Guinness doing in Bridge Over the River Kwai. Do you? He's doing that. I'm glad you said that though, because I was about. I thought I, for a second thought it was Peter Stormari. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I didn't say his name. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah, like I said, I think I'm about done with that film. It was fucking dreadful. Yep. Sorry, Brooker. No, that's there's, right. there's film two of 43. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's more to go. That's not Actually, this doesn't count in toward, towards our 45 films. So this makes it 50. We've got to have 50 films oh, in total. Oh, so, so, Matt, what, what <laughs> film did you have to watch? I watched ESPN's 3030 documentary on the Hillsborough disaster. See, now this is what I recommended, because at the time I wasn't told it was meant to be a bad film either. I only found this out when I got the agenda. Well, yeah, this, this, is, this is the interesting thing of this, because in a nutshell, this is a good documentary, but obviously the subject matter is absolutely abhorrent. So yeah. it kind of works out as a bad time, because I was so fucking depressed by the end of it but in summary the documentary itself is good but um, I think it we're all familiar with the circumstances of the Hillsborough disaster so I'd have to go over that in too much detail right yes 
No, no, but let's, no, let's avoid doing any Hillsborough taunting or anything like that because we're we're good football fans on this show. We don't do those kind of things. So to start off, ESPN paints a picture of the establishment's corruption and their total mismanagement of the fixture between um, Liverpool and am I right? I think it was Nottingham Forest, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right from the very start and. In fact, it probably started weeks before that, according to the circumstances in the documentary. Um, it shares information close to the beginning that superintendent at the time, uh, Brian Mole, who had worked Sheffield Wednesday fixtures for many years prior to this uh, FA Cup semi-final, had actually been transferred to another force because of an internal conflict amongst police officers playing quite severe pranks on each other. So just a week or so before the fixture's due to go off, a new superintendent comes in who's never policed a football match before. So it leads you down the line that this very unfortunate chain of events that started to happen many weeks before the actual event itself that eventually caused the disaster itself, which is, is very sad if that's indeed the truth of how it happened. But if this particular transfer of the chief superintendent hadn't happened, then the highly incompetent and inexperienced David Duckenfield wouldn't have been in charge of the match on the day and there's a, a much bigger chance that this wouldn't have happened at all so that's actually very sad the film itself covers the the time frame of the event very thoroughly to a point where it becomes almost unbelievable that the trouble wasn't identified sooner when you look at the circumstances of people initially struggling to get into the ground and then once they're in just being completely rammed up against barricades and, and various pens in the in the stand. It's, it's absolutely incredible and even more incredible that it was ever conceived that it could be anything to do with fan fuggery or support and misbehaviour. It's just absolutely insane. They show you scenes from the match itself right at the start of the game where there are fans who are getting squashed inside the paddocks in the Liverpool end and it just looks like the scene in Jerusalem from World War Z where the zombies are trying to climb up the wall. There's just a wash of swaying limbs going all over the place. It's like nothing you've ever seen before and yet they still thought that it was a fan problem and they took so long to do anything about it. It's absolutely insane. Needless to say... The documentary itself leaves you feeling very sceptical and hateful of a media that most of us probably don't have a lot of time for, the way that it vilified Liverpool supporters and football fans of the era in general. But um, it's an absolutely harrowing film, especially when it's detailing with the family's accounts of everything they've had to been through with legal troubles and whatnot since the event itself actually happened, leading to more um, recent prosecutions that have taken place. But um, uh, the the disaster itself is still claiming victims to this day with all the um, emotional anguish that the relatives of the supporters who died are still going through. And, yeah, it's just an absolutely terrible way to, to have treated people who didn't particularly do anything wrong. It does make you realise from a football fan's perspective, though, that there's more important connections that they should be having with each other as human beings rather than you know being overly partisan about the patch of dirt they happen to be born on. It's incredibly evocative. I was watching it with my girlfriend and we were both absolutely speechless come the end of it. And as I say, Steve didn't intend to make it a quote-unquote bad Santa movie, but the, whilst it was a, a fine and thorough documentary, the, the subject matter is just so abysmal and, and sad. 
and I can't go as far to say it was enjoyable, but as a, as a documentary, it was stimulating and thought-provoking. So in that respect, I'm glad I watched it. But uh, yeah, it's a horrible subject matter to have to watch. Absolutely. I remember that day, and uh, I, when I was a kid um, growing up, I we don't have we don't have a local football team down here on the coast, and I used to be a Liverpool fan. Um, and uh, that day, funnily enough, my friend took me to my first Crystal Palace match. And uh, we beat Portsmouth 2-0. But at half-time, I remember the guy with the radio, everyone was saying to him, what's the score in the semi? What's the score in the semi? And he said, oh, there's a news blackout. And we're all kind of, nobody knew why. And uh, coming out of the football that day afterwards, it was, yeah, it was, I, I remember it so vividly. Horrible. Yeah, it's probably the saddest thing I've ever watched. I can, I can hand on heart say that. So thanks for that, Steve. <laughs> it's very nice of you. Oh, do, okay. do you remember what your reply to me was, Matt, when I told you what this film, yeah, what your secret yeah, centre was? Yeah, it wasn't very nice. It was. Do you want me to read it out? No. <laughs> the rest of us do. <laughs> Go on, tell him. Okay, I'll tell him. So I sent Matt his secret centre film, as I sent everyone else's, and his first reply within like minutes was, "Oh, for fuck's sake, I bloody hate Liverpool." <laughs> <laughs> which, which is part of the the problem in in the initial reaction to, to your exactly yeah I'm sure it was in jest and everything if I'd, I'd, if I'd have known that I'd have made you watch that one that they that Liverpool made and put out when Brendan Rodgers took over the one with the envelopes that he was giving out the <laughs> <laughs> uh, so but no I, you know like I say I'm sure it was in jest and you don't hate it's not a ritual hate I grew up exactly I grew up being a Man United fan because they were the biggest close club <clears> to where I grew up. Mm. Um, so you basically Stoke. Like, yeah, you don't. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that far from Manchester. Anyway, yeah. point being is you, you don't like Liverpool by default for, for those. And the, the, but, um, I think the point being though, from the way you've described the documentary, anyway, is it doesn't really matter who you've supported or whatever. It's still just a yeah, seems like a very moving and it's something that every football fan should watch just so that they understand how trivial their tribal associations mm. to teams are because when stuff like this happens it goes out the window yeah which is why I thought your comment was sort of quite apt to put in there yeah, it's, because... it's pointing as a joke goes but exactly yeah yeah. So, yeah. anyway uh, finally for this this bit of the podcast uh, Brooker what film did you have to slug your way through <sighs> fuck it right <laughs> so I'm sniggering because I know what you've got alright oh. you can it <laughs> fuck off <laughs> I kn- this was a, when when I got the email, it had to be it was either you or Owen that sent me this fucking thing. No one else would have sent it me. And I looked up, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. So you sent me Mobius, the dialogue-free, mm-hmm. but not silent, yep. Korean thing. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's fucking horrendous. Okay. So you it's, need to paint a picture here. Yeah. I need to, okay, I'll, I'll, I can paint a picture. I'm, I'm all right with this. We have a woman, no, a bloke, who cheats on his wife, and his wife finds out. So in return, she tries to cut his dick off. He wakes up and gives her the tamest little slap to get her, get her away from him ever. And because she's failed, she then gets up, goes to her son's room and cuts his dick off. As you do. As you oh, do, course, because yeah. why the fuck Logic. wouldn't you? Mate, yeah. you're from Thamesmead, come on. 
We don't go around cutting dicks off for the sake of it. It's not just what she... Oh, if you go and do that, there's a reason for it. It's it's not just though that she cuts it off, though, is it, Brooker? No. Yeah, Brooker, what's she do with his dick? She fucking eats it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, here's the thing, right? Now, this film... (laughs) Wow. This... This fucking movie, right? I'm sitting watching this and remembering there's no dialogue, but it's not silent. The missus is out in the kitchen doing stuff, randomly hearing these really shitty sex scenes going on, (laughs) and the occasional whelp of someone having their cock removed. She comes in about an hour, hour and a bit into this movie. I have to pause it and try and explain what the fuck is going on. She just looks at me gobsmacked that some twat has made me watch it. I couldn't fucking... I couldn't believe what I was watching. I really couldn't. I just... So... For, oh, fucking... Yeah, but did you enjoy it? I don't know. <laughs> I genuinely, a week later, I haven't made up my mind whether or not it's a good film. There are some really fucking disturbing scenes in it. Mm. Like, we're not no. talking... Gross, I can do gross, I can do gruesome, I can do flat out nasty, but just plain fucking weird. So, a little way through the film, this kid with no dick has ended up in jail of some description. Uh, And while he's in there, his old man has decided to try and figure out how his son, with no penis, can masturbate. No, I'm sorry. The answer is you (laughs) fucking can't. The answer is not take a rock to your foot and scratch your goddamn foot. That, oh. Because, no, what the... In no world that has ever existed has itchy foot equaled jizz in pants. Never. I wish Barry um, Norman had reviewed this. <laughs> I wish anybody had reviewed this before I fucking watched it. Dear Lord. But the... So you've got to remember, right? I mean, like I said, the missus walks in and she's watching... The first thing she sees is this dude with a fucking stone on his foot. She's coming in his pants. Nothing makes me come in my pants more than a good fucking bout of athlete's foot. For fuck's sake. So... He then goes to... The kid goes to the dad's mistress, who has previously been gang-raped by a group, including him, with no dick. I feel I need to make this point every time. This kid has no car. (laughs) So what, he raped him with a stump? (laughs) I don't... You don't get to see it, but just... I don't want to imagine this kind of hanging sack with nothing else. Like just a manky like the eye of Sauron and a bullseye. No, just like just teabag them basically. I I don't know how the logistics. I don't know. Maybe pokes the balls in. I I, I don't know. <laughs> you just created a new genre. <laughs> oh my God. I want fucking artistic credit on that one as well. I tell you. I'm, I'm sure Paul's already seen a film like that. He must have been here. So they they decide they're going to get one of the guys that raped the mistress and cut off his dick so 
the kid can have a penis transplant. There is so many things in that sentence wrong. <laughs> but we'll start with Dick gets cut off and bounces across the floor. The other, the kid then picks it up and runs off with it. He run, and the other the other dude, the dude that's just had his dick cut off, doesn't fuck around. He stands up and chases him. No. Just no. Anyway, so he tackles the guy. This dick bounces into the road and gets run over by a truck. Yeah. So it's not a slapstick film at all, is it? It's a, it's a, it's point, a slap something film. Slapstick. Oh, slapstick. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit rapey. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. A bit. Yeah. It's just a is this your first Kimki Duck film? No. Kimki Duck. Kimki Duck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love myself a bit of Kinky Duck. No, it's not. I've watched... The, what was the one from the year before? P, P, Peter? Very Peter. Fucks yeah. His yeah. 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 So you like the, the one you I recommended... The, you love the mum-fucking one. But I recommended like that from Mother's Day, one. I think. Because <laughs> he done Have what was the... Have you seen the um, Fish Hooks Up the Minge one? That's pretty bad. Yep. No. No, no, I haven't. And no, no, I won't. Yeah, is that a spoiler? <laughs> I just had a Google search for Kinky Duck. <laughs> what's, what's first on the image result? Well, the first thing that comes up is a rubber ducky in a gimp suit. <laughs> but then there's like a, a like de-feathered duck with like a funnel in its arse or something. I don't know. Is this just a photo of Steve's new bathroom? It's pretty weird. Anyway, carry on. Mallard porn. I, just, I, I can't carry... I don't fucking... I can't believe I watched this. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, so the dad... Because so they lose this dick because it fell under a lorry. <laughs> how we all lose dick. You know, it's pretty common. So the dad decides that he will give the son his dick. Was it the Pork Chop Express? Yeah. Exactly what it was. <laughs> I do. So, so now the son is has had a penis transplant and he's running around with his dad's todger hanging off of him. <laughs> it gets weirder as well. And proceeds to fuck his mum. <laughs> what? Who then tries to take the dick off of him again? <laughs> I wish oh. we watched this instead of Hillsborough. Yeah. <laughs> They're so going to transcribe this review and put it in the Guardian. <laughs> they need to. There's just. <laughs> but it genuinely is. Mobius is one of my favourite films of like the past decade. It's, it's just so just... fucking. But this is, is what I was saying to you after I watched it. I was like, it's not bad. I'm mm. not entirely sure it's good. It's just there with. It's a film about a woman who has a really unhealthy attachment to removing people's genitalia. And knife waggling. The fucking the, the the stone on the foot thing is. In, oh, is, the knife waggling. When, when she sticks the knife in his back, a, and then yeah, starts yeah. waggling it's it like about, a car. It makes her calm. It's like, yeah. okay. <laughs> no, this doesn't. I, I, I admit, I tried it afterwards. I've got a knife on my back. Yep. <laughs> Thanks for. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm not going to ask for that. I don't think that was downloaded. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a practical. <laughs> no, no, no. It sounds like a practice effect. Is what that sounds like. 
Yeah. And on that well, bombshell. Yeah, uh, that's that's all for the secret bad Santa <laughs> films. Is there like a cult of Bickless Wonders in Korea that wanted to make? <laughs> but you what should actually fuck? read what people of the kind of highbrow critics oh, say yeah. about it, and it's just no, that makes no sense. It's it's just people letting their dicks cut off. Literally right, because I, I I picked up my notes yesterday to start doing stuff for the rest of the podcast. And I was like, oh, yeah, I watched Mobius. What was that about? And there's this big thing on my page that says, the dude ran, ran away with a dick. It's literally <laughs> like the top of my page. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, it was that. Why? Anyway, that, that's <laughs> all for the second part of this marvellously long podcast. Uh, up next is our first triple bill, where we're picking our three favourite films each. <laughs> So, episode 150, uh, and by the length of this one, 151 and 152 as well. <laughs> um, we're, we're on to our triple, triple bill, triple bills now, and we're starting off with our favourite three films. Um, Matt, why don't you start us off with your favourite three films? Okay. Um, so, this was quite easy for me, because my favourite three films have been static on the list for, for quite some time. So, I'll go... In order starting, I say worse to best, but all three of them are brilliant, so it doesn't really matter. But typically speaking, I put number three as American History X. So uh, the film um, is something I'd been familiar with by reputation a long time before I saw it. Uh, it's almost like there's a, a scene amongst certain people for, for neo-Nazi films, whatever, whichever side of the fence you happen to fall upon. Uh, but it makes it quite a fascinating subject matter in itself. But American History X comes with a degree of pedigree. Uh, it stars Ed Norton, Edward Furlong, and has a strong supporting cast with Beverly D'Angelo, Ethan Stupley, and Feruza Balk, I think that's how you pronounce her name, who's got a particularly strong resume of playing nutters in films. So, all good stuff there. Um, the film's directed by Tony Kane, who doesn't seem to have a particularly large body of work, and I must admit, I don't think I've seen any of his other stuff other than American History X. But that in itself makes it a little bit more special, I think. Um, the film chronicles the rise and fall of wannabe Nazi Derek Vineyard, who's played by Ed Norton, and he strays from the tracks uh, not long after his father is murdered whilst firefighting in a black neighbourhood. Um, Derek's father had already planted seeds of doubt in his head about the social effect of the black populace and if, uh, this is even before Derek turns from a, a grade A nerd to a muscle bound racial hate ward as he does in the movie and which is one of the most phys- impressive physical transformations I think I've ever seen in films he, he becomes absolutely massive hulked up in the film if you've seen it um, the sadder aspect of the movie is him dragging his idolising younger brother Danny, who's played by Ed Furlong, into the life with him. Um, the film's predominantly told through the eyes of Danny, who narrates a piece of homework he's writing for his black history teacher on how racial conflicts affected his and his family's life. Uh, Danny sees all the wrongs that are going on, um, but seems predetermined to follow Derek into a hateful life, um, a progression that's further ensured when... Derek disturbs a gang of black burglars about to steal his car in the middle of the night. 
Uh, and what ensues with that particular scene is perhaps the most iconic part of the movie itself, where Derek murders the uh, gangbanger and is going to prison, thus becoming an idol for the neo-Nazi community in their neighbourhood. Um, the second half of the film chronicles Derek's rehabilitation, finding the right path again as he quickly realises in prison that everything is done is hurting him and his family and will ultimately end up destroying his younger brother Danny. He spends the next several years in prison readjusting his philosophies so he can set things right when ultimately he leaves prison. Upon getting out, he severs ties with the gang he was in and tries to put Danny on the straight and narrow again. However, the culmination of the movie ends in tragedy just as the previous wrongs have been corrected. Their paths end up catching up with them and Danny is unfortunately murdered in another uh, race-related piece of violence, um, which is incredibly sad. Um, the first time I watched this, I thought it was incredibly hard-hitting and really highlights the pointlessness of racial hatred and the damaging effect it has on communities. Um, it immediately became one of my all-time favourite films, and I, I must admit it stayed there ever since, and is very unlikely to leave my top three, I think. Um, I've recommended it as a first time even to lots of people and everyone who watches it comes back with the same or very similar verdict to what I have um, it's still averaging a very high 8.6 score on IMDb and still very high on their top 250 so it's an absolute must watch in my opinion if you haven't seen it it should be available at enough reputable sources now for you to be able to watch it for free and Brooker, I think you've got something you'd like to say it about is, this one it, as well. It easily sits. It's been the uh, same as you. I think the first time I, I think the first time I watched it, actually, I went to the cinema to see it. I found the only cinema in Northampton that was showing it, uh, and it was a little flea pit in the middle of the town because what was then the Virgin refused to show it. Uh, yeah, the second I came out of it, it was all, one of my all-time favourite films. It's it's on my list for tonight as well. It's probably my number two film. It. It's the first film, I mean, it came out in 98, didn't it? So I was 16 or 17 when it came out. And it's the first film I remember not being Bambi that made me absolutely ball at the end of it. It's so upsetting at the end. Yeah, it is. It's, absolutely, it's, it's heart-wrenchingly gutting at the end of that film. And it's just, I mean, Eddie Norton got a, an Oscar nom for it, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And... Yeah. Unfortunately, I think it's, t it's one of those movies that's just too too dark to win an Oscar ever. Uh, but I think he absolutely deserved the nom and, and would have deserved a win. I, it made Edward Norton one of my favourite actors instantly. The only thing I'd seen Edward Furlong in up to that point was Terminator 2. Uh, so it was kind of a massive shift from moany twat teenager to... Kit, this really well acted role of the kid that idolizes his brother, no matter what his brother says or what his brother does, it's everything he can do no wrong. Uh, it's really, it's very, very well written because I, I remember reading when it came out because uh, Tony Kane and it, the guy that made it, didn't want his name on the credits when it came out. He, I don't know if he was ashamed of it or. He just took a lot of flack for it. Because a lot of people misunderstood it and thought it was just a Nazi movie. Uh, and he want, I think he wanted to change his name, didn't he? He wanted to put Humpty Dumpty on the credits. Oh, right, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, it's one of the few things I always always remember about because there's a there's a fake name, isn't there, that they use in the states for for directors if they don't want their name on it. But they he wasn't allowed to use that for some reason. I don't remember why. Uh, but yeah, this this film kind of what looks like on the surface is just just going to be a movie about white guys that hate black guys. Turns out to be this really poignant film about how not everything you think is right is always right. <clears throat> I uh, yeah, it's easily my second favorite film of all time, and I don't see anything topping it. Yeah. I don't see anything knocking it off my top three ever. Yeah, it's pretty solid and cemented itself in in my top three for the foreseeable future. Anyway, it's been there it for was, years. It was weird for me as well because like, when I watched it, I was I was quite young and like. Like I say, Edward Furlong was just the dude from Terminator 2, and his teacher was just the dude from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> you know, I didn't know these people were actually proper actors, do you know what I mean? And it's suddenly <laughs> all these people that I've just randomly watched on TV and given no thought to uh, have suddenly become, wow, I need to pay attention to everything they do. And it was one of those films that really knocked me into wanting to watch pretty much everything I could get my hands on. I, yeah, it, it kind of, it was near there at the start of my loving film. I only came to it quite recently. I mean, maybe three years ago, probably three or four years ago. And I mean, I thought it was very good. It didn't really have like um, the impression on me that it seems to have had with you two. But I guess if you saw it first time when there was nothing else like it and it was just so completely amazing to see something like that in a cinema, I guess. It probably has more of an impact, but it's, it's still a very good film all the same. My relationship with this is almost identical to, to yours and, and maybe even Matt's that I came to this really late as well, probably three years ago. And yeah, it, when I saw it, totally blew me away. Really, mm. really loved it. Okay, I'll move on to my second one then. I think we all I think we universally like American, American History X, which is good. Uh, number two is Godfather Part Two. Uh, it's difficult to know where to begin here and, and, and do it the appropriate amount of justice, but it's the sequel to one of the most universally acclaimed films of all time, yet somehow manages to arguably be better than the first one. Um, in my opinion, it's the best sequel ever made. Now, you know, we, we can throw up the task whether Empire Strikes Back is the best sequel. <laughs> no, Something no, like that. Can't. And, and, no, and it's, it's, all, it's all a fair debate. It's a great film in its own right, and I think Empire is better than the first Star Wars, but I digress anyway. So the film reunites the previous cast, minus Marlon Brando and James Caan, who die in the first installment. Spoiler alert. But the film details how the Corleone family begins expanding under the leadership of Michael, who's played by Al Pacino. And while simultaneously flashbacking to the 1920s, showing a young Vito Corleone's rise to prominence after he flees his native Sicily as a child, um, the strength of both Godfather movies, and notice how I say both and not including the third in that one, <clears throat> is the, the extraordinary writing of the characters sourced from Mario Puzo's original novel, the delivery of even simple lines is hard-hitting and as cold as can be. There's almost no room for anything other than business, even when they're dealing with their own family members in the film. It gives 
what in my opinion from all the films that I can remember seeing the strongest representation of what the life of crime can be like and the dangers it represents to ordinary people who stray into that world De Niro himself is incredibly cool as the young uh, Vito Corleone and he was uh, nominated and did win best supporting actor I do believe for this one so it just goes to show what a good performance that was and what isn't the main performance of the movie um, but it's Michael Corleone's performance from Al Pacino that absolutely steals the show in my opinion and he probably holds the most fierce stare just that constant eyeballing of any character I can think of in, in any film that I've seen it's absolutely astonishing that he didn't manage to win an Academy Award for either <coughs> those first two performances as The Godfather but the film did win a huge amount of uh, Academy Awards. It won Best Picture, it won Best Director, Supporting Actors, we've already said, Best Writing Screenplay, Best Art Set Direction, and Best Music. So it, it was a universally celebrated achievement um, and will go down easily as one of the best films of all time. Still sits at number three in the IMDb Top 250 with a a 9.0 average score, so whoever voted on the 10s out of their fucking mind, if you ask me, but Godfather 2, in tandem with the first one, is the perfect viewing for a long weekend like we've got coming up now for Easter. It's something that you can even watch back-to-back or split it over two nights, and it's just so good. Such an interesting world to get lost in, and I watch it pretty much every time it's on TV no matter what time I'm supposed to be into bed or what I'm doing the next day, it doesn't matter. You have to watch it. You have to pay it. It's due respect. And I'll never get bored of watching either Godfather movie. Absolutely superb. Is it close for you then between which one you would have had in your favourites or is Godfather 2 just clearly for you I think, the better film? I think Godfather 2 is shoes into the, the second one just because of its gravitas overall, I think. And... I'm always conscious of the fact that if it's a recent film that I'm perhaps overrating it ever so slightly, like American History X isn't that old, so it's still very fresh in the memory. So I do wonder, well, if this is one of the best films I've just seen recently or does it really sit in my all-time list? I saw The Godfather reasonably young, so quite a long time ago, and I've watched it many times since, and it's no less enjoyable now as it was then. So I think based upon everything the films achieve over the years, particularly as at least the first two parts of a trilogy, it sits in at number two undisputedly, but that's certainly not any uh, flack on American History X whatsoever. Any of you guys actually seen Godfather 2 or rate it particularly highly? Yeah, absolutely. A 10 out of 10 film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wasn't it? It was what the until the third Lord of the Rings film it was the only sequel to ever win best film, wasn't it? Didn't know that either. That's, that's a nice statistic. I drop in the uh, trivia bumps yeah, tonight. Yeah. Like a doctor. I could have used those on the feckin' quiz. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of assume that if, you, if you're listening to or contribute to a film podcast, that it's, it's pretty much a given that you've seen pretty much everything we're going to be talking about. But Matt. Including Mobius, so if you haven't watched it, Including go watch it now. <laughs> Matt, come on, Brando impression. 
You guys to read the funny papers. <laughs> Why was he a zombie at the start of that impression? <laughs> That, that, tell you what, mate, that was fucking decent. I thought it was. Uh, good. It was good. Yeah. Anyway, so number one. Ugh. It's been my number one film. So Shut it's up, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> um, just a little bit of background on why I like Fight Club so much. Um, it was the first film I really came to love after my fascination with cinema began when it was released in late 1999 I'd just started working for a cinema chain's contact centre and distinctly remember Fight Club being heavily touted in Empire magazine at the time which is something I hadn't read before I started working there as their pick of the bunch for the film of that year so it was brought to my attention and I, I looked out for it very keenly and I'm glad to say they weren't wrong in, in picking it I had to wait until it came out on DVD, though, to find out firsthand how good it was, because I was a little bit too young to see it at the cinema at the time. This is a shame. Um, but the original DVD release, me and Brooker spoke about this the last time we were on, and I still own it to this day. Uh, it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful sleeve with a, a print mocking a brown paper package stamped with a distinctive Fight Club logo, and I absolutely love that box, and I hope I'll, I never lose it, because it's, it's such a lovely collector's piece. That sits nicely on my uh, on my shelf actually. Next to a very nice Blu-ray steelbook that I got hold of recently as well. Oh, absolutely gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, it's a great one. So the film follows the story of technically the unnamed narrator of the film, but we'll refer to him as Jack, as he often refers to himself in the first person, kind of in the film. And he's an insomniac who's disenchanted with his life and wants to change from being an office worker drone to something more meaningful. He meets a flamboyant stranger on a flight who's Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt. And he befriends him. And eventually Jack ends up calling him for a shoulder to cry on when he arrives home and finds his partner's been destroyed in an explosion. Um, during the scene at a local bar, Jack's bemoaning to Tyler how close he was to achieving the perfect life in the eyes of conventional thinking. And Tyler advises him that he's actually in a rarer position to start from scratch and be whatever he wants to be, rather than sticking to a conventional life that society would try and place him into. The two then finish drinking and step outside the bar, and Tyler asks Jack to hit him as hard as he can in exchange for a, a place for him to stay the night. Thus begins the two of them embroiling in an awkward but quite enjoyable scrap and sets the wheels in motion for them starting their own underground fight club, hence the name of the film. However, the club's just a front for Tyler Durden's social experiments of building an army of obedient space monkeys that will do his bidding to bring down a, a collapse uh, or collapse the established order via Project Mayhem, as it's known in the movie. Um, this starts to build a strain on the relationship between Jack and Tyler, who slowly feels more detached and starts seeing through his bullshit bravado. But this culminates in a scene where um, we covered this in our favourite hand-to-hand combat scenes a couple of weeks ago, where Jack beats Project Mayhem member Angel Face to a bloody pulp disfiguring him beyond all recognition and going way beyond the mantra of the fighting for fun 
purpose of Fight Club, which is to enjoy themselves fighting rather than to really hurt and maim each other. Uh, the latter parts of the film see Jack falling out of Project Mayhem and trying to bring down their attempts to destroy the debt record of major financial institutions. There's a twist that I'm not going to go into, or you've all seen it, we know what it is, but for people who haven't, I would hate to spoil it for them, so I'm not going to go into that in detail. Um, but the film's dotted with lots of little treats that reward you for watching it repeatedly, such as the cigarette burns that pop up in the top corner of the screen and the spliced uh, cells and sex movies that Tyler puts in during his projectionist career. And just spotting where you could have picked up on the twist in the film at the earliest opportunity is a little bit fun in repeat watches as well. It's got a really good supporting cast. Um, it's got a, a gritty soundtrack by the Dust Brothers, who I hadn't really known anything about prior to this, other than they kind of fucked up the Chemical Brothers' original shindig because they were called the Dust Brothers at first, but there was two of them going at the same time. So actually hearing their stuff in the film was kind of cool, and, and it, their music really suits the tone of the movie. And it's just such a great notch to David Finch's array of projects that he's done he's quickly becoming one of my favorite directors he's done so many good things now uh, this being one of his best and earliest projects but for me fight club is my go-to movie for a rainy day I, I never get bored of watching it and i just love the absurdity of the tyler Durden character and the the bumbling disarray of ed norton's hapless jackal narrator character is an absolute joy to watch, in my opinion. In my head, it's probably my defining movie of the DVD era. It's one of the first DVD films I own, and it's probably the one I've watched the most out of everything in my collection. And to be honest, I can't find anything I want to particularly critique about it. I'm not, I dare not say it's perfect, but it's as close to perfect as I can think of. Um, Brooker, what's your thoughts on the film? Yeah, see, this, uh, like we we talked about it the other week, it's absolutely my, my top film of all time. And a lot of it actually is because of, like, American History X. I just got into to film and got into the cinema a lot with American History X. And <clears throat> I remember seeing, I think uh, this film, I think it was being advertised in, or getting a real big push in, like, Empire or Total Film or something like that. And one of them came with the novel in the packet, and I had it at work, and I was bored, so I started reading the novel. And literally, the novel, you'll finish in a couple of hours. It's tiny. Uh, and I had no interest in the film whatsoever until I finished reading the book. And I was like, actually, that could be really, really cool. I'll give it a go. It turned into the first film I ever went to the cinema more than once to see. Remembering I was only like 17 when it came out, and I went to see this 18-rated film like four times at the cinema. I've... Yeah, it's my all-time 100% favorite film. It won't, as far as I'm concerned, it will never be beaten. If you, you know, and like you, it's my sick day, rainy day, Wednesday. I, I'll watch Fight Club any day, just because it's Fight Club. And it's got such a fantastic. It's the more you watch it, especially now, and I, it's quite interesting, kind of working where I work because I, I see a lot of the kind of stuff they talk about in Fight Club with the people I work with, well, the people, the children I work with, <laughs> arseholes. I, I love <laughs> the students where I work. You work in a nursery, don't you? I do. And they're all little fucks. 
No. <laughs> I, I, I work in a secondary school. But what's quite interesting is like you watch Fight Club and you see how it takes a really satirical look on even back in late 90s how everything was material. And, you know, you had to have the, the nicest and shiniest and newest everything. It actually makes it more poignant now. It's 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 more of an important film to look at now with the way things go and the way technology moves and the way everybody insists on having the newest and shiniest and, and best thing. It still is as important now as it was back then. Yeah, I would agree totally. It, it seems to be more relevant as time goes by, which you probably wouldn't have thought at the time, because no. it, it's such a, a product of the period of time it was made in. But it, yeah, it's, a, it's such an interesting film that you can watch it, and it can be dependent on your mood. It can be a really dark, satirical look at society, or it can be just a decent black comedy. Like you can laugh your way through the entire film, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what. And I, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the dude's surname because I can't, the dude that wrote it. Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk. Yeah, Chucky P. Mm-hmm. What he's going to be from here on out, because he's doing a graphic novel for Fight Club 2, isn't he? Oh, okay. And refusing, and refusing to call uh, the narrator Jack. Okay. At blatantly refusing because it was the film that kind of pushed for the narrator to be called Jack, so he's calling him Cornelius. Ah, oh, well, that, that works even better. It does a bit. I read that. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll let you have that. Yeah, that's all right. So yeah, I'm quite looking forward to that and seeing what they do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That works. Yeah. Okay, so that's my top three. And two of mine. Next. And and, and, yeah, sorry about that, mate. (laughs) Now you're right. We may as well we may as well have Brooke go next and then just tell us what his one film that's left is. My one film that's left. My number three uh, is was tough. I have to admit, I kind of I I looked at. The ones I always give as a top five, what would I call number three? I think number three for me would be a bit <coughs> out there, and I'd call it Training Day. Good film. Nice. Yeah. Uh, absolutely spectacular film. A uh, film about a not quite rookie, but rookie cop slash detective uh, jumping into a, a day of uh, training, like an interview day, if you like, with a special squad. Uh, anti-drug squad who run by Denzel Washington uh, who who very cleverly spends the entire day kind of setting up everything for this big kind of cash payout at the end of the day uh, where he's, he's going to screw over absolutely everybody and he's going to take his payment and I'd, he has to pay uh, mob bosses it's a completely separate story it means nothing who who he's paying it means less than nothing in the film but it's just the way he's he's so he does it so cleverly and he kind of manipulates everybody around him uh and it's the first film i think i really enjoyed watching ethan hawk in ethan hawk plays the rookie detective and because I, I never really i wasn't particularly into anything ethan hawk had done up to that point i didn't particularly like things like gattaca i thought they were garbage uh so yeah, went into Training Day, and the only reason I watched Training Day was the director, the Antoine Fuqua, whose only film up to that point I'd seen was the really, really shit Replacement Killers. <laughs> but for some reason, I really enjoyed the Replacement Killers for what it was, just dumb action film with Chow Yun-Fat. 
And it's all right, the replacement killers. It's not too bad. It's, uh, I enjoyed it. It was a, it was just a silly action flick. Uh, yeah. You know, it was never going to win Oscars. It was just a silly action film. But I I don't even know why I watched it. It just happened to appear one day, and I I just sat and watched it. Well, that wasn't too bad. And I kind of I discovered that the guy that made that was the guy that was making Training Day. So I went on. I, I went to watch it just on for no other reason than that. Uh, and absolutely fell in love with it. And I remember walking out going, if this was anything but a cop film, if this was anything but some silly rogue policeman film, Denzel Washington would absolutely walk out of that with an Oscar. And then, you know, lo and behold, a couple months later, he gets an Oscar for it. And I think that really solidified it for me, just how good that film was. Someone looked past the fact that it was a rogue cop movie and gave this dude the 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 Oscar that he deserved for that role. And he was absolutely brilliant in it. Every single line that he delivers is so, so fierce. He's absolutely amazing all the way through. And Antoine Fuqua actually has, has quickly turned into one of my favourite directors. You know, for, for better or worse, I suppose. <laughs> I, I, I like the, the silly stuff like The Shooter and The Equaliser I really enjoyed. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to Southpaw when it comes out later on in the year. Yes. Definitely, yeah. Uh, and actually, because well, it was written by David Ayer, who is absolutely one of my favourite directors of all time at the moment. I I can't fault anything that guy's done, whether he's written it or directed it. So everything about Training Day, the, the, the performances, the writing, the direction, everything about it, it's just... It's... Like Matt said about Fight Club, can't say perfect. It's not. But it's close to it. Training Day's got one of the most oh my god moments I can remember seeing in films in the last few years and I think you probably know which which scene I'm on about where Ethan Hawke's being sort of interrogated by the, I think the Mexican brothers and that they find the girl's uh, like yeah. bag or phone or something on him and yeah. he's got to try and explain his way out and he's like oh <laughs> shit yeah. so you just like sink into your seat and just want to die. Oh I saw God. it at the cinema and I remember cowering watching it, going, "Oh, fuck, dude, you're fucked." <laughs> I just remember looking at it, going, "Oh, dude, you you've got no chance." And he was so the the whole that whole scene actually was electric. I I loved it. Yeah, and that, incredible. The, the scene in the caf restaurant with the other police guys. I can't help myself. It's the stupidest scene ever. It's the stupidest scene to stick in your head. I piss myself every time at the fucking peanut butter story. Every single time, <laughs> I laugh my ass off like a little kid. It's just, it's an amazing, amazing film. I'm going to have to go back and watch that again. I've not seen it for quite a long time. But but it's got, such a, it's got such a bizarre supporting cast. Where like you've got like Scott Glenn who is absolutely brilliant in it, and has got like this uh, really, really cool role as this old-school kind of respect people and they respect you kind of drug dealer, you know, who's got his own plan to to retire. You've got like, people like Tom Berrin during that time, but you've got like fucking Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogger in it. Snoop Dogg in a wheelchair. <laughs> well, I could, what, more, I could, what more could you want? Snoop Dogg in a wheelchair swallowing bags of heroin. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think Brooke has now brought his list to a close. I have, um, pretty much. I'm going to rattle through mine quickly. So, 
I have to pick your fa- three favourite films. I know full well before reeling off these films that there are better films around than these. These are not the best films of all time. These are not what I think are the best films of all time. In fact, probably all the six, the, sorry, not six, the four films mentioned previously in this are better films than the ones I'm going to mention. But they are, the title of the triple bill was the favourite films. There's a vast difference between your favourite films and best films. These films I'm thinking could watch over and over and over again and wouldn't get tired of them. Whereas some of the best films, or what I think are the best films, you could probably get tired of watching. They're a bit too heavy or a bit too involved or something, and you wouldn't watch them repeatedly. Anyone agree on that? The difference Amen, between brother, favorite you. and best. Yeah. Okay. If we're, so, if we're doing it by purely like for fun factor, and and my three could be either of those, but Predator is probably one of those. Like, it's so mm-hmm. fun. I have to watch it every time it's on TV. Kind of movies, but anyway. So, yeah, I think we all know what you mean, though, Steve. The, yeah. The difference between a best and a favorite is um, it's quite clear, I think. So I've gone for uh, my first one is Star Wars, the first ever one that was released back in 1977. Uh, I think Empire is the best of Star Wars film, the best one out of the lot, but the it's it's not kind of self-contained, the storyline. It, it opens up, you know, leaves open mm. to this final film, whereas A New Hope is quite self-contained. You can see the start and indeed the finish of that film, you know, and, and if they just ended it there, that would have been a perfectly good ending but it's just this get i hadn't seen anything like that in, in cinema before I saw it for the first time when they re-released them all just prior to the prequels coming out can i can i just show my age here i saw this theatrically first time round many, many <laughs> times but i expect so you'd seen nothing like it in the cinema when it came no, out had you? No, when, it, when it came out you've got to remember i was six or seven years old I, I lived literally just up the road in the in the main kind of high street in Hastings from the cinema. I used to go on my own, and it totally blew me away. There was nothing else like it, and it just took over my life. So yeah, no, it, on, dude. I mean, it is just fantastic. It's got anything you kind of want from that kind of film, like a space adventure. So you've got you know space battles, spaceships, aliens, really cool settings, really you know fun. Some of them are having it up a bit, especially Harrison Ford, but, you know, really just fun performances and, and good characters, and it's just fantastically good fun. Um, as are the other two films that followed it, and some of Revenge of the Sith, um, and hopefully all of The Force Awakens, but that's uh, something that we'll have to wait for, and a, yeah, podcast, on a podcast I might ban Owen from. <laughs> because Owen yeah. hates Star Wars. Yeah, I don't know if anyone who's yeah. listened to the last 149 podcasts has heard this before, but I no. I was used to them. On news. Oh, do yeah. you hate Star Wars, Owen? All right, uh, me too. Uh, uh, <laughs> Owen also hates yeah. fun. Fun Star Wars rainbows. Uh, he hates masturbating. He hates drugs. He hates Owen's basically plankton out SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, why not? I uh, know. I mean, Star. I kind of like. I, I I I match it to stuff like Monty Python in that I don't like it, but I am glad that it exists because without it, we wouldn't have had the things that followed it. If you see what I mean. E- so, even the vicar at your local church told me you're a wanker. 
<laughs> yeah, that's me. And he meant it. <laughs> I did it all wrong with, with Star Wars. I saw Empire and Jedi before the first one. And I like Star Wars, but I, I can't have the kind of like severe love for it that people who saw it first time around have because compared to the other two, it's, it's pretty basic as far as like sci-fi adventures go. But it, yeah, it's, it's just a, a classic and has an important role to play in, in cinema in general. It does because of what it what it did. You know, at the time, movies like that weren't taken seriously, and then Star Wars came along and it was a phenomenon. You know, obviously I wasn't there for what was, but phenomenon, phenomenon, that one. We, 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 had a, we, had a second, we had a second run cinema in Hastings, so we had the, the kind of the main, the classic, we yeah. used to queue up and pay to get in, and then once films had kind of fallen off the radar, they used to play at this place called the Orion, and I remember, it, and locally it was called the Flea Pit, and uh, I remember back in, this is like 1977 on its second run, going in there, watching it, and bearing in mind it had a supporting feature in advance, on my own, hiding in the toilet, and coming back out, back into the auditorium and watching it again. My parents <laughs> must have been like, I would have been gone for like eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Different times. Uh, Dif- you wouldn't get a Star Wars these days, I don't think. Films are too big. You know, for something like Star Wars to exist would be... You know, unimaginable, though. We've got Guardians. Yeah, but it's kind of... What I mean is, like, the the fact that Guardians exist because Marvel Film Studios exist, you know. Okay. And it's 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 the same in terms of how fun it is and the impact it has on, like, the people who watch it. But the thing but, with Guardians was it's a massive risk because it's not like it's starring Iron Man or going to have a guest appearance by Thor. It is a completely new thing. Whether yeah. or not it's part of the MCU, it's a completely new film that Marvel know. clearly took a risk with. I'd it's never a risk for... of it at all before it came out. Oh, come yeah. on, Star Wars was... But there was nothing. Exactly, but, yeah. So to say, know. you know, cause to compare Guardians, which, which does have the Marvel Universe to fall back on, Star Wars had nothing to fall back on. Came from nothing, Absolutely yeah. Absolutely I mean, basically... out of nowhere. If you were was... a seven-year-old boy back then, trust me, you would have been bedwettingly excited. <laughs> yeah. Because there was no precedent for it. No. You know, now we compare films to Star Wars because Star Wars was the first, you know. So the, the, there isn't really an equivalent, particularly not within the genre. You can have films that are better than it. You can have films that you enjoy more and are similar themes and etc. etc. But, you know, for what it did, it, it, you, can't, you can't have that anymore. No, there was think. no online booking back then. I remember the queues out the cinema door all the way up the street, all the way around the... It was just... It was just... You know, I've never seen anything like it since or, or will we ever again. Yeah. It turned B-movies into A-movies, basically. Yeah, absolutely. That's what, that's what it did. And, you know, Guardians... I love Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, I'm not a massive fan of Star Wars as a film. But, yeah, I don't know. I think the, the comparison's a little bit skewed because... It was the well, first time that the, the toys arrived as well. There's nothing before the there with the merchandise, you know, and, and we were, you know, dirt poor, so we couldn't afford to have uh, a Millennium Falcon. But when you went round to your mate's house and he had this, like, huge plastic Millennium Falcon, which probably cost, you know, in today's money, like 100 quid or whatever, it was just like, oh, my God. And the mm. X-Wing, you pressed the button and the wings popped out. It was, yeah, it was amazing times. Yeah. 
I don't know what's going on here. We must have had too much to drink because here I am defending Star Wars and Steve's gone quiet. <laughs> this is a first. Well, no well, Star Wars, episodes. no space balls. So that's, that's <laughs> as important as it gets to me. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm converted. Next film on my list is Shaun of the Dead. Probably my favourite comedy. Um, pretty close run thing between that and Dumb and Dumber, a favourite comedy of mine. Um, I thought I'd put one comedy in this in this list. I went for that one. Um, stars Simon Pegg, um, written by Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, about just your kind of everyman called Sean, obviously as the title will suggest, who ends up being involved in the end of the world zombie apocalypse. And him, his friend, his girlfriend, and a, and a group of <coughs> people trying to survive by basically going to the pub. Um, first in the Cornetto trilogy, and just funny throughout, not just in, in taking the mick out of that genre of film, but just, you know, being funny. Anyway, if you like Spaced, you'd like, like this kind of film. I mean, there's some people who aren't going to get the humour or like the humour, but it's, it is just mm. funny from, from start to finish. I, I'm, I'm the Owen of this, this particular film. I'm not a fan at all of, of Shaun of the Dead. I think I laughed, I laughed at one point which was the the bit near the beginning where they do the Duran Duran. I thought that was kind of funny. I thought that was Grandmaster Flash and and White Lines, but... Oh, yeah, no, you beg your pardon, you are right. They did do a a duet with Duran Duran, but anyway, I digress, but yeah. (laughs) It's not for me. I don't like Simon Pegg's kind of humour, but I appreciate why lots of people find it funny, though. Yeah, and it might not be a trilogy anymore. I think they're doing another one. I oh, know, I thought they were knocking it on the end after the third one. That was the plan. That was the plan. But there's lots of, like, um, interview quotes out there from Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright and Nick Frost all saying that they'll get together for another one. They're, they're so they name it after one of those poncy new flavour cornettos, aren't they? Exactly. They've done the standard ones. Yeah. I don't know what it would be. I, I saw the new Simon Pegg film this week. Trust me, he needs the money. What was the new one? Uh, the one where he's a hitman, kill me three times. Oh, no. Was it bad? Yeah, I mean, it was passable, but, you know, it wasn't great. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Together, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg, hilarious. Separate, not so good. I don't know why that is. And finally, my last film, obviously, finally, in my triple bill of favourite films, is Die Hard. Just the epitome of good, fun, action film. Plot that makes sense, but isn't really too involved in that overall film. One man, every man, he's not like some really hench, body-built person like Schwarzenegger, uh, or like ridiculously kind of, a ridiculous kind of hard man. He's just a normal man who gets stuck in a situation that he doesn't want to be in, and ends up winning. At Christmas. Yeah, at Christmas, Owen, <laughs> by killing lots of bad guys. Yeah. Uh, and wearing those shoes. <laughs> yeah. I oh, know, it's a great film. Very good. Can you I'd... edit some Christmas music into the background at this point, Owen? 
Oh, man, I'm not going to remember that. He could, but he won't. Thanks, Paul. Carry on. Just carry on doing that for a bit. So, yeah, it's, a, it's probably the godfather of action films along with the lethal weapon. Is that worth it? I could keep it up, sorry. Anyway, that's all for my triple bill. Owen, what's your favourite three? Or something Korean, I imagine. <laughs> no, um, I've got. I kind of feel like with like our favorite films and stuff. You and me, Steve, we've talked about them a lot. I mean, the ones I've got listed on the website are 2001: The Space Odyssey, Passion of Joan of Arc, Jurassic Park, and Predator. Films I've talked about to death on the podcast. Um, so I'm just picking my favourite of those five, and I'm doing something slightly different with the other two as my favourite films. Well, we ain't got all nine. Um, wait, wait, so you've got a favourite seven? I've got a favourite seven, how about 20 that? To, it's 20 to 1, Owen. Come on, just to pick three. And then... <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Steve's almost had it. This is only the first of three triple bills as well. Do you, well, you realise that? <laughs> <laughs> what are we this thinking? Fucking, this fucking right, I'll still be standing up and get the kid up. Oh, uh, no, yeah, it's literally going to have no sleep. Right. So, yeah, okay, I'll I'll try and speed it up a bit. I'm going to run out of drink. I'm just going <laughs> to put that out there. I've run right. out of drink. I'm waiting for the next break to go get another beer. No, I've <laughs> okay, I'll be, I'll be quick. I'll no be quick. more in the house. Oh, fucking hell. Like, so uh. There might be some sherry. <laughs> right, Not in the living dead. Before, before Paul has to drink his own piss. <laughs> not in the living dead, not in 68. George A. Romero... Is my favourite film of all time. Um, you know, simply the story is just of five adults and one kid who are trapped in a farmhouse in the middle of Pennsylvania. And you've got the shuffling, walking, living dead who begin to rise and, and sort of attack them and they're not sure why. I'm not sure at what point it became my favourite film, actually. Because the first time I ever saw it was when it was on TV on some like sort of obscure Sky Channel. Uh, maybe around sort of 2008 or 2009, I think I first saw it. And it had a really horrible, grainy picture quality, kind of muffled, almost inaudible sound quality as well. And I just thought it was shit. I thought it was terrible. There was zombies smashing car headlamps while some idiots hide out in a farm. In a, You know, it just... Yeah, it, I wasn't impressed with it. I thought it was really bad, and I couldn't believe it was the same director who made the amazing Dawn of the Dead, which had like utterly terrified me when I saw it as a as a kid. When I saw it when I was younger, which I thought was just, it, I thought Dawn of the Dead was the best zombie film. I thought it would never be topped. Um, and kind of to be fair to my opinion back then, Night of the Living Dead is a very cheaply made B movie horror film. Uh, created by a director as well, who at the time, his only experience prior to, to making Night of the Living Dead was making TV adverts. He wasn't an experienced filmmaker. Um, and it's got a very amateur nature about it as well, definitely. However, I gave it a, another go about a year later, I think, and um, somehow I kind of got it on a rewatch. I liked it quite a bit, actually. I, I quite like, quite enjoyed it, Quite quite liked it. And then I watched it again another time after that when I think it was on TV again. And, and then I just realised I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Everything about it suddenly made a lot more sense. I got the point of it. And I've probably seen it about seven or eight times since. And with each watch, it's just gotten better and better and better to the point that it probably is my favourite film of all time now. 
Um, you know, I think George A. Romero's made some great films, not least of all, of course, his, his Dead trilogy. And it's some quite, sometimes quite hard picking between Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and D- Day of the Dead, as to which is probably my sort of personal favourite. And it almost does depend, really, on which one I've seen the most recently. But if push came to shove, I'd say Night of the Living Dead, which, uh, as I say, was his debut film, is is his masterpiece. You know, it's culturally significant. I think I've mentioned before as well, it's, it was racially quite significant as well, because for the time, to have a black guy as your lead actor was pretty pretty radical. Um, and, you know, the time period it set as well, it's quite allegorical about the Vietnam War with the dead returning to life, which are like, you know, returning vets and how the public are almost frightened or terrified of them. And I just think it was very clever. And... Um, you know, on top of this, it changed what zombies were. It changed zombies from being these voodoo-cursed Caribbean plantation workers from films like White Zombie or Revolt of the Zombie made 20 years earlier, 20, 30 years earlier, turned them into these new creatures without, without even meaning to, without even saying um, zombies. The word zombie is not mentioned at all. Without even doing any of that, it spawned a brand new subgenre for, for zombie films on its own. And without Night of the Living Dead, there'd be no, you know, Walking Dead is a massive success at the moment. There'd be no people, no directors like John Carpenter or Wes Craven, perhaps. Probably no people like even Wilson Yip or Peter Jackson or anyone else who's benefited from, you know, the exploitation or splatter genre or the creation of the zombie creature, as we know. Or, it's, you know, at the very least, we wouldn't know those directors in quite the same way as we know them today. Um, so, yeah, so it's awesome. It's, it is quite scary. It's quite creepy. Definitely creeped out my younger brother when I forced him to watch it one one year for Halloween. He came and stayed over when he was about sort of fifteen, I think fourteen or fifteen, and I forced him into watching Night of the Living Dead, and it sort of creeped him out. So that's always like a good indicator if it can still have an effect on an audience these days, even though it was made, you know, nigh on sort of fifty years ago now. And, it, and it's um, films like that that have made me spend well, not yet, but have, have planned to put aside time. Partly because I haven't got the internet in my new flat, but to work out my zombie defence. Whoa, 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 flat. whoa, 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 go back. You haven't got the internet in your flat? No. How are you watching pornography? Um, <laughs> Old school. He's finding it in the bushes. bushes. <laughs> yeah. He's just making pornography instead. We, I mean, can we, can we have a whip round, send him some magazines? <laughs> no, there's a railway siding near me. I think it's still got that. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Owen, do you think there's much mileage left in the zombie genre, given how much it's been on TV and, and film? I was thinking about this quite recently. Yeah, I was quite. It's one of those things where zombies themselves are things that represent. They when they're used in the best possible way, they're used to represent things that are currently happening in the real world. You know, like. Um, it might not be the best film, but something like La Horde from France was obviously quite allegorical about the gang wars in Marseille and the crime level there. That's the second time you've used the word allegorical and you've supposedly had half a bottle of gin. And it's one in the morning. Yeah. Oh, dear. Quit it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Wordsmith. <laughs> yeah. Is that a bit? Oh, my God. <laughs> right. I'll try and be more... I'll dumb down. I'll dumb down. Know your audience. Can't dumb down any further. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you know, the, I think that, that going back to the question, that zombie films are better when they 
are about something happening in the real world. So, yes, I think there's plenty of mileage to the creature, as long as it's used correctly. But also, there is still, of course, room for films that are just flat-out fun and take the piss out of the zombie films. I watched The Battery quite recently, which was released, like, last year, I think. Yeah, I've seen that. The, the two baseball guys. The two baseball guys. And that's, you can't really say that story, Paul, allegorical about anything. It's just two guys in a zombie scenario, and it's kind of the thing people daydream about, isn't it? I daydream about it sometimes, you know, just when you've got... When you're just procrastinating at work and you just think about, oh, well, if the zombie outbreak happened there, where would I go, what would I do, kind of thing, you know. Can we, can we address the what? elephant in the room? The uh, what, what, Have you seen the trailer for Fear the Walking Dead? The new spin-off. Yeah. It's hardly a fucking trailer, is it? Oh, you know. But even well, even the the, the premise alone. Hmm. Are they are they milking it or? Uh yeah, definitely. But that's because I'm a fan of the comics. I'm a fan. I read the Walking Dead comics, so yeah, I, I think they're kind of milking it. But I think at the same time, if you look at how because they're setting it up as a prequel, aren't they? Mm-hmm. It looks mm. like a proper fuck you to the massive amount of anti-vaxxers in the States, mm. is what it looks like to me. It's very... I mean, The Walking Dead's a... Uh, it, I'm not going to say allegorical. I refuse to. <laughs> uh, but the, the, five times in one show. Allegorical. It's metaphorical, isn't it? It, it is. is. And, <laughs> and I think this is the kind of... Because The Walking Dead's always had that. It's always had that kind of political undertone, and I think they're trying something very, very similar with Fear the Walking Dead as a prequel and making it very much an anti-vax thing. Mm. I don't care, it's got Kim Dickens in it. I'll, <laughs> I'll fucking watch it anyway. Is, I don't she, care. is she the bird out of Gone Girl? No, she's the bird out of Deadwood and Hollow Man. Oh, okay. The bird, get you two from the safe. Elizabeth Shue. <laughs> Elizabeth, no, the, the other one from Hollow Man. The one that gets her tit groped in Hollow Man. Oh, right. Yeah. Steve, I'm, what other zombie films have you put aside then for your flat? Watching experience. Oh, I, don't, I, I just got a plan of what to do if it happens while I'm in the flat. I don't, I don't have to watch oh, films. you've got to rethink everything. Yeah, yeah, a different place. How uh, so quickly you can get to Paul Castle or whatever your plan was? It's, it's a castle or an island. Um, yeah, depending on what I feel like at the time, I suppose. Yeah, got to have a system. Yeah. To, uh, are you uh, are you flying solo in the new flat, or have you moved your young lady in? No, nah, just me. Respect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, Steve's the only one paying rent. Put it that way. <laughs> mortgage. Oh, no, mortgage. Sorry, mortgage. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I'll move on then because um, that's my first film. So I was trying to think what else I could choose uh, as like my favourite films, other than what's kind of listed already on the website and that I've talked about at length in in previous episodes of the podcast and I kind of realised that I don't really have favourite films so much anymore anyway there's films I kind of like more than others but it's difficult to pick films that I say are definitely above everything else I've seen all of the time um, so what Night of the Living Dead is pretty much the only one I would class as uh, in that in that situation I suppose so I thought well I've, I've talked about them in depth on the podcast before so fuck it I'm just going to pick a further two that aren't any of those four that's it. I'm just going to not pick those. So then I got thinking about a, a bit more about it, and I thought uh, a bit more about the kinds of films and actors that I've come to appreciate, perhaps, over the past three years, whilst writing and podcasting for Fail Critics, and people who are 
might not have really appreciated fully until relatively recently. So people I wasn't really, really a fan of until we started the podcast. And then I sort of realised, actually, there were two actors, well, there were kind of four actors who I've never really given any credence to until maybe three years ago or sooner. So two of them who I haven't chosen were Vincent Price, who I, I sort of became a massive fan of quite relatively recently, and Song Kang-ho, who is... I'm sure Paul will agree, one of the best actors around at the moment. Um, but I don't think I've really seen enough of their films to judge fully. So then I started to think who else I've seen. And the only other two I could think about, uh, really, are... Um, well, the first one, I'll, go, I'll do them in order. I'll reveal the first one first. Because the first film I'm picking, it's not so much a review of that film specifically, more as an explanation, but it's uh, the first film, Hard Target. Directed by John Woo, starring, of course, John Claude Van Damme. And I know I seem to go on about Van Damme. Oh, I've already mentioned him. Me Probably <laughs> <laughs> mentioned him on a hundred of the hundred and fifty episodes we recorded. But um, it genuinely wasn't until around August 2012 that I started to watch his films. Anyway, um, and if you want to know what sparked it, it was actually. Honest to God, going to see Expendables 2 for failed critics for the main oh, review nice. that week. And despite not having seen the first Expendables either, this was like me going to see it. Purely because I felt an obligation at the time. I don't want to fucking bother anymore. I'm not going to see fucking shit films like... I know Callum went to see but I haven't got any interest in seeing Spongebob. Whereas there was a time where I probably would have gone to see that for the sake of seeing a film for failed critics. But not anymore. But I went to see Expendables 2. And Van Damme plays the bad guy in that, called Villain. That's his name. And um, I thought his performance was great for, you know, that kind of film. Um, and realised that, aside from, like, seeing Bloodsport and Kickboxer so long ago that I couldn't remember them, and probably <laughs> never even saw them in their entirety, um, that I hadn't actually watched any of his films at that point. So then I went about um, on a year-long binge of his movies to the point that I've now seen 41 of the 45 or so feature films he's been in. And there's, like, countless movies that I could pick as my favourites since watching Expendables 2. Obviously, there's stuff like Universal Soldier and Time Cop, which were always very popular um, and were released kind of like at the peak of his popularity. I think you've got the two fighting tournaments films I've mentioned already, Kickboxer and Bloodsport, which were also just fantastic from early on in his career. And some of his best performances in stuff like Enemies Closer, Lionheart, Double Impact, um, and JTVD, his Belgian film where he's quite self-referential. But John Woo, I think, got the best out of him as a tough, no-nonsense, hard-as-nails, motorbike-surfing, pistol-firing, spinning-heel-kicking hobo in, uh, in Hard Target from 1993. And it was probably the film, when I was watching this binge of John claude Van Damme films, it was probably the one where I thought, it stood out, and I thought, yeah, this, is, this guy I fucking love, John claude Van Damme. He is up there now for me, with people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone as like, my favourite action film stars from, from the West. So, yeah, and The Hard Target is just fantastic, isn't it? It's just cheesy, it's, it's a very manly, film. over-the-top action film. Knocks out a fucking snake, for God's sake. He punches a snake and not doesn't kill it, just punches it so it's unconscious and uses it as a trap. Fucking amazing. So, yeah. Do you guys like John claude Van Damme? Well, I, I popped your mute and went to the loo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. 
yeah, uh, no, I love John Claude Van Damme, yeah. Okay, good. I do, well, yeah, that. I don't I'm, think I fuck it. Steve pops your mutant at a wank. <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen a, a Van Damme film I didn't like, and that includes Street Fighter, as bad as it is. Double uh, team. Him and fucking Dennis Rodman. Oh, One of the worst films I've ever I, seen. I remember the I remember the cover for that thinking, oh that's blue and green. What was the thing he was in where they're they're out in the woods on that kind of Our Target. Our Target. That's the one I just picked as my favourite. Put your mules in the loo. <laughs> Unbelievable. Right, you're going to have to listen back to the whole podcast now, just for that section. Absolutely. Just to catch up on where we are. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, whilst on the topic of sort of manly men, I suppose, the other actor that um, I've had an even bigger turnaround on, whilst being a member of Failed Critics... Uh, someone I really used to dislike in films, actually, but I had an epiphany and realised, actually, I kind of like him, and then grew to love the big uh, lunkhead, that's one of his favourite um, insults, is the Duke, John Wayne. And I kind of had a spate of watching his films from midway through 2013 onwards, and this is despite me and James at the time having a debate, in fact, we had a debate many, many times, about how I thought westerns were a bit crap, and he used to like them. And I thought, for the majority of westerns, they're dated, both in terms of the audience they were made for back then, not really being the same these days. And, you know, the messages behind the majority of the films were a bit antiquated and so on. And I'd seen a couple of John Wayne's films, like uh, Big Jake and The Searchers, and I didn't really like them. I thought, I don't really like these. I don't like John Wayne. John Wayne's not for me. However, it was kind of during a week off work when I just caught Rio Bravo on TV, and then Donovan's Reef was on, like, another channel. And I watched the two back-to-back, and I thought I quite liked them, actually. Perhaps I was being a bit too harsh. I then ended up powering through a load of his other films. And as well as that, at the same time, I got given a new surround sound system for my birthday that year. So I picked up a couple uh, of films quite cheaply on Blu-ray. Two of which were outstanding, and completely reversed my opinion on on John Wayne. First was uh, True Grit, from 1969, in which he played sort of the drunk, one-eyed... U.S. Marshal Wooster Cogburn, and he won an Oscar for that role as well. Would, although I think that was kind of more like um, a thanks, John Wayne, here's your Oscar you should have won years ago kind of award, um, rather than being him particularly Oscar-worthy in it. But anyway, I loved True Grit, and then I sort of loved John Wayne in it. And then as a result of that, I re-watched The Searchers from 1956, which was just the second time round. I thought it was just simply outstanding. And it's by far and away his most complex role and probably probably his best performance and, and his best film as well. I think it's better than his performance in Red River, better than The Quiet Man, better than The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, better than True Grit even, which I'd have already said I sort of thought he was very good in. So yeah, I kind of binged a load of his films. Uh, I'm nowhere completing his filmography. I've only got like four to go of Van Damme's, but John Wayne must have been in over 140 films. Yeah, he I think was I'm prolific. Yeah, he was, particularly in his, uh, the early part of his career, um, making all these sort of old 1930s Western films. Mate, my old man was a projectionist, don't forget. I, and my granddad, so okay. yeah. <laughs> so you, yeah, I was brought up on a diet of John Wayne. Yeah, so I mean, like, like I say, I came to him quite recently. My opinion of him changed quite recently. Um, and I've seen about 30 of his films, I reckon, in total. But it's, yes, the film he worked on with John Ford, The Searchers, that I think of all the ones I've watched, has yet to be topped. And it's actually very close anyway to being one of my favourite films of all time anyway. It might possibly even edge out something like uh, 
The Passion of Joan of Arc or maybe Jurassic Park from my top five list on the site even. It's just outstanding. Search is, is probably his most highly regarded film as well uh, from other critics. And I say other critics like I'm a fucking critic. I'm just a idiot on a podcast. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's outstanding. Search is, is one of the best films ever made. Okay. So there you go. Those are my three. Okay. Cool. I think you're rounding off this triple bill, aren't you? I am, yeah. I'm going to rattle through mine. Um, I, it's difficult because it's like doing favourite films. Mine have all kind of, um, are kind of built around a, a, you know, either an actor or a director who I really like who've got a sort of decent body of work or, you know, a really important issue. Um, my first one is, um, Paradise Lost which is a series of three documentaries by Joe Berlinger and uh, Bruce Sanofsky. I mean, do you all know the story of the, the West Memphis Three? Yeah. No. <laughs> I know the John Milton book, John Paradise Lost, but I don't know the uh, the story. Only from your reviews on the website. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just... I mean, following this story through these guys' films is just, you know, heartbreaking. You've got these three kind of kids, basically, um, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly, who um, are <laughs> arrested and tried for the murder of three children. Uh, and this is all the way back in 96, I think. And uh, these guys are making a documentary and, you know, about the trial, about the case, about the evidence. And I really don't think they knew you know, what they were letting themselves in for. Because these three guys end up spending the next, well, best part of 20 years in prison. And when you watch these films and you see, you know, how they were convicted, how the state of Arkansas is a fucking joke, uh, and you'll get, you know, you, you can't help but get caught up, get choked up. Um, <clears throat> you, you'll see the kind of blame portion to them and you'll be convinced that they did it you'll suddenly be in the next documentary convinced that there's no way they did it by the time the third one comes around and you realize it's 20 years down the line it it's just remarkable <clears throat> and for me it shows you know the power of, of documentary filmmaking I, I love documentaries but this one or these three you know really kind of stand alone in in in, in the power of documentary filmmaking um I mean, Owen, did you say you have seen it? I haven't. I've only, only read your reviews. Okay. Well, you know, they don't look great. They don't sound great. But, you know, it's very difficult not to kind of, um, you know, get caught up in their in their story. So I won't spend too much time on this one. But, yeah, no, if you if you guys haven't seen it, absolutely, you know, you should. Okay, I'm going to move on to my next one. Slightly controversial one here, and, and that's Clerks 2. <laughs> um, I'm assuming Better you have all seen this. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Kevin Smith, I mean, I saw Clerks, you know, back when it came out, again, because I'm fucking old. <laughs> and when you watch the kind of body of work that he, he built up before Clerks 2, and and I watched them again and again and again, and by the time you do get to Clerks 2, if you watched it as a standalone film, I totally get why you wouldn't like it, 
or you, you you know you would you would slate it but i absolutely loved it 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 had so many kind of referential jokes and callbacks that you know it, this was for me this was my film and i absolutely adored it i mean you guys you know if you're listening to a film podcast and you're contributing what what's your relationship with kevin smith it's hit and miss for me Cool. I, yeah, I I, I, used to... I don't like the odd joke in some of the films. Like I haven't seen all of them, um, but like stuff like James Silent Bob Strike Back. Some of it's funny, some of it's not. But then I actually really enjoyed like the Red State that he did fairly recently. I thought that was a little bit different and you know, veered away from straight comedy and was quite interesting. But I never know what I'm going to get when I, I watch one of his films. To be honest. Mm. Even his comedy is a bit hit and miss, isn't it? I, I mean, I, um, I adore the dude. <laughs> I really liked Clerks. I haven't seen it for a few years now, but I really used to love Clerks, the first one, and Dogma. I still think is a fantastic film, probably his best, I reckon. But yeah, I don't know. Some of them, Chasing <clears throat> Amy and Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, didn't really grab me. See, Chasing Amy, I think, was the first one I watched, and then I kind of went, I then found Dogma, and fell in love with it, and then went to, to try and find all the other stuff of his, and watch it all. Uh, Clerks 2, yeah, as, as part of his body of work, it's much better than it is as a single film, but suddenly you sit and watch it, and you get towards the end, and you're like, really? <laughs> and everything's kind of gone downhill. For, I, I really enjoyed Red State, actually, for what it was. I quite like... Uh, redneck horror films I think they're really cool but the problem mm-hmm. with Red State was he was doing something that Rob Zombie had done ten times better already and didn't quite hit the mark I thought it was fun but didn't quite make <clears> it as good as it should have been well, he was and trying to give a big fuck you to like the Westboro Baptist Church wasn't he with Red he, State he really and was and I think he was trying to prove as well that he didn't just do yeah stupid slapstick comedy and in that yeah. respect I think he done very well and then he went and made fucking Tusk God, <laughs> I haven't seen it but the trail for that was really disturbing I mean like, the, the, the kind of reasoning behind picking Clerks 2 not just as a kind of you know I, I, I love you to all the films that kind of went before it and even Zachary make a porno um, it was more of a kind of you know a nod to Kevin Smith but yeah I'm in agreement once kind of after Zachary cop out not so good. Red State, yeah. I mean, do you have you seen Jane Silent Bob's super groovy cartoon movie? I have. I love it. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. Again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child. I'm a simple person. <laughs> Dildo jokes, cops. It's a good dick and fart joke. That's all exactly. you need. Exactly. That's all I'm there. However, Tusk, I really really did not like Tusk. I thought it, it was, I, I think when I reviewed it, I said it was like, you know, somebody who'd never seen a horror film has made a horror film. Yeah. And what's worse is that's part one of three. It's part one of three films. Yeah. Mm. Yoga Hoses. Yeah, starring and, his kid. Ugh. They were who I wanted worst. to punch in the face just yep. in five minutes she was in Tusk. Well, yeah, Johnny Depp rolls oh, up in that. And he, he calls himself Guy Lapont. Even in the credits, he calls himself Guy Lapont. And he's in the next one, Yoga Hoses, and he's in the one after that, Moose Jaws. But the big news this week, back-to-back filming, Clerks 2 and Clerks 3. 
Flex 3 oh, yeah. for Rats 2. <clears throat> Are they going to get Affleck? Like, that's the thing. Have you seen all the oh. tweets about how many people he's got in? He's got Joey, Lauren Adams, all this kind of stuff, but... Yeah, he's, run, he's running, a, running a countdown on... Well, I've not seen... I don't follow him on Twitter, but I follow him on Facebook, and he's running a countdown, isn't he? Every time he, he is, gets yeah. to find somebody else on, you know, one you know, one down, nine more to go. I don't know... See, that kind of puts me off more, to be honest. It seems a bit smug that he's just going, look, I've got all my it's, mates. It's and absolutely masturbatory. That's the only reason he's doing it. Yeah. But, yeah. as long as he makes it funny, I'll sit and watch Clerks 3 and more at oh. 2. Clerks because three, it's Clerks I mean, 3 and more rats too. Yeah. It's a sailboat. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's I a just, schooner. It's a fucking <laughs> sailboat. Um, do you know, it's so weird how you can kind of almost fall out of love with someone because he, you know, he got me into cinema, like going down to the video shop in Streatham, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was really into films and stuff because my dad and my granddad. But then, you know, I worked in the city and I kind of lost all that. And then I just remember renting that film, Clerks, which incidentally had a colour cover on the VHS. Yeah. And when you got it home, it was black and white. The yep. bastards. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my god, what? I've, this is I've not seen this before. This this is totally talking to me, and I absolutely loved it. And then was kind of obsessed for ages. I still, you know, I'm sitting here now, I've got my Ranger Danger t-shirt on. <laughs> I was, you know, if you know who that is, then hats off yeah. to you, because that's proper, you know, I've got, uh, what, uh, oh, mate, but it doesn't matter, I've got pretty much every t-shirt from every film, I've got every bit of Merc from, from that secret stash. And then I just suddenly, he started doing all those podcasts, and it was like, it was great at the start. Suddenly he was doing like, you know, 20 a week, and yeah. I just couldn't keep up. And it, it was so US centric, and I, and I felt so left out, and I just gave up in the end. And it's so yeah, yeah it, was, it was a real kind of fall from grace. Yeah, the, the thing with the old Kevin Smith stuff actually, that every time I watch him, like I, I recently, I purposely, I, I, I tripped across the American shelf in my local Tesco. Oh, chocolate covered pretzels. I'm going. <laughs> I've got that T-shirt which says, "Do you want a chocolate covered pretzel?" <laughs> I'm, I'm going home. I'm buying these. I'm Brody. going home. I'm watching more rats. Yeah. But, yeah. So, and the thing is, when I was sitting watching it, right, the only, everything that ever got said, I was just like, this just reminds me of uh, back in the day when I'd done my apprenticeship and me and me mate screaming Kevin Smith lines across this factory. Literally, you know, like an 18 year old and a 21 year old, and we're screaming, like, my girlfriend sucked 37 dicks <laughs> in a row. <laughs> I went to see him in, in, uh, in, in London and uh, he was talking, you know, Jonathan, he famously had a massive falling out with Jonathan Ross. When Jonathan yeah. Ross was doing the film, whatever year it was, he what was it he said? He said, you know, he, he, he loved getting paid to review stuff, but he fucking hated every single thing that Kevin Smith had ever done, and da 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 da, da. And um, I remember being in the front row, and I was like, he's a fucking Nazi wanker cunt. <laughs> he is! He fucking is! He's a fucking Nazi wanker! And I was like, oh! As though he spoke to me! He was like, it was really, yeah, really good evening. Really nice guy, really engaging, you know, because he's done all those talk videos. Yes, yeah, so the talk videos, I've got a couple of them, and I think yeah. they're really cool. And they're, yeah. they're, the stories are always interesting. Absolutely. Um, 
and the uh, when he talks to the audience, he's always really engaging. I think the dude as a as a person seems really really cool, but recently yeah. he's gone off the fucking deep end. Yep, completely. <laughs> and you know, and uh, if you told me ten years ago that I would like be slating Kevin Smith, I would have just laughed in your face. Yes, same here. <laughs> okay, should we move on? Last one yeah. for me, um, and unsurprisingly, it, it is a Korean film, um, and it's Memories of Murder. Oh, excellent choice. Mm. Um, I know that Owen kind of touched upon Song Kang-ho and saying, you know, he was kind of one of his favourite actors, but not quite sure. He is, in my opinion, the best actor working today. And Bong Joon-ho, the director, is is the best director working today. I mean, when you, if you took his body, or or both of them, if you took their body of work and kind of transposed that to, to Hollywood... It's just a no-brainer, all the way back from Barking Dogs Never Bite, through to The Host, Mother, Snowpiercer. Mm. You know, th- these are fantastic films from the director. And Song Kang-ho is, is just, you know, I, he's only made one stinker, and that was that. Have you seen it, Owen? The werewolf How? film, yeah. 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 Awful. It's not a werewolf film, is it? It's billed as a werewolf film. Oh, it's yeah. It's just a wolf thing. Ugh. Terrible. But if you take that out, everyone's allowed one slide, I guess. <laughs> yeah. He's not done. He's not done any stinkers. And he's, the thing is, he's brilliant in all of them as well. Yeah. No, he absolutely is. I mean, this one is. It's, a, it's based on a true story. Um, from I think eighty-six to ninety-one, there was a, a serial killer in uh, in Korea who was raping women and murdering them with their underwear. And it tells the story of the, the cops who are trying to catch him. Mm. And it shouldn't be funny, but it is. But it, it's, again, this is kind of, I think, my introduction to the really weird tonal shifts in Korean films where the police are all completely inept. If it's a crime scene, you're looking at like 200 people in the news cameras there. It's just mm. really, really odd. And it's not until you've watched kind of six, seven, eight, nine of these things that you kind of, kind of come to accept it that in a film the police are going to be completely inept they're never going to catch anyone you're going to get brutal violence set against comedy I mean, th- th- this would not happen in a Hollywood film yeah, so in conclusion you know, Memories of Murder one of the, you know, the best and one of the earliest Korean films that I saw um, and if anyone hasn't seen it, then absolutely you should, should, should go and see it right now. I concur. It's fantastic. And I think it was based on the, a real case as well. as the first serial killer they had, wasn't it? It was. Uh, they just on a TV show as well, which is in yeah. many... Think about Korean TV. Fuck me, it's long. And there were like many... It's like 24 one-hour episodes. Wow. Yeah. Have you, have you ever actually watched a Korean TV show, Owen? No. But their movies are long. The movies are long. The average is about 130 minutes, isn't it? It will suddenly cut to, like, romantic melodrama music where where the kind of protagonist and the the female lead will... will, And it's just like, oh, God, it's awful. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, no, not good. I'll stick with the film in that case. Absolutely stick with the films. Anyway, um, that's all for the first drop of bed of this... 150th episode spectacular up next we have got the triple bills that we have selected from those nominated by you the listeners um, so join us for that after this short break 
second triple bill of the evening and sorry if we start sounding like we're five minutes off really quickly but it's nearly <laughs> half past one in the fucking morning I've got all the time. So, oh, man. It, if it goes quick it goes quick so Steve, enjoy that might it, a rub and tug down at the massage parlour <laughs> not enough okay. <laughs> uh, anyway um, these this triple bill is for all these suggestions that listeners have put into us for um, for this section Paul is first up with three films with non-UK place names in the title, suggested by Liam Pennington at Dr. B on Twitter. Uh, Paul, take it away. I tried to be a bit clever with this, which is going to backfire, um, in, in that I, I picked films with non-UK place names, but that were British films, with British casts, and filmed okay. in the UK. Okay. And um, my first one is uh, Byzantium which I believe is an ancient Greek city, uh-huh. um, which is the Neil Jordan, who does you know those classy picks like Mona Lisa and the, the Crying Game, who turned his hand to the uh, vampire genre. Um, really special film for me because it was shot in my hometown in, uh, in Hastings. And uh, there's a little backstory here. Sorry, Steve. Um, it, they never planned to show it. It wasn't scheduled in, in the local cinema. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, a film shot in my hometown, local cinema, nah, not showing it. So I ended up lobbying the cinema and the film company. Um, ended up on bloody BBC Radio Sussex and all sorts of stuff. And um, eventually they backed down and, and decided to show it. And I, I went along third night, I think it was. And it was absolutely packed. And remain packed for the next three to four weeks. One of the most successful films they'd shown. It was like, well, yeah, because it was fucking shot here. Mm. You know, I saw all these places from my childhood that, you know, the, the places I played or the pubs I drank in. But the film itself, Gemma Arterton, not to be a bit pervy, but the lovely Gemma Arterton. Mm. Uh, there you go. Who, who does get down to some, some stocks and suzzies in this, and, and she has this voluminous chest on show for, for a lot of the film. It's, it's a strange one. It's kind of set through time. Her and... Uh, I'm going to murder her name. Is it Saoirse Ronan? Saoirse Ronan, I think. There you go. And they play this mother and daughter who drift through time, through all these different places in, in time and history, obviously never ageing. And, yeah, it, it, it was a strange one because it wasn't really well received and it, wasn't, mm. it didn't really kind of get the traction I thought it would do. I mean, again, have you all seen this? Yeah, I have. Not, yeah. not familiar with this one. Okay, well, then again, you absolutely should. I mean, it's a really clever twist. I mean, forget fucking, what's that god-awful teenage thing with the vampires? Yeah, there you go. That one. This is so far removed from that. It's bloody, it's it's beautifully shot, it, it it's so well made, and you know it is classy. It's kind of if you like Mona Lisa, if you like the Crying Game, this is going to be you know one for you. Um, moving on to the next one, again slight liberties with it, but I've gone for Carry On Up the Kyber. 
Interesting. Okay. okay. <laughs> Which is a, a place in India, I'm reliably informed. And I, I love the carry-on films. You know, Sid James, Kenneth Williams, Charles Hawtrey, Joan Sims, Bernard Breslau, Peter Butterworth. I mean, are these are people that I grew up with on a, on a Sunday afternoon. Roundup Mine was, you know, hopefully and almost praying that there'd be a carry-on film on it. I've got a bag of sweets, sit there and... My, my dad telling me not to sit too close to the telly, which at the time was probably like 24-inch black and white. <laughs> <laughs> and I absolutely loved them. They were kind of bawdy. There was something a little bit naughty about watching a carry-on film. And, and they do, again, they get such a bad kind of rap, but they really were innocent fun. And I think I listened to another podcast recently where they were talking about longest-running franchises. And um, they were championing, and championing Godzilla mm-hmm. in all mm. its incarnations as being the longest-running. And I was thinking, do you know what? It's not. It's the carry-on films, which I think there are 31. Wow. I mean, I'm guessing that you have all seen a carry-on film. Oh, yeah. yeah. My, dad, my dad likes them. God, don't <laughs> right, I can see how this conversation is going to go. No, I love know? them. I, every single one of them, I, I love them all. Well, no, except for one. I don't I, like I, Carry I, On I Columbus. Kept, oh, Columbus, okay. Columbus is shit. The rest of them I like. I just think, you know, that much maligned in in a way... I mean, they're, they're so, I mean, they're so ridiculous, and but equally so iconic. And I just think, you know, when I speak to film people, a lot of them are like you guys, a little bit younger than me, and and they're just kind of ignored. I mean, Owen, you're potentially, are you the baby of the group? I think me and Steve are about the same age. I'm 28. Yeah. Come and talk to me about Carry On Films. What's your, do you have uh, any kind of uh, history, any love, any... Bit, they're a bit misogynistic for me. I kind of think that then then for a different generation to me is how I feel when I watch them. And I don't I don't have a problem with it. You know, that's fine. I just think they're for people who have grown up with you know comedians on the TV every week like Benny Hill and um, you know what's the guy who used to dress up in women's clothes? Kenny uh, Everett. Kenny Everett. And stuff like that, and I just think it's fine, you know. I just they don't really make me laugh very much. I like some of the people in them. Kenneth Williams, obviously, is impossible to dislike, but um, yeah, I don't know. Not really find them very funny, and that's mainly what they're for, isn't it? To make you laugh. No, that's fair enough. I mean, as I said, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's not something I get to speak about very often, like, you know, mm. that I like carry-on films. It's not a conversation. What about you, Matt? Are you... Uh... They're, they're a bit funny for me in regards that I've not seen one probably from start to finish, but I've enjoyed seeing bits of many of them here and there. Always funny, but I've never really liked enough one enough to sit down and watch it all the way through. Or, or many of them in a sequence like you and Brooker seem to like them enough. Uh, I think I'm more of an on the buses kind of guy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you did marry Olive. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
No, I think if you're going to watch, you know, one Carry On film, then this is probably the, you know, I, I remember going to the BFI to see this, and this is the only one I've ever seen, uh, Carry On Like the Kaiba, on, on the big screen. Um, and just, it was so ridiculous. And all of my favourites were in it. It, it. Looking back now, it, it's probably, you know, it probably was a little bit slightly racist, and some of them were blacked up, and... But I just love them. And I love some speaking. of it in all of those Carry On films, though, some of it is really, really bad. It's, some of it is just horrendously racist and horrendously misogynist. But you, they're innocent fun. I love them. Yeah, I mean Sid James. I mean, just I mean, what a character. And, and but I mean, for me, a lot of this is like their stories, kind of after the Carry On films. You know, Charles Hawtrey, you know, died pretty much alone and penniless mm. deal up in Kent. Um, you know, they all... Kenneth Williams, um, you know, he, he, he died tragically. He was a strange man who used to put cling film over his toilet seat. If you know, if you ever read his diaries, you, he was... And it was really kind of a really sad story. Um, I, I went to a play called Carry On uh, Camping, Emmanuel and Dick, where where... It kind of told the story of, of, of the actors behind the Carry On films, and it was really, really kind of, you know, m- moving. Um, and, I, and for me, it was such an important part of growing up. And it moves on to my kind of last pick for this, which I know it was non-UK place name, so I've taken a massive liberty with the last one. And that's a, an Ealing comedy from 1949 called Passport to Pimlico. <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah. which you could can you guess or work out why I've picked it? Because Pimlico in the film is separate from there the you UK. Go. Yeah. Yes, it's discovered that Pimlico is in fact part of France, in fact Burgundy. Um and it's such a lark. I mean I loved all the old kind of Ealing comedies again. Um, you know, the Lavender Hill mob, um the Lady Killers famously remade diabolically to be fair. Uh, it, you know, in Passport to Pimlico, and, and with all these Ealing comedies, they all seem to kind of focus around trying to make a pound note. So there's some kind of, you know, incident happens. In this case, they find out that Pimlico is part of France. They set up a border control. All the spibs move in. They're selling stockings and clothes they shouldn't do. You don't need a ration book. And, and it just makes me laugh, especially when the... Um, there's one lady who, who tries to cross back into London and the the, the, the policeman says, um, don't blame me, madam, if you choose to go abroad to do your shopping. And it, they're, they're so quaint and they're so charming and it really is a different age, but they're still funny. Again, Brookie, I take it you've seen this. Yeah, I have a long, long time ago. It, it sounds really bad and I'm going to make you feel really old. Go on. I, I grew up in my nan's house, and my nan used to watch all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. So I used to, it used to just be on the TV all the time. Same as Carry On Films, always on the TV. That and Columbo. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, to be fair, I mean, again, with, with a lot of my picks tonight, I've kind of picked... It's not a film. It's kind of a film within a kind of, you know, with the director or an actor, in this case, a studio, when, when I loved Kind Hearts and Coronets with... Which I guess, mm. yeah. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I love that. I genuinely could just watch and think about it. 
1949. There aren't many films we're going to be talking about tonight, you know, that are from the 1940s. Um, I think, guys, that's it. I'm, I'm done. We've got a lot to get through, so I'll let somebody else crack on now. Lovely. Uh, Brooker is up next with films adapted from the same source material suggested by Thomas Simpson at Simi 41. See, I was really, really, really glad when we were given the, the choice as to what we were going to do, mm-hmm. because the second <coughs> I saw this one appear on Twitter, I had an instant idea what I wanted to do for it. And so I went a bit, not really left field, because it's the kind of shit I watch all the time. Well, two of them are. Uh, one of them I really fucking hate. Uh, but I went with The Punisher. Okay, right. You got three Punisher films, didn't you? you got yeah, one, of course. Yeah, 1989 one with Dolph Lundgren. Uh, yeah. Was it 2004 one with Tom Jane and 2008 one with Warzone? Uh, yeah, with Ray Stevenson. Ray Stevenson. Uh, now I don't really like the Dolph Lundgren one. I think before last week I'd watched it twice, so I kind <laughs> of had to, I had to get a copy of it and watch in preparation for this. And my God, is it bad? It's pretty bad. Yeah. It's awful. It's Dolph Lundgren kind of trying to channel the Kurgan from Highlander. <laughs> and it's just fucking terrible. It really is. It, it's so It hurts. It's so bad. But the one thing that the, the, the 89 Punisher with Dolph Lundgren does that the other two don't do quite so much is actually stick quite close-ish to the source material. It's, the thing with the Punisher was it was always a... He... There, there was no grey area for him. Everything was black and white. Good guys and bad guys. Kill all the good guys. Leave the sorry. Kill all the bad guys. Leave the good guys alone, and just leave it at that. And for the most part, in the Dolph Lundgren version, that is there. It stays like that right up until the very end, which the other two don't quite do very well. Which is a shame because I prefer the other two. Yeah, it's uh, been a long time since I've seen the Dolph Lundgren one, but he, from my only memory of it, really. Is that he doesn't have the skull face on his t-shirt? He, does. he just wears a black shirt. Just wears a which black is shirt. Just like, what's the point? And the, the the biggest thing that stuck out for me actually when I watched it last week was he's got this kind of constant five o'clock shadow, but it doesn't <laughs> look like five. It looks like soot. It, <laughs> like, it looks like a chimney sweep. Just makeup. Yeah. It, it looks awful. It, it doesn't even look like a bad makeup beard. It looks like he rubbed his face around the fireplace and then went to work. Well, he's a blonde Scandinavian, isn't he, Dolph Lundgren? Yeah. So he probably couldn't grow a proper dark beard. Probably is. But it was just—it was so, just so, so bad. And it, yeah. everything about it was was cheese as well. Mm. I mean, not even kind of. Oh, it's a late eighties film. It's going to be cheesy. I'm pretty sure it was cheesy when the fucking thing was made. <laughs> everything was just so cheap, and so just poorly made sets and kind of. Really, really bad fighting. Like at one point, yeah. about, about the halfway mark, he's taking on all these kind of triads in what looks like I think it's a, like a disowned, run-down fairground. And to get to him, they're all these triads are sliding down an old helter skelter. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, literally these little, like, three triads sliding down this old school helter skelter slide thing to then go and beat up on Dolph Lundgren. It is the most bizarre bit of crap I think I've ever watched but luckily yeah. I, I got to watch then the, the 2004 and 2008 ones now the 2004 one I think was the first Punisher movie I watched 
Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I saw the Dolph Lundgren one before that. Uh, and it was kind of, I'm not sure of my dates quite, but it was kind of, at this kind of time I was really enjoying like comic book movies, but I was really enjoying violent comic book movies. You know, the way the comic books were, like The Punisher and Blade and things like that, were really, really, really nasty. And I really liked that about The Punisher, and I really... I was really happy to be sitting watching another 18-rated comic book film that was, for the most part, pretty decent. I I really enjoyed it. it you know, John Travolta was a pretty hammy bad guy, but Tom Jane, who I think the only thing I've seen him in before or since was that shitty shark movie, uh, <laughs> Deep Blue Sea. I'm pretty sure that's the mm. only other thing I've seen him in. He was in. Um... He pops up in the Thin Red Line. You ever seen that? Uh, I have, yeah. But I think yeah. when it first came out, I saw the Thin Red Line. Uh, and I'm pretty sure he was in The Mist. Yes, he was. I forgot yeah. that. I really liked The Mist as well. Yeah, there you go. There's yeah. two more. <laughs> but everything about the 2004 one with, with Tom Jane, kind of, it's, it's kind of like the kind of gritty, dark thriller that I like watching. But still being a comic book movie and being allowed to be ultra violent in what it does. Doesn't he have a kind of fight with Kevin Nash in that? He film? does have a fight with Kevin Nash in a Which giant, really giant weird. gay sailor uniform. <laughs> he he yeah, looks like a walking Jean Paul Gaultier bottle. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the most bizarre thing I've seen. Because yeah. oh, one of the guys, oh, you know what, now I've thought of him, I'm gonna, I've forgotten his name. The dude from Three Cents of Humor and the Mechanic. Ben Foster mm. is in it. He always uh, plays a like a really like cat-stroking villain. Yeah, <laughs> he does. He always does. He but does. he plays this... as soon as you see him, you're like, it was him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he plays this really weedy dude in in The Punisher, and he's really cool like it as well. Like, I'm. I think it was the first thing I certainly the first thing I remember seeing him in, and it was I really enjoyed his performance and Rebecca Romaine, who at that point I'd only ever seen in the X Men. I love her. Yeah, I, yeah, blue, just blue. Rebecca Romain. Uh, yeah, let's not go there. We ain't got time for that. <laughs> there, there, there are not enough hours in the day for the things I would do to blue Rebecca Romain. I love the fact that Jennifer Lawrence is going to mature into Rebecca Romain. <laughs> See, I, I still feel kind of skeevy saying things like that about Jennifer Lawrence. She's very young. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm I'm kind of at that weird age where I see her as a nice chick in a film and I have to go check her age before I say she's yeah. hot. <laughs> I, 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 I had that with Judo Temple and I was like, oh, oh no, that's not, no, no, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just that. It's when you watch an old film as well and you're like, oh, they're, okay. they're 22 now, but, oh, fuck, they were 16 then. Let's not say anything. Fuck. To be fair to Matt, he's already on a list. <laughs> I don't want to join him on that list, though. (laughs) (laughs) So what about the Ray Stevenson Punisher film? Now, the Ray Stevenson Punisher movie is probably my favourite of all time because it is 100% dumb fuck stupid. It's it's all neon. It's what Joel Schumacher should have done if he was going to go neon with Batman. I, I see now. I wasn't keen on the Ray Stevenson one. I thought I would love it. I thought it'd be the most violent of the three, and that's what you really want from a Punisher film. Yeah, and it is. It's just, I don't know. It just felt really hollow for me. See, I really enjoyed it because I, I went into it kind of 
knowing exactly what I was going into, I was going into mm. a really dumb, super violent film with absolutely no substance. Yeah. And I think because I kind of went in knowing that, you know, it's well and good to sit and spend your time watching your Oscar-winning movies. But if, if everything you watch is high class, you've got nothing mm. to compare it to. So I kind of sit and I'm happy to sit and watch junk food bullshit. And Punisher Warzone is the biggest junk food bullshit movie I think you'll ever watch. And I really yeah. like the woman that made it as well, Lexi Alexander. I think she's an amazing director. And there was a big kind of push for her to be the person directing Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And I, I was really excited about that. I thought that would have been fantastic. Considering what she knows, you know, what she can do and how she yeah. knows how to make a film and how to make a comic book film. And that's what Punisher Warzone was when you boil it down. It was a comic book film. Just one that because it was under the Marvel Knights logo, they were, you know, she was allowed to do pretty much anything she wanted, which is clear when the dude punches someone in the face and his head caves in. <laughs> you know, mm, mm. it's 100% dumb. And that's all I wanted out of it. You, you've got, okay, so you've got shit with the, the 89 one, which, and it was garbage. There's no defending that Dolph Lundgren movie whatsoever. It was made by a dude. I tried to, I looked him up when I watched him last week. And the only other thing, he made an episode of Eerie, Indiana and was an editor on Chappie. Hmm. He's done, he's directed less than fuck all since, uh, since The Punisher. And it was rubbish. I didn't like it at all. But then you've got like the Tom Jane one, which is kind of a, as close to a drama, I suppose, as a, a comic book movie you should ever get. And then you go full on other end of the scale, just dumb, stupid fun with... Punisher Warzone, and I loved it. I I adore Punisher Warzone. And if I'm not watching Fight Club, I'll be watching Punisher Warzone. You can almost guarantee it if I'm sat at home on my tired watching a film. Fuck off, you'll be watching porn. <laughs> and Rocco Safridi movies. Ah, absolutely. Damn straight. Girls, By know, the way, girls... has anyone checked on Steve? Still here. Good. <laughs> I haven't put you to sleep then. Not yet. No, I'm, I'm done then. It's someone else's turn to try. Yeah, Matt, Matt might with this next triple bill of best Zet Burton Bonham Carter films. Suggested <laughs> by oh, Brian Plank at New Rules, New Life. Yeah, well done, Brian Plank. This is the, like the ultimate shit list. But I've actually managed to, to pull out three semi-reasonable suggestions out of this. Just, because... just before you start, did you all get that picture of Helena Bonham Carter fucking a giant tuna? Yeah, I did. Mm. Thanks for that. I have um, seen that. Yeah, thank you. You're more than welcome. I, I opened um, it up. I opened it at school. I did. I opened it up at work with a student sat, sat by my desk. It's the most awkward wank I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> there was no explaining it. Listen, students gone. Did someone send you that? Uh, yeah. That's a picture of <laughs> and the bottom cut of fucking fish. Yeah. Go back to car. It's got to be better than Tim Burton. But anyway, fucking I mean, looking fish. Let me get on with the fucking list before we die of old age. <laughs> so, I reckon I've probably picked the only three films I can realistically pick for, for these three. So, I'll start with uh, Tim Burton, and I've gone for, for Batman 89 for him. Um, now, he's made a bit of a career for himself out of making weirdo movies. And around that period of time. He'd done Beetlejuice by this point, which was fine. Um, but the first two Batman movies, I think, are, are absolutely excellent pieces of work. And they've given him a bit of a reprieve for all the shit he's put out ever since. So when I first saw this, when it first came out, 
I was sort of drawn into the comic book hype that you know, this is supposed to be um, something kids to, should go and see as far as the marketing of it was concerned. I didn't like it as a child, but when I watched it again as a teenager, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I like the the sort of darker tones, the, the gothic element that it has, as opposed to other comic book superhero movies that we're more familiar with. Um I really enjoy the casting. I think Keaton's an excellent Batman. And as I kind of recall from the time, there was a lot of controversy amongst comic book fans that he was even being considered for it. But I think he, he totally turned them around with his performances in it. Kind of relaunched Jack Nicholson's career. Um, that wouldn't go as far as say it was faltering, but sort of brought him right back into the limelight again. And people were probably talking at the time about Nicholson's performance as the Joker in a similar vein to how they were speaking about Heath Ledger a few years ago. That's how big of a, of a deal it was. But um, it's dark, it's grim, it's violent, it's extremely accessible for, for adults, which is why it appeals to me. It, it certainly isn't something that's aimed at young people particularly, though it's certainly compatible for young people's tastes as well. Supporting casting is very strong. You know, Kim Bassinger, Jack Palance, Jerry Hall, all very good when the lead characters are not on screen. I love the Prince soundtrack, something I still listen to semi-regularly even today. And it just has a massive legacy to leave behind because it reinvigorated the superhero genre when it was dead on its arse, particularly the Batman intellectual property itself wasn't really doing anything at the time. And it was made for a budget of $40 million, which is hefty, but took $411 million at the box office. Can so I it, just jump in here? I, I, this is a walkout for me. Really? I, yeah. Uh, the, the, I think it was the Cannon in Oxford Street. I remember I, I started reading the free magazine they used to give to Australian backpackers at one point, And I just said, fuck this, and I just walked out. It was I hated it so much and started my hate hate affair with uh, Bim Turton as I like to refer to him <laughs> well that's a shame I really like Ed Wood is his best film I think I haven't seen Ed Wood, Wood 1994 or something like that it's by far and away his best movie mm -hmm. uh, Beetlejuice yeah but I do like Beetlejuice yeah I like uh -huh. Beetlejuice too yeah. um, I think from a personal level this is his best work and I wish he would go back to making more adult gothic themed movies rather than the childish emo goth nonsense that he's been pumping out for the last 10 years, particularly anything that he's had Death and, and Bonham Carter in. So that's that one. Um, number two, I'll go for Helena Bonham Carter in Fight Club. So we've gone over Fight Club in detail. <laughs> so we'll just talk a little bit about her performance in particular, which is quite significant for a supporting cast member. So before you overly judge her career, particularly anything that she's done with Tim Burton, she isn't a formally trained actress at all. Um, she got a, a, her rise to prominence in periodic films um, as a precursor to the type of career that we might see someone like Keira Knightley enjoy now, where she does a lot of these period dramas. And that is what she sort of became famous for early on in her career. So her rocking up as Marla Singer, the mentalist, in uh, Fight Club is a bit of a shock. Um, but she does it so very well, in my opinion. Um, she's dirty, yet 
worryingly attractive at the same time, um, very disturbed, and a total oddball. And she isn't meant to be eye candy, but you can't keep your eyes off of her during the film, even if it's for all the mangled hair, the pale complexion, the tatty clothes, or the deadpan delivery of awkward lines and strange social situations during the movie. Um, but she is the gel in the film that holds the two lead characters together. And it's their dynamic in and around her that, that some of the film's best work has done, I think. Um, I think it's, it's kind of sad for her as an individual that her career has been largely reduced to being Tim Burton's lackey especially since Marion has become very typecast as a result. But there's a kind of triumphant dysfunction within the character she plays in Fight Club, and I'd love to see her challenge herself and do more work in the kind of mould of Marla Singer, which I think's probably the best role that I can remember seeing her doing in any of her films to date. You got any opinions on that one, Brooker, from your Fight Club experience? Yeah, it's probably the only thing outside of actually that and the King's Speech, the only performances of hers that I can I can stand. And I think you, you get it spot on. She's filthy, she's grubby, she looks like a crackhead. But she's while she's not meant to play eye candy, you, you can't you, you can't not look at her when she's on screen. She's and she's electric in every scene she's in, in what she plays, she's brilliant at it. Yeah. Totally agree. So I'll skip on to my last one then. Uh, Keep it short and sweet. I've gone for Johnny Depp in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, I love that film. Yeah, oh, thank God. I'm glad that was a good one, not a bad one. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, as I think when I talk to people about this film and I try to, like, recommend it on to people, it tends to get knocked back quite a lot. It's a film that tends to polarise audiences. You definitely either love it or hate it. It's a tough film to recommend to people. Yeah, particularly if they're not into drug culture or the drug humour, particularly. Um, but I, I find it absolutely hilarious. So Johnny Depp plays a character named Raul Duke, who's a, an oddball journalist who's travelling to Las Vegas to report on a motorcycle race with his psychotic lawyer, Dr. Gonzo, played by Benicio Del Toro, who's also absolutely balls off the wall superb in this one. So, right at the beginning of the movie, they're introducing us to a plethora of, of mind-altering substances as they make their, their journey in a convertible car through the Las Vegas desert. And one of the things that I really like about this is is the use of colour to sort of project these mind-altering experiences that they're going on it's very it's a very visually strong film and again if you don't find sort of drug culture amusing at all then a lot of the humor might go over your head but it's got some particularly funny scenes that's, that stick with me for instance the scene whereby um johnny depp gets back to the room with uh, dr gonzo in the bath threatening to to kill himself after taking a, an lsd overdose and they have a little fight while he's in the bathtub uh, and it's just absolutely hilarious uh, and the room proceeds to get absolutely wrecked but um, it's based on the work of uh, Hunter S. Thompson so if you're not familiar with him he's a, a sort of lifelong champion of, of mind altering substances and psychoactive experimentation so the film's going to take you to places that 
you've almost certainly not seen, whether it's in person or, or in film. So it's going to be a bit of a strange experience one way or the other. But I particularly like depth performance unless it's erratic and unusual, uh, even for someone like him who's, who's played a lot of strange roles in his career. But the thing I like about this one is he, at no point does he particularly depend on his looks for this role. You know, He's playing a, an older man who's balding, who's unattractive, and it's just all about his sort of physical interactions with other characters. I just found it absolutely hilarious. And the film wasn't a box office smash by any means, but it's garnered a, a strong cult following by its home release. So it's one of my little guilty pleasures. It's something that I'll, I'll try and catch when it's on TV as often as possible. And occasionally I'll whip out the DVD. But... Um, it's, it's a strange experience. The first half of the film, I think, is definitely stronger than the second. But overall, if you're a fan of drug cultural humour, this is a, a good watch. And one of my favourite Johnny Depp performances, for sure. Okay, next up is myself. Another suggestion for Brian Plank. Great trailer or film. First up is Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Um... <clears throat> They obviously went back and done some prequels to the Star Wars films. This was the first of those. The trailer came out and it kind of hit the right notes. It had the music from the original Star Wars film. You saw some of the old characters had a bit of Darth Vader's breathing over the top of part of the trailer. Um, you had Darth Maul and his double lightsaber. You had a pod race. You had um, droid armies. You had space battles. And you had Liam Neeson in probably the first film where he'd acquired a certain set of skills that he needed for something. <laughs> uh, you accompanied that with the poster that came out of, of Jake Lloyd and his shadow being, you know, projected onto a side of a building where actually the shadow was Darth Vader. And <clears throat> it's getting you all excited. In, this, in many ways, although the, the tone of the trailer is different for episode seven, um, it's it's hitting the same notes. It's bringing back old characters, or you know, having old characters in it, um, and paying, you know, showing bits for using the music from the old films, but also showing new bits. And and the Phantom Menace trailer kind of suggested some uh, some kind of overarching Jedi prophecy. What you got in the film was a film about in tax routes and trade negotiations, <laughs> an annoying little shit of a kid, and them introducing science into the Force with Medichlorians, and it was just depressing and bad for a start for Star Wars fans, and yeah, and non-Star Wars fans. I'll put that there, yeah, there as well. It was just yeah. the trailer got you all built up, and and it just knocked it all down as soon as the film came out. Um, good N64 pod racing game though came out of it from what I remember. It, yeah. yeah, there are some good things about the film though. Like what? Like, the end? <laughs> yeah, the fight <laughs> scenes are good. The duel yeah. of the fate song is good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Darth Maul's pretty cool. Darth Maul's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure why they killed him off, but um, but yeah. My, my first experience of paying an extra three quid to have a luxury seat. That was oh, money no. well spent. Yep. <laughs> oh dear. There's a theme um, in the films that I've selected in in these uh, in this triple bill. In so much they're all sequels of sorts. The next up is The Matrix Reloaded. Whoa, 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 whoa! You haven't mentioned Jar Jar Binks. Go back. 
<laughs> uh, I can't be bothered. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, Steve's half dead, I think. Uh, so yeah, Matrix Reloaded follows on from the original Matrix made four years after it. Trailer does what the Phantom Menace trailer does. It, it basically takes them, it takes everything from the old film and makes it look like the original film makes it look like it's to be ten times better. So there's only ten times more of the the fight scenes and the and the bullet time kind of stuff and um, the whole Matrix, you know, Morpheus being all cryptic and that. And the film was just rubbish with a plot that just confused the hell out of everyone. Didn't make any sense and just sort of like, oh. Why have you taken such an original and interesting concept that made this nonsense? Did you just say you liked it, Matt? I do. I'm not saying I like it as much as the first one, but there's there's room for enjoyment in the namely one, Monica Bellucci, who's my like all-time favorite woman ever. So that's cool. But I love um, the fight scene in the chateau where they're like pulling weapons off the wall, and then you've got those two like albino dreadlock dudes fighting. I think that's really impressive. I think the the, the parts of the film where they're not overly using CGI are actually quite good. It's when there's like thousands of Smiths on screen and it's all CGI stuff and it falls apart. It's terrible and stuff where he's flying around, not interested. But when they get back to the crunch of the stuff that made the first Matrix good, they do it well. And I like the soundtrack from, from both movies. I think the soundtrack from the first one's particularly excellent. And um, stuff by Rob Dugan, for instance, who did the, the song that most people like from the first one, Club to Death, comes back and does stuff like Furious Angels and the Matrix Reloaded soundtrack that's really, really good. So I think it's like, it's decent, but it's flawed massively, and then the third one's just stupid. But and finally, finally, is uh, Superman Returns from 2006, starring Brandon mm. Ralph as Superman. Well, the trailer's got Marlon, the Marlon Brando uh, monologue um, that kind of teases you with the return of Superman. <coughs> And the film just doesn't, it's just, just, it just kind of plods along. It's really boring, isn't it? Yeah. Just really, really dull for a Superman film. So dull they had to, had to bin off a plan for a sequel and then re-kick the whole franchise. And, yeah. Yeah, a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, so, I don't know if it's... I think it's really, really good, though, in Zachary uh, Mason Porno, where he's <laughs> sucking, sucking Justin Long's dick. Take your word for that. <laughs> I think he does a very good uh, Christopher Reeves impression in Superman Returns. Yeah. And then... <laughs> oh, Jesus. Shut up, Matt. That is <laughs> unbelievable. We managed to avoid any like outrageous comments through the Hillsborough thing. We could get through Superman Returns without offending anybody. Yes, um, and we'll end it there and go on to our own triple bill. Suggested by uh, Carol Peck. It is filmed with zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, yeah! I'm so, so looking forward to this, Owen. <laughs> well, so I've had a look on that list, and there ain't a lot there. Well, I, I managed to find quite a few. I had trouble picking just three. Oh, Please honest. be run for your wife. Please be run for your wife. <laughs> that is the worst film on the list. <laughs> um, yeah, Carol's message was actually: I'd like to see you tackle a trio of films with zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So, Carol, I am tackling a trio. Films with 0%. Um, I did notice there were two Van Damme films on there The Order and Derailed. So, you know, picking the least bad of the two was actually quite a challenge. 
because both came out around the same time. I think one um, the order was released in two thousand one and derailed was two thousand two, and both are two of his worst films. In in fairness, but if I had to choose, I'd pick the order as being slightly better. Um, derailed has Van Damme riding on a motorbike across the, the top of, um, albeit badly CGI'd moving trains. But that's that's about the only positive from that film. Basically, though, the only reason I'm picking the order over Derailed um, as my first film is because it was co-written by Van Damme and the director, Sheldon Lettich, actually gives it a bit of kudos too because he was the screenwriter for Bloodsport and Legionnaire. Uh, He directed Lionheart and Double Impact. Um, But yeah, I mean, The Order, it's not a very good film. None of the films on the list are really that good. Uh, But comparatively to the other films on the list, particularly to the other Van Damme film on the list, um, it's all right. And then, you know, Van Damme and Lettich work together. uh, Getting them together is quite a positive thing, I think. Um, And just in general, the only problem with with the order is they take it very seriously. And, you know, it came out in 2001, so that was that, about four or five years before the Da Vinci Code. And the plot is sort of similar in that there's a conspiracy and Van Damme's father's involved and it's it's all a bit shit, but, you know, it's it's okay for what it is. I think the main problem is it just lacks any kind of fun. And you know those Jackie Chan movies that came out around the same time? You had stuff like... Um, the Tuxedo and The Medallion and all those kind of shitty, generic films. It's the, the film where basically the star is just going through the motions. That's basically what The Order is like, even though it's written by Van Damme himself. It's, all, it's a bit strange. It's like trying to include everything that they think the fans want to see. Were there any of the kind of charm that made those actors famous, you know? It's exactly like that. It does have Charlton Heston, though, playing a professor. So it's got some positives, at least. Um, but yeah, it's not as good as it's probably Lettich's uh, worst worst film that I've seen. But it isn't the worst film on that naught percent list. Uh, yeah. So my second choice, uh, because I don't want to dwell on Van Damme films for the entire whatever runtime this is at now. This must be like four hours. And the Jesus rest. Fucking Christ. <laughs> anyway, so um, World of the Dead, also known as The Zombie Diaries Two. Is on the list, and it's a film that it's obviously a sequel uh, to the first zombie film, Zombie Diaries film. It's set about three months after the end of the first film, I think, um, and it's a very low budget, found footage British zombie movie. Steve, you like zombie films? Have you seen the Zombie Diaries? Do you remember? I don't think so. No. Okay, I kind of like the first Zombie Diaries, and uh, it's one of these that's been absolutely slated. Um, and, and its sequel as well. But I own both Zombie Diaries and The Zombie Diaries 2 on DVD. I kind of like them that much that I bought them on DVD to watch again. Uh, essentially, the story is basically you've got some British soldiers who are dealing with, you know, shit in a zombie apocalypse world as they try and head for the coast. They make for the coast. And they make various people and some unplanned things happen, you know. Of course, of course, they're recording everything they do on video camera as you would, um, when, you know, electricity and batteries are going to be in short so- in such short supply, but, yeah, of course they do. Um, and, like I said, the first film took a bit of stick for being what it is, but I quite like it. It's 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 a bit shaky cam, and you don't expect it to do anything extraordinary, it just is what it is, 
And it's not going to make you change your mind if you don't like sort of famed footage films anyway. But it's done well enough, I think. And the shots are a little bit too... The, the main problem is the shots in this film. They're a little bit too expert for what it's trying to be. It's trying to be an amateur film about some soldiers who are just recording stuff, but it just looks a bit too too clever. You know, they get some camera angles that are just... <laughs> yeah. If you were in a zombie apocalypse and just trying to record your interactions with other people, you wouldn't sort of make sure you've got the best lighting and stuff. Which is actually kind of ironic because most of the film is pitch black, which is one of the most annoying traits about it. And I think it's meant to build suspense, but it just doesn't work. You just basically end up with some of the actual zombie action. You know, the bits where people watch a zombie film for, to see people being munched on and limbs torn apart and all that kind of thing, just don't see it because it's too dark, which is just cheap and also crap it's really annoying um however you know i do quite like it there's some grim situations there plot's not all that original but it you know it seems fairly coherent and um yeah it's quite disturbing there's some zombie rape in it which is always disturbing in these kind of films and i suppose it is just going for shock value but uh yeah i mean i don't i don't mind them really the zombie diary films i quite i quite enjoy them and it was a bit of a shame to see the second one on the list with 0%. I think there are definitely worse zombie films that I've seen. Uh, yeah. I have a question about zombie rape. <laughs> yes, go on. <laughs> I thought you might. Someone would. Oh, no, I don't. Sorry. I have a copy to send over to you. I'm sorry, Brooker. <laughs> oh, God. I, don't, I do, do not want to see your internet search history later. <laughs> Later, as yeah. we're going, I'm done. Right. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> are we are we talking zombies being raped or zombies doing the raping? Zombies no being raped. No detail is unimportant. Zombies being raped. Yeah. Right. Not zombies doing the raping. That would be okay. a really weird film. Zombies being. Yeah. How much <sighs> fucking lube is involved here? Nothing, everything's wet and It's not clarified, funnily enough. <laughs> it's just uh, left to your own imagination. You just have to guess. Yeah. We've talked about some fucked up films tonight. Tonight has just been weird, hasn't it? The whole thing. Anyway, right, my final uh, choice is not a great film by any stretch of the imagination. I think I gave it actually one and a half stars out of five on Letterboxd. But I don't think it's as horrendous to deserve 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, which seems a bit unfair. But, um, yeah, I won't spend too much time talking about it. Okay, it's not a great film. But it's Elfie Hopkins from 2012, directed by Ryan Andrews. Um, yeah. Do you hate that film? I've never heard of it. <laughs> You've never heard of Elfie Hopkins? No. You might have when I explain it. It stars a 30-ish year old Jamie Winston, who is Ray Winston's daughter. Right. As a young, she stars as a teenage girl. Is she a rapey zombie? She doesn't rape a zombie, no. She... <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, she's inspired by the uh, fucking awesome 1975 film Chinatown. She watches that and is inspired to start investigating a family who've moved into a quiet little country town. Wait, is, it, is this uh, Korean? Does Ray Winston fuck his daughter? It doesn't, no, no one's willy is chopped off, there's everything no, <laughs> no raping of mums, there's nothing yeah, like that. Yeah, get your mobile out. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, he's all about the impressions tonight. 
Oh, God. So, so Jamie Winston's character uncovers a sort of disturbing truth about this family that have moved in, which is not that unpredictable in in truth. It's all a bit there. Um, But, you know, Ray Winston does pop up in a cameo role playing a butcher. Uh, I mean, as a whole, the story, it's uninspiring. It's ridiculous. It's almost like I I think I described it in my review as a painfully tedious drab affair. Um, And it, yeah, my opinion hasn't changed since I've watched it. I kind of, it's weird. I kind of liked Jamie Winston in another film called Powder Room, um, which isn't, I mean, the film's not aimed at me that powder room it's not aimed at me at all it's like a chick flick almost really but it's set almost entirely within a women's toilets at a, uh, a, a nightclub who doesn't like hanging out in women's toilets precisely yeah or a powder room as I suppose is the, the, the title of the film suggests <laughs> but you know the film's not targeted to me but I, I thought she was alright in that and I kind of felt like in this it was just a bit odd because she's clearly not a teenager She's clearly not a teenager, and she's playing someone whose best friend is going off to university, and it's all about how she's going to be left alone and all this kind of thing. What I do like about Alfie Hopkins is the fact that it's, you know, it's very obviously a low-budget British B-movie, but it's made by someone who loves the noir genre and has tried to incorporate as much of it as he can into a limited, limited time and budget and stuff, so... It's a shame, really, that Alfie Hopkins doesn't work. I can understand why... It's on uh, the Rotten Tomatoes 0% list, but I just think it's a bit unfair. So, yeah, those are my, my three films for the listener-suggested uh, triple bill. I've got a couple of other suggestions that we didn't use. We didn't use these, but I just want to say thanks to people who, who sent them in. James actually said films with 100% on Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes that you don't like, which I think would have been quite an interesting um, counterpoint. We might use that again at some point. Um, we had Andrew Olcock who sent in quite a few suggestions to us. Um, one of his was uh, favourite child performances. And the only one I could think of really was the guy in Looper, the kid in Looper, who I thought was fantastic. The only that. one that wouldn't get you arrested. Oh, my God, Paul, Jesus. OK, moving on <laughs> swiftly. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Brian Planner sent in a few as well. Sorry, <laughs> mate. Oh, dear. I'm not editing any of this, by the way. This is it is nearly half past two. I mean, come on. Yeah. We've drunk quite a lot. Um, Brian Plank suggested um, a couple, actually, which we didn't use. He said, films where the end of the story is the first scene, e.g. Fallen, which would have been quite challenging to pick three good films, I think, but we could pick three. And also one of his was where Sandra Bullock... Sandra Bullock films where she has a makeover to make her suddenly sexy. And I think we'd be spoilt for choice with that one. So, thanks to everyone else who sent in suggestions. I'm sorry if we didn't use them, but we will keep some of them back for future triple bills. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Quick break, then final triple bill, which will be one that we've chosen for ourselves to, to do. So this is now the last triple bill of the podcast, one that we selected for ourselves to do, um, pick the subject matter for ourselves. I'm going to go up first, and I went for favourite found footage films. I know found footage films cause a bit of debate on the podcast. I know James... Controversial, yeah. 
Sorry? They've been quite controversial in the past. James used to absolutely hate them. Probably he detested them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to start off with, by no means the first found footage film, but probably the one that kick-started the current trend of, um, of found footage films. And that is The Blair Witch Project from 99. The second one was rubbish, but the first one <laughs> yeah. was, was yeah. really quite quite good and atmospheric, forgetting the plot that was a little bit silly and unexplained. Basically, three people went off into the woods in search of a local legend, the, the Blair Witch, and various things start happening to them um, mm. throughout the, the duration of the film. And it is really quite creepy and unnerving in parts as the film goes on. It's also worth mentioning the film was had a budget of $22,500 and made $248 million, Wow. Yeah. Which is That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I really love Brilliant that. ending to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And next up, I'm going to go for a kind of one of the, one of the more newer found footage films. And that is Chronicle from 2012. Uh, about... Nice. Um, Josh Trank's directing debut it's about three friends who discover some objects which give them various superpowers and, and one of them goes bad towards the end it ends up playing out kind of like a typical superhero film with with a bad guy and good guys but yeah it's just, it's just quite good fun really for a, a found footage film and kind of a different take on superhero films we've had so many superhero films of the last few years. Uh, kind of a refreshing take on it. And they're all very good actors in it, I think, as well. Yeah. It's, yeah, I think it's a, a brilliant choice. I think, I can't remember, did it, did we review it as like a new release on the podcast, or was it just a bit before then? I think it was just a bit before. Yeah, but it's definitely, um, I think everyone on, who's been on the podcast and reviewed it has said it's like, has enjoyed it. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. It's, uh, it is, it's quite different, isn't it? And lastly, I'm going for a foreign film, uh, but probably my favourite found footage film out of all of them, and that is the Norwegian film Troll Hunter. Nice. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, good choice. Uh, about a group of like uh, college students who are, who are looking into, I think it's um, like illegal bear hunting or something, mm, yeah. and end up meeting the troll hunter uh, and, and kind of getting involved in what what he does it's really really quite good I don't know the budget for Norwegian cinema but, <laughs> but I mean the, the effects are quite good when you see the trolls as well and it's got some funny bits in it as well but yeah it's just a really really good original really well done sound footage film yeah. no, that's a really good triple bill actually because we, we've talked about it in the past haven't we doing a, either an article for the website or just an actual podcast on them yeah so yeah, no, that's really. I'm really glad that you did that because I love found footage films as a as a, a style. So it's always good to give it a bit more publicity because it gets a bit of a shoo-in from some people. James, me too. James. I, 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 I love them too, and 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 the fact that it's quarter past three in the morning, Steve, you've done really well. <laughs> okay, cheers, Steve. So basically, we'll move on from there then. And um, Matt, why don't you? Tell us what your wild card triple bill is. Okay, so it's quite um, apt in regards to it being a wild card. I've gone for a gambling triple bill. Oh, okay, excellent. 
as soon as I I work for an online poker site, I've seen quite a lot of gambling-related films and TV shows in the last few years. To be fair, it's a genre that's crammed full of a lot of bad stuff, but there are one or two bright lights in there that are worth talking about. So I'm going to start off with uh, an oldie but goodie, and that is The Cincinnati Kid. So this is going to be the first of two poker-related films I'm, I'm going to be talking about in this triple bill. Um, the film follows the career of Eric the Kid, stoner, played by Steve McQueen, who's an up-and-coming poker player who specialises in five-card stud poker, which isn't very common today at all. Um, if you're vaguely familiar with the poker boom of the last ten years, no one's playing this game anymore. Everyone's playing Texas Hold'em. So it'll be unfamiliar to most people who watch the movie for the first time now, whereas this was all the rage way back when. Uh, the kid makes a living hustling small-time players that has his sights set on a high-stakes game with the travelling big-time gambler Lancy Howard. Uh, the film establishes the kid as a genius right from the get-go, and the rest of the movie's a slow build-up to the climactic final game between the kid and uh, Lancy Howard. One thing the film does really well, with the exception of the very final hand, is it makes the poker hands quite realistic. Uh, and by that I mean it's not using sort of over-the-top cliched hands where you have flushes beaten by straight flushes and four of a kinds and stuff that barely ever happens. Um, so in that regard, from a poker player's perspective, it, it all seems quite tidy and, and, and realistic, almost a little mundane to expect, but it keeps it relevant. But the um, the dialect, uh, dialect I should say, is is very cool and sharp, particularly the film of that era in the 60s. And the poker terminology that is used in the film is still quite commonly used today. So people who watch it for the first time will understand some of the terms that are being used. It also shows quite severe character flaws in career gamblers, people who tend to mistreat their loved ones and are easily strayed from the path, and how their desires for the game that they want to play will ultimately lead to self-harm. So the final game is played over a significant chunk of the film. It's very, very long. Uh, but it's particularly well shot, and it builds a really good tension and chemistry between McQueen and Edward G. Robinson, who's playing Lancy Howard. Uh, but the final hand of the film, as I touched on in the beginning, is a little bit of an abomination, where Steve McQueen seemingly has Lancy Howard on the ropes. He's about to win all of his money uh, because he has a particularly strong hand, and then Lancy Howard pulls out a miracle straight flush, which is difficult in most poker games anyway, but when you're dealing with a a five-card poker game such as Stud, it's highly, highly improbable. And from articles that I've read about this film, the chances of these two particular hand combinations that they end up with are about 1 in 40 billion. So it's not that it couldn't happen, but the chances of it happening are are incredibly remote. So we've got a snapshot in time where a bonafide miracle has happened, which I think takes a little bit of the shine off what is an otherwise very cool movie. But it's a good starting point for for poker fans who are looking to see something out of the tired, tried and tested Texas Hold'em arena. 
So it's, it's a good film to, to check out if you're a fan of Steve McQueen or want to check out a poker movie in general from, from the good old days. Uh, has anyone actually seen Cincinnati Code out of interest? I don't think I have, actually. Yeah, it's, it's reasonably rated, and, and Steve McQueen basically plays himself in it, so you, you kind of know what you get in there. Um, but it's, it's worth checking out if you've got any sort of vague interest in, in gambling or poker or whatever. So I'll move on to number two, which is a film I watched quite recently for the first time, having seen its sequel much further down the line. Um, so I'm referring to The Hustler, which is another film from the 60s. For anyone who hasn't seen it, The Hustler surrounds pool gambling, and it follows quite a similar plot in general to The Cincinnati Kid, but it's following the story of a character named Fast Eddie Felson, who's played by Paul Newman, and he's a small-time pool hustler looking to get into the biggest games he possibly can. And he has his sights set on playing against the country's greatest pool shop, Minnesota Fax, who's played by Jackie Gleason, who's really good in this. Uh, and the film drops Eddie into a game against Minnesota Fats almost immediately, which is a little bit unusual, because you would expect it to be a sort of climactic battle, but it happens almost right at the beginning of the film. So the talented Eddie Felsen starts off slow in a game played over many hours, but over the course of the showdown begins to slowly pick apart Minnesota Fats eventually taking him for $15,000, which, you know, it's a big sum of money now, but back then it must have been insanely large amounts of money. So Eddie's manager is travelling with him to the games, is trying to put it to an end so Eddie can walk away with a large amount of profit, but the ego of, of Eddie Felton is determined to stay and destroy the legacy of this legendary gambler, and he tries to keep playing, but himself is actually drunk and basically falling asleep at the table. So uh, Minnesota Fat seizes his chance and takes a short break. He washes up, he has a shave, powders his hands and jumps back into the game fresh and ready to go and begins to methodically break down Eddie Felson. Essentially, like, ruins him on the spot. He, he takes away all of his bankroll and he's essentially a broken man. And this all happens in the, the opening segments of the film. So the remainder of the movie is follows how Eddie's trying to come to terms with his personal demons and trying to get back into a rematch with Minnesota Fats. He then bumps into uh, a lady named Sarah, who's played by Piper Laurie, who's a down-and-out, uh, but glamorous and beautiful lady, but she has a, a drinking problem. And it's their self-destructive demeanours that attract them to one another which ultimately results with Eddie moving in with her whilst he's building up a stake for his next game. He eventually falls foul of a, a gang of local hustlers after he plays them out of $100, and they break his thumbs for tricking them into a lopsided game. So that's a, a sort of mini-tragedy right there. Obviously, if you're a professional pool player and you can't use your hands properly, you're pretty much screwed. So Eddie, at that point, not being able to get into the game for a long time, has to rely on a benefactor to stake him into matches. And this guy uh, named Bert is also supporting Minnesota Fats. But he gives Eddie a stake to play against a rich billiard player in the area for the lion's share of the profits. But the benefactor, Bert, looks down on Eddie as a loser and really taunts his ego, as well as Sarah for supporting him when he, he seems to be such a down and out. But Sarah's, by this point, has fallen in love with Eddie, but he never 
at least vocally returned the sentiment to her and said he's focusing all of his energy on the rematch of Minnesota Fats and is obsessed with the game and, and getting his money back. He beats the local rich guy we were just talking about with Bert's backing, but at the, whilst the game is being played out, Sarah commits suicide when she realises that she'll never be as important to Eddie Felsen as the pool game itself. When Eddie finds out about this, this is the final attitude adjustment he needs before his rematch, and he ditches the drink problem that he has and focuses purely on the game and ends up destroying Minnesota Fats in the rematch, making back all the money he'd previously lost and a lot more in the film. But in the final scene of the movie, he's cornered in the pool hall by Bert and his goons who want the money in return for the investment that they originally made in Eddie. He refuses because he basically blames Bert for a part in Sarah committing suicide. And he manages to convince Bert to let him leave with the money. But he warns if he ever turns up into a, another pool hall again, that there's going to be trouble. And that's how the, the film ends on a sort of cliffhanger, which is it's an unusual scene because the hero's kind of gotten away with a, a not-so-happy ending. Uh, he's won the big match against the the bad guy that has to give up on his lifelong dream of being able to be a, a professional pool hustler. Uh, but it sets up the sequel quite nicely in terms of he comes back in the 80s film The Color of Money, which you may or may not have seen, and ends up coaching up-and-coming Tom Cruise and to be a pool hustler because he can't play himself in any major pool halls after this first movie. But the things of note of this is it starts off extremely glamorous and cool. Uh, the, the pool action itself is really flashy, and Eddie is a, is a cocky but likable individual. But once things start to go wrong, he personally unravels, and the film becomes a very dark journey of a gambler who can't win over his, his inner demons never mind the game he's actually trying to play and it's actually quite depressing it does take you to some dark places um it's a great individual performance from uh, paul newman it's a shame he doesn't actually win any academy awards for this particular role although he does take one for the sequel call of money which he's nowhere near as good as in this particular one but I think it's a case of the Academy giving him a nod for the job well done between the two of them rather than the sequel necessarily on its own right. But if uh, you're a pool fan or a pool movement fan or gambling fan in general, it's a must-see. It's very highly rated on IMDb and, and well worth checking out. And so the final film I'm going to talk about briefly, my third Ed Norton film of the night, and... The film is Rounders, which I think is from 1998 off the top of my head. So right around the, the, this very prolific period for Ed Norton where he's done Fight Club and American History X. And he's, he also has this one, which he's not going to be quite well, as well revered for, but he, he's equally uh, adept on screen in this film as well. Um, so just a little bit background on Rounders. As a poker player myself or working in the industry, Rounders is closely considered to be the most loved nod to the game that we've had on the big screen for our industry or the, or the game itself. The characters are realistic, the poker's realistic, and it's loosely based on real stories and real people, uh, some of which I've actually worked with, which makes it uh, a particular novelty film. So the film 
follows the story of Matt McDonald, who's played by Matt Damon, who's a young poker prodigy who's building a stake to play in the annual World Series of Poker, playing in the New York underground poker club scene, typically playing with shady individuals, mainly Teddy KGB, played by John Malkovich, a very, very exaggerated and ridiculous role, but funny nonetheless. But Mike finds himself in a situation where he, he thinks he has KGB on the ropes in a heads-up game that they're playing, again, right at the start of the film, that Teddy's able to take the legs out from underneath him with a monster hand that basically takes all of Mike's bankroll. He, he's, he's planning a little bit too far ahead and thinks he, he's going to win an enormous amount of money, but KGB manages to, to take it away from him in one foul sweep and all his dreams are crushed right at the beginning of the film. And so from the opening, film, uh, opening scene of the film, Mike is broke right away. He's rebuilding a normal life, promising his girlfriend that he's going to give up the game and severing ties with all of his poker friends. But shortly after this chain of events, his best friend, Worm, who's played by Ed Norton, is released from prison and he coaxes him back into the game after only a few months of being uh, out of poker full stop. So Mike feels alive at this point and realises he's made a big mistake by quitting and he and Worm are doing the rounds, so to speak, and cleaning up at the local games. However, the character of Worm is a bit of a problem. You know, he went to prison for a good reason and he's a, a poker cheat. And he takes a, a line of credit on Mike's name at a local card club and gets him and Mike into severe debt with a local gang head who happens to work for Teddy KGB, who he lost the money to at the beginning of the film. Uh, this results with Mike having to scrape together a stake for another showdown with Teddy KGB so he and Worm can get off the hook, proverbially speaking. Ultimately, Mike cuts Worm loose, wins enough money to clear out Teddy KGB and redeems his initial losses right at the beginning of the film and then leaves New York to pursue his dreams at the World Series of Poker. But where Rounders succeeds over other gambling and poker-related movies is it's equally accessible to experienced poker players and newbies alike. The terminology is accurate. The scenarios uh, are c the type of common situations that poker players will find themselves in on a regular basis that are entertaining en enough to make a mainstream, a good mainstream movie. So, in the preparation for the film, uh, Matt Damon and Ed Norton played a huge amount of poker beforehand to get into the role and they actually continue to play at the World Series of Poker to this day, once a year, on a fairly regular basis. So needless to say, they genuinely fell in love with the game in their research for their characters in Rounders. So for me, Rounders sits above all other gambling films as the, the shining beacon for the rest of Strive Towards. It's enormously good fun, and it's probably a little bit underrated by the mainstream and didn't do so well at the box office, but its re-emergence via the, um, the home movie scene during the 2000s, Poker Boom is warranted that a sequel pretty much has to be made. And I think it's in production at the moment, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with it. Hopefully they get all the old cast back and they can make a worthwhile sequel. Awesome. Gambling films. I, I was half expecting Casino Royale. But nah, that's not a, it's not a gambling movie. It's just I hated gambling scene in Casino Royale. It just looks so fake and just ugh. It is. I, mean, I didn't it. understand it. 
because I don't really play poker. I've played it in school, like, lunch times, and I've played it once or twice since then. But basically, I don't really... Owen, when you say you played poker, did you roll a dice, and did it involve an elf? (laughs) (laughs) What are you trying to insinuate there for? (laughs) No, it didn't. It involved cards with, like, (laughs) numbers and hands and stuff. It was Dungeons & Dragons. (laughs) (laughs) It was Dungeons Dragons. It was Hero Quest. It was Dungeons Dragons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's gambling films, and we've had um, been footage films, Triple Bill. Brooker, why don't you tell us what your wild card Triple Bill is? What have you chosen? I've gone for the much underappreciated Oscar-worthy performances of Ron Jeremy. Oh! (laughs) Really? Really? No, no, I really fucking (laughs) haven't. I was wow. all in. I was so on board for that. That no. was close. Yeah. No, no. Was I, it I Rock went. Rockus Friday. Yeah, Rockus Friday. Not quite so much. Ron Jeremy's done more mainstream. <laughs> no, I actually went. I went a little kind of because I really struggled to think of something like half original. A bit, dog piss off. Go away. That, that would be original. That would. <laughs> a dog are piss off. German special interest film. <laughs> it, it is. It is. Yeah. With a. Staff that gets beaten around the head for rubbing her ass around my feet. Anyway, it's a very niche, very not, niche. Uh, it is, you know, it's more niche than Das Pissy Train Two. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went kind of, I, I, I couldn't think of something really original or really decent to do for this. So, but what I ended up doing was I kind of went, you know what? Because it's it's for foul critics. I went with films I've watched only because you guys have recommended them in one way or another. Oh, okay. Excellent. Ooh. I look forward to hearing this then. Just, they're not necessarily films that I hadn't heard of before, at least one of them is, but they're films that are kind of, eh, can't be bothered. But then you guys talked about them, rated them, so I went and watched them. And the first one, just to bring the mood right down. Like, <laughs> Please be Wetlands. Please be Wetlands. No, it ain't fucking Wetlands. I haven't <laughs> finished Wetlands yet. I started watching it at work and went, maybe this ain't suitable for a it's second. Not safe for work. Yeah, that one. Not safe for work. So the first one, I went with uh, the documentary that pretty much everybody loves, uh, The Act of Killing. Ah, oh, awesome, yeah. Only reason I watched it is because pretty much everybody I know that's seen it says you have to watch it. But you guys done nothing but talk about how good it was. So I kind of, okay, I'll, I'll give it a butcher's. It turned up on, on demand, so I downloaded it and, and had a butcher's. And it, I think it's, it's like mandatory viewing. Everybody should have to watch this particular documentary. Hmm. It's mm. just the uh, so what are they they got two directors one Swedish I think and one Indonesian yes I think so and they've gone around to surviving members of the Indonesian death squads that went around in the sixties killing quote unquote communists mm-hmm. uh, and and said to them you know reenact and tell us about what you did and you pick whichever you know you do it how you feel is the best way to to get across your your story so they decide to mock make a film on the way they used to kill people and it is some of the most horrendous upsetting stuff i think i've ever ever watched Mm. it's just it's really grim like some of it and they kind of there's times when there's groups of these these guys together all laughing and joking like you would be with your mates down the pub 
or after five and a bit hours of podcasting, just giggling like idiots, telling stories. But these guys are telling stories about when they used to kill people, and they're really fucking happy about it, and really kind of proud of what they got up to. And there's this one particular bit, and it wasn't very far into it, it must have been about 40 minutes in, and there's uh, a dude standing, I think standing on the back of a car, or sitting, yeah, standing mm. on the back seat of a jeep, mm. and they're driving around looking for some, uh, looking for people to be in their mock film. And this dude, like, some of the stuff that's coming out of his mouth is horrendous. Like, he's just, like, he's, like, the most despicable person you've ever seen on the, on, a, on your TV screen. And he's wearing this fucking Transformers Autobots t-shirt. Oh, and yeah. It, it really fucking stuck out. I looked at him, <laughs> you, you do not get the irony of what you're wearing, do you? Mm. Like, love them or hate them, the, the fucking Transformers, like, the Autobots are, like, the international sign for everything that is good and pleasant and rainbow-smelling. And you're wearing that while you pretend to cut off your mate's head. <laughs> you fucking arsehole. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's just, it's really grim. It's literally, it's 120 minutes of just gut-wrenching, heart-sinking awfulness that I think everybody needs to watch. It's It's a really good documentary, though, in the sense that, you know, obviously they couldn't have planned it, but you get a full circle narrative with regards to Anwar, I think his name is the main guy, yeah. and what he goes through and sort of his realisation of what he was involved in. And you're never really sure if he feels guilty about what of, he's done. You kind of, when there's scenes of him and his buddies, it's he, kind of, it's almost like he's showing up for his for his mates, and then when he's on his own, he looks like he feels really guilty. Yeah. But then some of his other mates, they're, they're on their own, talking to the guy on, behind the camera, and just smiling, these sick, twisted, fucking Joker-style laughs. Yeah. Yeah, this is just horrendous. Mm. What's wrong with you people? There's a follow-up, too, isn't there? There's There's a sequel coming, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they're making it now, aren't they? I think it's already out. Is it already out? Oh, is it out already? Yeah. I admit, I I follow lots of things, documentaries, that rarely hit my radar. Rarely hit my radar. But this one really did, obviously... it got a big push on Skylanding when it came out. And then, like I say, I watched it because you guys recommended it. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, I'm I'm not sure I'm thankful that I watched it because you guys recommended it. <laughs> but I'm glad I watched it. I don't think I did. I think you all picked it last year to win the Oscar and I went for 50 feet to stardom. Yeah. And yeah. that won. <laughs> <laughs> it's an, well, it got branded by a lot of people as um, torture porn. You know, lots of people, lots of critics refused to review it or watch it because they said it's torture porn. They're basically just putting on screen some people who committed horrible crimes and they'll be famous for it and all you're meant to do is look at them and go, aren't they horrible? Look at the horrible things they've done. When it's more than that, I think it's very unfair to label it in that, that category like a lot of people did. And that's partly the reason why I don't think it was... Um, I don't think it won the the Oscar because they just wouldn't watch it. No, it should have won. There's no, there's no doubt should. it was the best documentary last year, but there you go. People like a nice singer. Apparently so. <laughs> so, my, so my second film, and this one, you guys, I, will, I don't remember the podcast. I listen to so many podcasts. But you guys recommended it... Uh, 
I can't remember who it was, but you were doing your top It was me. Three. It was you. <laughs> you were doing your top what, what, three. What was the film? Foreign... <laughs> <laughs> you are doing your top three foreign actors or top three foreign films. Oh, it's definitely me. No. <laughs> was it Kim Key Duck? We were recommending no. Mobius. Uh, that's, that's, that, that's what it was. I, I, I was forced to watch Mobius, and my life was never the fucking same. <laughs> Uh, but no, I watched, uh, and only because I'd never heard of it until you guys mentioned it. I'd, obviously, I knew the actor, but I watched The Hunt with uh, Mads no. Mikkelsen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was you, Owen. Me and James loved yeah. that, I think. Because you both, I think you both picked Mads Mikkelsen, didn't you? Yeah, we both love him, yeah. Yeah, see, I, I adore the guy, but I'd just never heard of it. it, it for some reason, it never appeared on my radar. Uh mm-hmm. And I do. I watch pretty much anything with him, and I I sat and watched Valhalla Rising when it first appeared. Yeah. Even though nobody had heard of the guy that made it, uh, and really enjoyed it, and thought Mads was amazing. And as you know, I'm a massive fan of him as Hannibal. Yeah. Well, you wrote the piece for the yeah. website on the TV I did. show. Didn't you? Yeah. I, I think he's great as Hannibal. As much as I didn't want him to be great as Hannibal, I think he's fucking brilliant. But so I sat and watched The Hunt. I, I, someone's recommended it, and because I watch, I mean, you guys are probably the same. Not so much now that I've had the little one, but we used to go to the cinema like two or three times a week and watch absolutely anything. So a big portion of us finding new stuff was just having two or three people that you trusted to go try watching this. And I literally, I have a couple of guys and maybe two podcasts that I listen to that I go, okay, they've said it's good. I'll give it a bash. And The Hunt absolutely was, you guys recommended it, so I sat and watched it. And the... The story of a guy, a teacher, who befriends, I suppose. Well, he's, he's quite. Yeah. He likes to be friendly with his students, doesn't he? But well, not in a weird. Fr- and it's his friend's daughter, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. Who's got a wild imagination and makes up a story about him touching her inappropriately, and he very quickly finds himself outcast from his little town. And, and bullied and well he he tries very hard to prove that he's innocent mm. it's I don't know what, what the best word to describe it was when I sat and watched it you just kind of felt hopeless for him yeah I, was, you couldn't see a way out of it for him and no matter everything he tried he just got shot down because no no you touch little kids uh, and it was just, it was a really, it was a stunning film to watch. And it was a, I really enjoyed watching it. And it was a side of Mads Mikkelsen that at the time I hadn't seen before. I'd never seen him do something like that. And I, I was blown away by how he could be in a film this good. And I'd never heard of it before. Mm. No one seemed to be talking about it. Uh, except you guys. And that's like the missus sat and watched it with me and, she loved it. She thought it was great. And it's one of those films, you know, like you get films, you get halfway through and you're like, yeah, it's all right. I'm, uh, I'm kind of half watching it. But if someone tweets me about now, it's not going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, no, 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 no. iPad can sit to the side. You know, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I, I want to see how this film ends. And literally the pair of us were just glued to the screen for the hour and 45 I think it's on for. Yeah. And what an ending as well, that final shot. Uh, yeah, absolutely blo- blew me away. Yeah, absolutely blew me away, and it, it sits now very proudly in my collection. I I couldn't watch it every day because it's it's pretty fucking gutting. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, 
but it is really hard going. It's a brutal film to watch, but it's such a great film. And he is one of those actors, isn't he, though? Like you say, he can turn himself into any kind of character, you know? Absolutely. Whether it's in, like, Valhalla Rising, where he's a silent Viking thing. Yeah. To The Hunt, where he's a teacher accused of something like that, to playing Igor Stravinsky, you know, or <laughs> Hannibal Lecter, or whatever it is. He's he's just such an amazing actor. I think at the moment it is between him and uh, Song Kang-ho as my favourite actors currently working. Um, it's always tough to choose between the two of them. I think they're both phenomenal. Yeah, see, for me, I think Mads would top that one only because of Hannibal. Because Hannibal, for me, has come out of, not just out of nowhere, but out of a place where I desperately wanted to hate that TV show. Desperately mm. wanted to say, no, fuck that, that's not Hannibal. Read the books, watch the films, ignore the TV show. And now, I'm sitting on tenterhooks, gutted, because <laughs> the third season's been pushed back till the summer. Yeah. It's disappointing. Yeah. So, and my last film uh, goes to Paul, actually. Long, long before... Uh, me? He, what? Yeah, what? it goes to you. Long before you introduced me to Foul Critics, mm-hmm. just a random tweet because you got a dodgy, fucked up parcel from Amazon. Oh! <laughs> does this involve a hammer? It does. <laughs> it does. And the more I looked at that fucking picture, the more I laughed. Mate, I that did... really blew my mind. Do you, 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 you tell the story. So was it was it to Jennifer? Yeah, so you'd bought, you'd imported to Jennifer uh, on DVD from the States. Yep. And your parcel turned up. But the parcel turned up like six weeks after it should have done. Yeah. And when it eventually turned up, there was no film. No. But there was. There was a hammer. Yes. (laughs) For for completely inexplicable reasons, Amazon. No reason whatsoever, Amazon in the US, mind. Had imported you a hammer. A hammer. And, and the, bear in mind the weight involved of a hammer. And I'd ordered this kind of brutal horror movie. And my neighbour came out of the, her door and said, oh, this turned up for you. Handed it to me. And I'm like, what the fuck's this? I'm like, <laughs> opened it. What the fuck? And I pulled the packet slip out. And it's, you know, to Jennifer. And I'm like, what the fuck? And it was a hammer. But the best thing was, when I complained to Amazon, right, I got this automated response that said something like, due to the weight of the item involved, feel free to keep or donate the item at no charge to us. And I'll tell you what, within 24 hours, they FedExed me the actual film I did order, and, and the, 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 ne- the next day FedEx from the States... That ain't cheap. Mm. Mate, I'm telling you, it's like five or six times the cost of the film. <laughs> it, it's huge expense. So anyway, so I so I replied to your tweet because you'd uh, you tied in the you tagged in the director to the tweet. Yep. And I replied to it, and I just went, "The more I fucking look at that picture, just the funnier it fucking gets." <laughs> it, was. it really it was the dumb. I'm sitting looking at this and going, "This it says DVD. It's a hammer. It says DVD. It's a hammer." <laughs> Absolutely creepy. Right, I'd totally forgotten about this. Yeah, it was it was so surreal and so funny. And then randomly, because he's one of those directors that does it, the random uh, the mm. director followed me because I'd replied to your tweet. 
I, <clears throat> until this point, I'd never fucking heard of him. I didn't know who you he know was. You know what? I bought one of his T-shirts, and he put me on IMDb as a something for... I think it was that film, in fact. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Because I, I remember... So I, I now have a credit on IMDb for one of his movies. <laughs> Why well, I... I I ended up chatting with him after I watched the film I'm about to talk about. After I watched it, I found his publicity account, or what I thought was his publicity account, on Facebook. And I said, fucking blew me away. Absolutely amazing. I hope your stuff comes over here, because importing is fucking expensive. Uh, anyway, because I've talked about this film a few times. Uh, yeah, I know where we're going with this. Go on. Hate crime. Yeah. Hmm. One of the most horrendous movies I think I've ever watched. Just so horrible, so brutal, but just in a different way to like the act of killing, I do think if you've got the stomach for it, it should be fucking required viewing. It's such a great film for an, I, a little indie director. I think I watched it, they there was like an online film festival, yeah. and I, I think I paid... Christ, it was like five or six years ago. It paid like five dollars, and and it gave me like access to like th- literally a three day film festival of like thirty films, and that was one of them. And I, I ended up watching it. I thought it was amazing. Oh, know, it was great. It, when it you was... look at the money involved, you know, it's like a what twenty five cents or something. It's daft. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was absolutely insane. We, I watched it. It was horrendous and. The more, I, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I should not have fucking done that. Not ever should I have done that. Like, I uh, I kicked the lads out the day before the school broke up for Christmas. I kicked the lads out early. There was no work to do. I, we needed somebody on site until half three, so I stayed around. And they just put it up on the Psychic Junkie website. Yeah. $6.66. Okay. 24 hours access. I'm like, fuck it. You know, I want to watch it, and I'm not sure I want to import it. Uh, because... It's that kind of film. It is going to sit on a very fine line as to whether or not I can stomach watching it. So I watched it at work. This does not seem like a good idea. Considering where <laughs> I work, I should not be watching films about meth head, Nazi, neo-Nazis, home invading uh, Jewish families, <coughs> raping them, killing them, just generally torturing them. It's a fucking horrendous, it's horrendous film. It's, it's, it's the same guy, though, in all his films. <laughs> in all, it is, isn't it? <laughs> He's not a great actor, either. No, I remember reading. It was a re- I don't know how I found out this particular fact, and to this day, I still haven't figured out how it ever happened, but apparently, I, I, you guys probably don't know, the UFC fighter called Tito Ortiz was originally offered a role in hate crime, which is bizarre, considering the guy is, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's Hawaiian or Mexican, you know. He's a coloured dude, doesn't work very well as a neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this random UFC fighter was offered a role in it, and he turned it down. But, yeah, the, the whole film is just bleak. It's... I mean, it's really cheaply made, and it is really cheaply made. You know, the yeah. whole the holes are showing from the beginning. No one's looking at this film as a way to make top-notch movies. But for a little indie uh, guy who, because of the type of films he makes, can't doesn't seem to be able to get funding to make full-on... Aren't, aren't his parents really famous, though? 
I think they are. Isn't his dad a screenwriter? Yeah, they they made a really famous car. It, it it didn't come over here that I remember. I'm sure it's a really famous American cartoon. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I remember looking. I, I know he because one of his scripts is he wrote. Pinky in the Brain or so, something that nah. I don't. I don't know what it is, but anyway, it's, it's yeah in, in American kind of cartoon folklore. It's you know he they made yeah. they basically made Scooby Doo. Yeah, pretty much, and it's a, yeah. that's pretty much where he gets his money from. Yeah, I think because uh, he's, I mean, he's filming something else now, but his last film is supposed to be getting like a UK theatrical release. And I'm, yeah, pernicious. Really? Okay, did you watch the last last one, which was the uh, was it not the, the thing on the Sci-Fi Channel with the uh, not piranhas, lampreys, the oh, uh, lampreys thing. With uh, Shannon, Shannon, yeah, Doherty. Shannon Doherty. <laughs> <laughs> it was fucking awful, but awfully it was, good. It was, it was, it, his films really do fall into that so bad they're good. Yep. Kind of category. I mean, hate crime doesn't fall into it so bad no. it's good. Hate crime's just oh stomach churning, but it does. It's I it's, know it's good, I, and it's slightly weird that there's like that both of us know about this film and. And I know I touched upon it earlier about, you know, people who listen to movie podcasts pretty much know everything. But this one, they don't know about. No. Well, we don't normally know about any, anything, to be honest. <laughs> we have a quick skim through Twitter before we record, and that's the extent of most of our preparation normally. We're quite shambolic in that no, way. No, but what I mean is that if you're, you know, if you present or listen to a movie podcast, there ain't much that surprises me anymore. Mm. And, oh, I, yeah, and I, like I kind of lump everyone into that. You know, I don't like to insult listeners' intelligence by, you know, telling them about a film I know they've seen. But, you know, th- there are rare exceptions, and this is one of them where, yeah, pretty much nobody in the UK has seen this, apart no. from me and Brooker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are like two of maybe four people that have watched it. Yeah. And, because, yeah. uh, weirdly, it was a weird little kind of mini blow-up of Bissity when the BBFC banned it the other week. And that, that got it more publicity than it ever would have got if they'd have fucking certified it. Yeah, mm. I mean, we, we're slightly going to disagree on this. And I, I you know, I, I don't think the BBFC do that bad a job. They're pretty fucking lenient. And I know you're going to probably disagree with that, but, you know. Mm. No, I, th- I think there are times when I, I think as a whole, I use them as a guide. I But I think it's essentially what they've done with hate crime wasn't, ban it, they've censored a creator because they don't like something he said. Whereas I don't think it's their place to tell me what I can and can't mm. watch. Mm. Oh, I, yeah. can, I can see where they're coming from and, and if I was them I, I'd have banned it too. Really? Yeah, really would. Yeah. Fair I enough. just don't think, you know. And, and that sounds really kind of awful and high and mighty but yeah, no, I just there's, there's very little merit in anyone seeing that. Oh, no, I don't, I don't Ed's think... we're the only two fuckers who have seen it. Well, this is true. <laughs> and that was I, I mean, off the back of its reputation. <laughs> I, I don't think it's a film that absolutely everybody should be going out to watch in multiplexes and shit. I do think it's something that people that want to test their boundaries could probably watch that isn't something as god-awfully made as hostile. Yeah, but anyone who wants to test their boundaries, who wants to see it, can. But this is kind of my point. What's the point yeah. in what's, what's well, the point in censoring it and banning it when I can watch it for four pound fifty online? Exactly. With 
little mm. to no effort. Then you've answered your own argument. There is no argument. You know, they're, they're probably glad it's been banned. <laughs> In all honesty, <laughs> more people have seen that film since it's been banned. Yeah. There is, yeah, there is a whole video nasties kind of... Um... They would have known. There's no way they would have got that past the censors. I mean, you and I both know that if you, if you mix sex and violence, you ain't getting past the BBFC. It's just, it's just, it's just not happening. It is very true. I, I do. I do very much think that a lot of it's because I, I said this when I brought it up on the podcast the other week. Because there's been a lot of stuff in the news recently about you know anti-Semitism and and its rise in this country, and I do think a lot of it's got to do with that, and more than anything else. Because you know we've all seen some pretty fucking heinous shit, you know, in a cinema screen, getting 15 and 18 ratings. That I, I, it's it's very difficult. I mean, you have to go back to, you know, King Kong was a certificate H. Yeah. Well, you had to be an 18 to go. My my dad used to tell me stories where he would he he would go to the cinema and he would wear a, a flying helmet, like from the yeah. old. But yeah, so it looked like he'd come like he'd come in on a motorbike <laughs> to get into these when they first launched the certificates, and it used to blow my mind that you know my dad, it's like the squarest <laughs> guy you could ever meet, would wear a pilot's fucking helmet, so he looked like he'd come on a motorbike because he had to be fifteen to ride a motorbike to get in to see films, and you know, and and the, we're talking like King Kong. <laughs> Which is now a you. <laughs> uh, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I think attitudes change, people change. Anything that's ever been banned pretty much always gets through a few years later. Oh, yeah, of course it does. I think the thing with hate crime is because it's got that something extra. It's not just sex, it's not just violence. It's got that something extra about it that made the BBC, BBFC stand up and go, whoa. We've all seen well, anti, Antichrist and Irreversible. Anti Semitic. Yeah. Sex, violence. It's a yeah. triple fucking whammy of no no. <laughs> right, so we, let's move on then, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> because it's now what twenty past three. Fuck you now. We are really we are, going we, for this. We're one. moving into hour six now. By the way. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Look at this, it this way. You're doing all right because you'll have to split this into two just to upload it. So you will officially make 149 and 150. You reckon? <laughs> oh, I don't know. We'll see. Right, okay, so I, I'm i going to leave Paul's triple bill to last because oh, he can't even think about it without giggling. So. <laughs> Are you going to do your triple bill now? I'm going to do mine and then you're going to do yours right. and then we're going to go to bed okay. and then Steve's going to wrap up. Okay. So my triple bill, my wild card triple bill, I was trying to think about triple, bill, triple bills we wouldn't do on Fail Critics ordinarily. So what kind of movies would we not review what kind of things would we not really ever go into pornography was one i thought about but i don't re- no I, did, I dismissed that one almost as quickly as it entered into my mind For a man i went who a watches, bit what 10 to 12 hours of pornography a day i find that hard to believe as a man who watches 10 to 12 hours of pornography man who watches- <laughs> uh, man so then I was thinking, well, okay, the opposite scale would be something that's quite highbrow and something I've got very little knowledge of. And then I, you know, as I started to do this triple bill, I realised how difficult it was because I know so little about the subject matter. Um, and I kind of wished I'd chosen something else. 
but it was too late by that point because I'd already put so much hours into it. It, I did a, a, an opera themed triple bill. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> basically any film. Matt, make that a gurgling were... noise. <laughs> Is that you watching porn again? I think Matt's I was, uh... <laughs> I think Matt's died. <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> trying. Take on my screen. <laughs> Matt, tap once for yes and once for no. Come back to us, Matt. <laughs> Matt is gone. He wanked gone. himself to death. Oh, I'm sorry. I had myself on mute and didn't realise. <laughs> I've been talking to you and you haven't been replying. I thought you fucking. <laughs> man's down. Man's down. <laughs> oh, God. That's me thinking you've been really rude. Funny, we were thinking the same thing about you. Yeah. Sorry. We had this vision of walnuts being tickled. (laughs) This happy, pleasurable face. Sorry, I've missed that on that entirely. My missus went to bed hours ago. (laughs) Not with your missus, obviously. You can get one in. I'll talk about this. Owen is doing opera. Opera, triple bill. Phantom of the Opera. It's half past three in the morning. Uh, and <laughs> no, I'm going to talk about right. something I know very little about. Yes, this is not <laughs> going to go well. So first of all, I, my, like, I tried to impose a few restrictions on myself. One of them was I thought, I can't talk about anything that I've seen before. I had to watch three new films. Um, <laughs> so basically, I was trying to think absolutely anything to do with opera. So stuff like A Night at the Opera by the Marx Brothers, which is very funny. I like that film. But obviously I'd seen it before, so I couldn't talk about it. Phantom of the Opera, I'd seen the 1920s version with Lon Chaney, so I couldn't talk about that. Even just stuff like Quartet from 2012, which I kind of enjoyed. I thought that was quite good, but couldn't talk about that either. I could not be asked to put myself through something like Phantom of the Opera from 2004. Um... Farewell, my concubine as well. It just seemed like too long. I just couldn't be asked with that one either, to be honest. So I've ended. Up, I ended up watching um, five films about opera, and I'm going to pick three of them. And it was very difficult, actually, because wait, you voluntarily did this. I voluntarily did this. I put myself. You, you know, it's part, part anything across any genre. Yeah. And you went, and part of you know it what, was, I'm going to watch three films about opera. Yeah. Go on, well, amaze not, me. Okay, well, they won't be that exciting, to be honest. Basically, it was anything that had an opera theme, or was based on an opera, or had opera um, involved in it somehow, and one of them is sort of quite tenuous, but we'll come to that. But it's partly because, Matt, do you remember we did our end-of-year podcast? Yes. And... One of the things that you said was that you'd learned was to try and try and do things that you hadn't normally experienced. Yeah, go out of your comfort zone a little bit. Go in out of your comfort zone, exactly. Yeah, well, you could have done Japanese monkey porn. I could have, but like I say, I'm trying to be quite high brow porn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, obviously. I'm going to get the giggles in a minute. (laughs) So, yeah. So the... Well, it's literally a topic we would never cover. Never. Normally. Ever. Ever. At all. Um, so, yeah, so new films that I watched. The first one I watched was 
Well, the first one I watched was uh, Repo the Genetic Opera, but I'm not going to talk about that because I didn't really enjoy it. Um, actually, it's not really an opera. Anyway, it's just a bog-standard musical that uses the word opera in the title. Um, I watched... <laughs> it, was, it wasn't great. So the first one I watched was from 1984. I know which one this is. I bet you do. It's probably the one that comes to most people's mind first. Amadeus? Rock me, Amadeus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not quite. I hadn't seen Amadeus before. This was the first time that I had seen it. Obviously, I'm is aware this the one of with it. the song by Falco. <laughs> no, it's it's Doctor Zaius from The Simpsons. Oh. Doctor Doctor Zaius. You know, it's uh, it's well, I'll go. I'll give you the IMDb description since I've got it in front of me. It's the incredible story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, told by his peer and secret rival Antonio Salieri, now confined to an insane, insane asylum. So basically. Salieri's recounting his rivalry with Mozart, which apparently is quite fictionalised anyway. From all accounts that I've read, they weren't really rivals in real life. They just sort of knew each other and collaborated a few times. So, again, it's quite one, it's one of these where I don't really know anything about Mozart. I don't know anything about opera. But the film itself is fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the music of it. The classical music, um, obviously Mozart's music's sort of world-renowned and, you know, centuries old and people still play it and record it and, yeah, it's it's good. It suits the film, it suits the, the story, it's very complimentary to, to the performances, particularly F. Murray Abraham, who plays uh, Salieri and won an Oscar for this. Wait, if you're, uh, if you're coming out, just buying a Razor album is so much easier. Is that it? Yeah. Is that what I should have done? Oh, there's me hiding away all this time. You didn't. You certainly didn't have to drag it out for six fucking hours. (laughs) (laughs) This is what we've been Uh, building up to. Owen is coming out. (laughs) This, I tell you, this podcast. It seems like it's been longer than the entire run of our 150 podcasts prior to. This is incredible. As long as it took to organise the fucking thing. Yeah, the amount of times we cancelled and rearranged and yeah, Jesus. Wait, this is a quiz question, right? Yeah. Okay. What? What's the quiz question? No, we're still on the quiz. (laughs) We're still on the quiz. (laughs) We're we're only half done. (laughs) Yeah, it's only the first hour, Owen. (laughs) Fucking hell, we've gone back in time. I can't do it again. Oh my god! <laughs> oh Jesus! I'll wrap it there. Yeah, Amadeus, good. Amadeus, good. Moving on. Uh, literally, that's all I'm going to do. Amadeus is good. It's ranked whatever it is, ninetieth on the IMDb. Is this nothing to do I'm being dense. I remember the song. Amadeus. Yeah, that one. No. Falco? No, no. no, nothing to do with no. that. Okay, that's literally not it. Not no. at all, in any way related. Not at all. Okay, then move on because I have no idea. You know that Simpsons about. episode where they do the Planet of the Apes musical? Yep. They do Doctor Zeus, Doctor Zeus. Oh, okay, now I'm with you. Zeus, yeah, Dr. that's Zeus. not it. <laughs> that's not the Dr. film, Amadeus. 
Yeah, very good match. <laughs> you can you can back you can put a backing track on this review if you want. No, okay, moving on. So yeah, Amadeus, very good. Eight point four on IMDb, hundred and sixty minutes long, won eight Oscars. It's good. Yeah, I nearly reviewed that for my eighty four decade of film piece, but it just looked too much hard work. But I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad you've watched it though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean minutes? it's more Pardon? How many minutes? 160. It's good though, honestly. It's really good. The thing thing about Amadeus is that the performances are pretty extraordinary. They kill the film, really. Tom Hulchy, I think is his name, who plays Mozart, has got a really annoying laugh, which they haven't been able to attribute to any reliable source. So it's just like. But more annoying than mine. Annoying, annoying, as in, like, he goes. <laughs> just randomly, and it's yeah, pretty annoying. Um, uh, can you sing Amadeus again? No, I don't sing much now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first film I put myself through in this attempt to broaden my horizons, and I enjoyed it. The second film that I tried, um, well, we, that I'm going to talk about, is from two years before Amadeus, from 1982. And it's not strictly about opera. I mean, mainly it's about the fact that the the main character is obsessed with opera. I mean, it's his passion. It's it's the thing he lives for. It's film Fitzcarraldo by Werner Herzog, which um, presumably we're fans of Werner Herzog. I love Werner Herzog, but I've not seen that. I thought <laughs> if it's a Werner Herzog film, I thought you you would have seen all of these before because you absolutely love him. I do, I do love him, um, I, but most of the films that I've seen of his are, you know, aside from, um, I think he did Red Dawn, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously um, Aguirre, Wrath of God, and Caspar Hauser, and stuff like that, but yeah, Fitzcarraldo was one of those that I hadn't actually gotten around to yet, and um, basically the, the main guy is played by Klaus Kinski, who is a bit of a weirdo. Anyway, fantastic actor. Absolutely phenomenal actor. But he um, has quite a sort of checkered past. I mean, he's, one of his daughters came out and said that he sexually abused her from a young age, which isn't great. So it feels a bit weird saying, you know, giving any kind of praise to Klaus Kinski. Um and obviously he's dead. He's not had a right reply to that. But, you know, that's what his daughter said. And so, yeah, feels a bit weird praising Klaus Kinski nowadays. But he is absolutely brilliant in Fitzcarraldo. Astonishing. He plays a guy called... Um, well, his real name is uh, Fitzgerald. He's an Irish guy in the film. But they call him Fitzcarraldo in South America. Um, and he intends to build an opera house in the jungle. In South America, what he what he really wants to do is sort of bring opera to South America, and it's set in the sort of nineteenth century. So he's you know a fan of Wagner and all that kind of thing, but it's there are ulterior motives for his reasoning for travelling to this this jungle. Um, which is sort of, they come out through the film, the course of the film. And, you know, one of the things he does, he's this determined bloke who moves a boat over a mountain. Carry, he gets, a, he convinces people to carry his boat over a mountain, which is, 
you know, astonishing. But it also shows the ambition of the guy and what's, what sort of character he plays. And, yeah, the, the opera in it is almost like a side story. Um, but that was the reason that I, I gave it a go when I, when I actually watched it. Um, so that became my second choice for my list. The third choice is more of a kind of straight adaptation of an opera. And it's called... It's, it's by Fritz Lang. Do we all know Fritz Lang? Yeah. Director Fritz Lang. Yeah, did Metropolis and um, all those sort of classic silent films. This is a film of his from 1924, which is like a fantasy epic. It is all, you know, to start with, quite weird. But it's called Die Nibelungen. Anyone heard of it? No. No. Okay, this is really late for me to be talking about this, so bear with me. Um, it's about, the, the film is kind of adapted from an epic poem that was written in 1200 AD called the Nibelungenlied. But it's also, it takes a lot of its inspiration from a sort of series of four Richard Wagner operas called The Rings. And so part of that is, one of, one of, the, one of the operas is called Siegfried, and the main character in Die Nibelungen is called Siegfried. And it's split into two films, and it's about five hours long in total. So there's two films, about two and a half hours long each, perhaps a little bit longer. Um, so yeah, they take a lot of inspiration from the operas that that were set, from the set designs, from the the way the characters look, um, from the way the sort of story carries on, carries on. I tried, I really, really tried to watch on YouTube uh, an actual copy of a Wagner opera. I tried. I've tried like plenty of times in the past, and it's one of those frustrating things where every time I give it a go, I feel so uncultured for hating it. I mean, I can't abide opera. I've tried so many times. Ballet. I can't stand ballet. I can't watch a ballet. I can watch, you know, Black Swan, and I can watch The Red Shoes and think they're fantastic films about ballet. Cannot watch a ballet. And it's apparently my triple bill to try and um, not improve myself, but like I said, broaden broaden my own horizons a little bit has failed miserably because all all that's happened is I've watched three films. I've enjoyed the three of them. I've watched five films and enjoyed five of them. But these three in particular were the better ones. I just, I just can't get into opera. I cannot do it. And that's it really. That's all I've got to say on my wild card triple bill. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried to raise the tone slightly of fail critics, and I think very briefly, perhaps, we did. But, but you tried to do it at 3.30 in the morning. I tried to do it at 3.30 in the morning. We're all very tired. We're all very drunk. And that was it, really. And basically, all we're doing now is waiting to see what Paul has been keeping from us for so long. So, Paul, tell us, please, what is your triple bill? Or has he muted us to go off for a piss again? Has he fallen asleep? He's fallen asleep, he's gone for a piss, one of the two. He thought, opera, fuck that, I'm off. (laughs) (laughs) I think he literally has gone. Hello. 
He was here a second ago. Hi, boys. <laughs> Hello. Right, are you ready for this, then? <laughs> Do it. Okay. Proper naughty! Oh, fuck off. Yep, Danny Dyer. Triple Bill. No, 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 I can see where you're going with this, right? But... Danny Dyer at four in the morning. Danny Dyer, (laughs) I'm going to convince you that he's not a mug at 20 to four in the morning. Now, he did appear in an Oscar... In fact, he was the lead in an Oscar-winning film. I kid you not. What? Yep. What was the foot? What the foot? Are, are you, we meant to guess this? Is this a quiz? You can you can do the quiz if you want. Come on, I'm I'm kidding. A hand on heart. He was the lead actor in an Oscar-winning film. What was the Oscar at one? Best short. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's me thinking. Mate, they all count though. It's the same fucking statue. It was a film called Wasp from um, uh, Andrea Arnold, who did Fish Tank. Right. Yeah, she was, you know, she was classy. Fi- well, you've not seen Fish Tank? No. Oh, for fuck's sake. Anyway, but that, that was my little bit of trivia for later. So if we're going to start with the trivia, let's start at the top of the trivia. Danny Dyer, okay? Do you know what his daughter's called? Danny. Yes! <laughs> Who got that? Me. Owen. <laughs> well done. Did you just know that or did you guess? I had a guess while stabbing the dog. Did you really guess? I guess, yeah. Mate, I, I don't know why he annoys people so much, but the more he annoys people... he's a fucking bellend. Yeah, but that's why I love him. Because <laughs> if you read The Guardian, he really fucking annoys anyone who reads The Guardian. Mark Kermode... Do, do you know what he said he would do to Mark Kermode? Go he on. would wrap something right across his canister <laughs> and... In the enemy, he said he'd headbutt him. He was a little bit more blunt there. <laughs> Mark Kermode has just ripped the arse out of him at every opportunity. And in a way, I think that's really unfair. But, you know, when he started out, you know, Danny Dyer was actually in Harold Pinter plays, and proper ones as well. When Harold Pinter was there, he cast him, mentored him. You know, he didn't have any formal act- acting training. And... I think he gets a really unfair rap. I know he had that little kind of where he kind of said something inappropriate in a magazine. Even that, when you're phoning in a story to, you know, to some fucking geeky sub on some shitty men's mag, and he's like, yeah, what do you reckon, Danny? What do you reckon if it... Yeah, what should we say about if your bird wants to leave you? Cut her in the face, you fucking lovely. We'll do that then. Uh, and that's kind of how it panned out. The, the fact that they make you think that he actually set out to say all this stuff in advance is just nonsense. I, I yeah. can hear silence so in he, the background. No, I think he is underrated, to be honest. Um, I don't watch it, but from everything I've heard, he's like massively outshone everyone on EastEnders. Yeah, he picked up the award for the best soap, whatever actor it was this yeah. year. But he's got he's got like fifty film credits. I mean, there's plenty of actors out there who would fucking bite your arm off for fifty film credits. But I, I I've picked three films that he he's done that I think you know are actually really decent. Not not none of them are run for your wife. None of them are run for your wife. I mean, no. the first one is um, 
a, a film that's you know, really special to me. That was kind of, it, 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 you know, it spoke to me more than any other film probably I've ever seen, uh, and that's Human Traffic. Um, I, I, I'm guessing you all seen this. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, I've not seen it. But anyway. Seriously, Matt, you've not seen Human Traffic? Seriously. Okay. I mean, it it kind of revolves around the clubbing scene, but it, you know, it explores themes of the drug and club culture, but it's, you know, it's a really powerful social commentary for for us people who kind of, you know, grew up in the 80s and 90s. It's, it's, It's just such an amazing film. And... Danny Dyer rolling up as moth is just amazing in it. When he's when he's sitting on the toilet talking about, you know, wanking off to these sex phone lines and stuff, it, it's one of the funniest things I've seen. And it introduced us to um, another actor called John Sim, mm. who, again, at the time I thought, oh, my God, who is this guy? It was just really, really, you know... I, I, I think it's one of those things that you had to kind of be there at the time to maybe really appreciate it. I mean, th- these kind of five friends, they're in Cardiff, they're really into the club culture, they're really into drugs. Um, and the, the, one of the things that really interests me is the, the, the guy who made it, Justin Kerrigan, who made an amazing film and then just seemed to disappear. I mean, we're talking about 99, mm. and he, he didn't bring up another piece of work until I think it was 2008 um, which is a Robert Carlyle film called uh, Now You Know and back at you know the time after um, Human Traffic he he said that he got you know Kerrigan got completely fucked over by the film industry the producers robbed him basically he said you know he, he, he was you know almost homeless and penniless and you know if you've seen Human Traffic it is a really, really well-made film. You can't deny that. It is really well-made. And for him to s- disappear for nine years, I think it's criminal. And when he did reappear, the, the, the worst bit of it is, is that Robert Carlyle, who you know starred in his follow-up, said that you know it's the best thing he'd ever done. And Kerrigan said, you know, the film made four pound fifty at the box office. Um, you know, he's a real baffler, but he is coming back. Uh, he's he's got a new film out next year, um, which takes a swipe at celebrity culture, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, you guys, I mean, not big clubbers. Nah, not ever mm, really. Not especially. I mean, I do. I have seen Human Traffic, and. Um, I thought it was okay, but you, I think the point you made earlier, that if you were around at the time, then it would have been more... I mean, it's a very... I know it came very late in the decade, but it's a very 90s film, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, I, I always touch upon my memory being shot to bits, and when you watch Human Traffic, you probably work out why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm going to move on to another... Danny Dyer film, we move on, you know, that was his first film, by the way, and you know, mm. his his performance is moff in that, you can't take that away from him, he is absolutely brilliant, but we, we fast forward to another kind of controversial 
um, director in uh, Nick Love and uh, Danny Dyer and Tamar Sane are rocking up in a film called The Business. Oh, fucking hell. No? <laughs> am I getting... No? Am I, am I getting negative vibes here? No, I'll let you have human traffic. You're not getting the business. Really? I just thought, again, it was a proper period piece with the Sergio Tashini, the music. You had the cult, Simple Minds, A Flock of Seagulls, Bellowy Sum, you know, Talk Talk. None of the obvious bands were there. And I, I just thought, this is a, just so good. It looks amazing. It really is kind of a Greek tragedy with, you know, Danny Dyer being this fish out of water, getting involved with all these kind of um, expat cronies in Spain, getting involved in the drug culture. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And Jeff Bell is the, the kind of bastard in this. He's fucking awful. Really, and, and not in a bad way. I mean, in a good way. He's a nasty piece of work. That ginger perm and that tracksuit. Really, I think Nick Love, again, he gets a really bad reputation. When you say someone like Shane Meadows, who does, you know, he's got, they're swimming in a similar pond. His films are so fucking miserable. You know, I grew up in the, this era, the 70s and the 80s, and I touched upon this with um, Pride. His films are really bleak, miserable and grim, and everyone loves them. You, you try and put a little bit of gloss and shine on these films, and everyone hates them. And I, I find that, I just don't get it. I really, really don't get it. Where do you stand on the Sweeney, then? Abs- do you know what? I've got this thing with Nick Love. No dire, no movie. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Because if you, go, if, if you go back, the business was decent. Football Factory, you can talk about hooli porn all you like, but actually, it's actually half a decent film. Goodbye, Charlie Bright. Really good film. As soon as he takes Danny Dyer... I mean, that, that thing with Plan B, if you get the chance, go on to Letterboxd and read my review. It, I, I just absolutely ripped it apart. It, 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 especially kind of talking about the, the culmination of the uh, car chase around a caravan park in Gravesend. That was fucking awesome. <laughs> the, dumbest <laughs> I love that. the dumbest thing I've ever seen put on it, fucking film. It's just awful. But... Danny Dyer was out. Plan B was in. A, a friend of mine, who, who, he said to me about Plan B, was that it, he was somebody who makes a profit on kind of pontificating about the misery of, of people, you know, on, on a working wage that he has no relation to in any way, shape or form. And that's kind of where it's coming from. He yeah. is awful. And Nick Love really fucking shot himself in the foot with that. He, he had a winning formula. Even Outlaws. You know, you had Sean Bean and Danny Dyer. And actually, I really like that as well. I thought it was great. I had a really good time with it. <laughs> but you could laugh. I know I can hear you laughing, and I know why you're <laughs> laughing. But do I want to spend time with these people? Yeah, I do. I, you know. Last one for this one, and probably one that you actually do like, is um, Severance. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you have Severance. Oh, okay. I, do like I thought you were going to say Dog Eggs. I haven't seen Severance. Really? Okay. Well, it's Christopher Smith who did Creep, Triangle. Triangle's mm. a big favourite, especially amongst kind of, you know, film nerds with for the whole time twist thing. And that really fucked fuck with my head. I couldn't work out what the fuck was going on there. 
Yeah, it took me a couple of watches to get my head yeah. around. And and kind of Severance deals with a real pet hate of mine, which is team building. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Danny Dyer in this because he's they they almost kind of make him um, a caricature of himself because he's this sex crazed, drug taking, you know, he, he's this the, the real twat in the office. Fuck, he's me, isn't he? <laughs> no. <laughs> And just the, the whole concept of these people being stuck out in Eastern Europe and, and then all of a sudden getting lost, staying in the wrong kind of um, villa and being attacked and taken out one by one. It, it, it really, it, I, I really, really enjoyed it. It was so much fun. And in, in that one in particular, I thought Danny Doe was absolutely bang on. He knew they were taking the mickey out of him. Do you know what? He didn't care. Rose above it. And, you know, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, no, absolutely, you can't recommend Severance enough. That's it, I've managed to defend Danny Dyer, and none of you have started crying. I don't think... I mean, I don't mind Danny Dyer. I think in small doses, he's all right. My, my bigger you know, issues, Twitter feed's brilliant. My bigger issues with Danny Dyer came when he started doing those fucking Ross Kemp-esque... Oh, yeah. You know, most dangerous... artist gangs. Yeah. And one dude turned up in his Range Rover and he legged it a fucking mile because he got scared just by the look of him. Twat. <laughs> yeah, I've got his, uh, his tweet, of course, on 9-11. was fantastic. Oh, was it those fucking Muslims did my fucking nutting? <laughs> can't can't <laughs> believe it's nearly 11 years since them slags smashed into the Twin Towers. Still freaks my nut out to this day. <laughs> that was him. I just, I, I, think, I just think he gets an undeserved bad rap if you translated what he does you know his career maybe to america you know we look at american actors and, mm. and, and them in the, i just no uh, it's like people who give noel edmonds a kick in you know really find a better target because th- this isn't the one for you hold on danny dyer or noel edmonds yeah that's a tough no, no, one but do you know what i mean it's 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 <laughs> It's just I'm, I'm so just going to remind easy. you that Noel Edmonds gave us Mr. Blobby. <laughs> I know, but it's He's, such there a There is no defending target. that, dude. Yeah. I almost, in primary school, right, this is on a massive tangent, almost got my first girlfriend in primary school, cause she, but then she was really into Take That, and it was the year when Mr. Blobby beat Take That to number one at Christmas, and I laughed at her, and she <laughs> cried, and then that never happened. <laughs> There you go. To be fair, last last yeah. thing on Danny Dyer, the fact that he wants to fucking smack Mark Kermode in the face. <laughs> no? <laughs> I, 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 I'm kind of on board for that. I, I just find his pontificating fucking... Mm. You should watch... The, watch go on YouTube. You go on YouTube and see Kermode and Danny Dyer. And, uh, you know, and, and he's... He's so hateful and it's just oh, yeah. it's so easy for him to have a, a swipe at Danny Dyer it's just like really that's all you've got have a go you know and he'll sit there and pontificate about these oh you know it's this French thing from like, fuck off you twat well that that sort of leads me into some of the questions we've had for uh, from listeners for, to the podcast mm-hmm. so far people on our Twitter feed um, so just before we start wrapping up the podcast, I'm going to ask each of you one of the questions. So, Paul, Go on. we had a tweet 
from uh, at villain from Sun, who said, which actor would you most like to punch square in the face? Mark Kermit. Oh, is he an actor? <laughs> no, he's not an actor. Oh, okay. Um, oh, God, God. Come back to me in a moment. <laughs> I'll give you a minute. Give me a minute. Okay, so I'll just move around the table, so to speak. Matt, mm-hmm. we had Barry Steele, at Mr. Barry Steele, who said, if someone at work was signed off sick for three months, would you eat the whisper gold on his desk? <laughs> i eat the fucking whisper off the desk if they were there or not, the fucking cunt. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. I'd take the desk. <laughs> fucking right, lucky they come back and they got a computer. Exactly. Fucking hell. Fuck off for three months. You want to be glad there's stuff in your drawers. I just filled their hard drive with pornography. <laughs> it's just enough. Japanese. I, I mean, uh, there's a note on my... I'm, I'm making a note to never hire Paul if, for anything. Can we go back to the actor oh, one? <laughs> right. Yeah, Paul, have you got an, have you oh, got yeah. an answer? Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Ricky Gervais. You don't like Ricky Gervais then? He he did that film, The Invention of Lying, which I still stand by is the worst film ever made. <laughs> Not for funny. any other reason that it's absolute shit, but that he managed to hoodwink Rob Lowe and Jennifer Garner into a film which featured Barry from EastEnders. <laughs> Are you fucking yeah. kidding me? It was she's a fucking sh- one-trick, shit-eating, crack-whore pony. <laughs> well, well, that's him told. So, Brooker. <laughs> Go on. Okay, slightly more serious question. Which actor's filmography would you most want to have? Oh, fucking hell. Uh, I don't know. Ron, Ron Jeremy. Ron Jeremy, yeah. Ron Jeremy, by me. You know, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy, yeah, that's a good answer. I think he's done some fantastic films. He's been Bane and Bronson. And he's yeah. going to be in Child 44. He, you know, he's going to be Mad Max for fuck's sake. I'd get, <laughs> I'd get to be Mad Max without being an anti-Semite cunt. <laughs> Just one way of looking at it, I suppose. <laughs> um, I've got a question as well here, which is from uh, Captain Birdseye. That's his name on on the forum. So. It's uh, a question for all of you. He says, what's the best film you've watched because of the podcast? So, Brooker, you don't have to answer that because obviously you've done the triple already. But, uh, Paul, what would you say is the best film you've watched because of Failed Critics? Do you know what? (laughs) I have no idea. Okay, none. 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 You've not watched any. Okay. Matt? Um, This is a tricky one because... I don't know whether I would have definitely seen this film or not had I not been involved with Fell Critics, but let's just say the Fell Critics experience has made me much more prolific in regards to going to see films. So probably my favourite film that I've seen, a new film that is since coming onto the team, is probably Dread. I wrote, I wrote a nice article for that, why it was my favourite film that year. Watched it so many times. I'm praying for the sequel, but it'll never happen. But uh, I absolutely love Dread. So, did you watch that because we reviewed it, or were you already? No, I, we we talked about it on here quite a lot prior to its release, 
And I can't guarantee whether I would or would not have gone and seen it had it not been talked about on the pod, primarily because I'd, I'd never really read the comics and the Stallone one was shit. So I have to presume mm. I might have missed that. But I'm so glad okay. I did see it because it was fucking awesome. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I'm just going to quickly pick one that I went to see. Um, well, I ended up seeing in a rush before we did our end of year votes back in um, 2013. It's because James went to review it. At, he saw it at the uh, Glasgow Film Festival, Korean film called The Thieves. And it's partly-ish responsible for the glut of Korean films I watched shortly afterwards as well. But I really enjoyed that. It's sort of like an Ocean's Eleven. I think James actually described it like one of his favourite puns whilst being on the podcast was the Pacific Ocean's Eleven. That's what he said it was. It was just a heist film, really. I saw it. It was shit. (laughs) Well, I enjoyed it. (laughs) Sorry, mate. (laughs) Kim Young... Uh, Suk is in it from The Chaser mm-hmm. and The Yellow Sea as Macau Park he's brilliant absolutely fantastic I could watch that guy in anything and Lee Jung Jae is in it as well and uh, you know it's got quite some it's got a lot of high profile Korean actors I remember around the time when you, and we, we think we both talked about this and I was quite quite excited for it but I was like <sighs> it was not good it's the most it's one of the most westernised Korean films I've seen because part of what I like about Korean films is they're so different mm. um, and it was one of the, the most American-esque sort of Korean films I've seen but at the same time I thought it was done very well I don't think we need so, that though do we? oh no no I mean I'd rather they just carried on making <sighs> films the way they do I, I, I love going in and thinking why are they no that makes no st- yeah yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. So, yeah, that's it, really. Um, so we'll hand over to Steve, and uh, and he can wrap up. Well, that's all for this, this 150th episode of the Failed Crickets podcast. So we really need to give thanks to all of you who have managed to listen for this long, not just for this episode, for <laughs> the last three years. Without you, we probably wouldn't bother doing this. That's um, true, yeah. Uh, also, I'd like to thank everybody who's contributed to the podcast and the website in any way in the last three years, um, especially all of those on the podcast tonight. So Paul, Andrew, Matt, uh, and, of course, Owen, as well as that James, who of course started the website all that time ago, uh, Carol and Jerry, who have been uh, web, uh, uh, podcast regulars at some point during our time, and Callum, who is re- just relentless at writing our <laughs> website. Um, he basically keeps driving traffic to the website, yeah. so we owe him quite a bit. <laughs> of course, everyone who, who contributes and reads and, and, and does anything, and James, you're for the new music. Um, so, yeah. Again, thanks everyone who's listened. We'll be back next week for a normal episode of the podcast, as well as I've got many things planned for the next 50 episodes or more. And the 200 episode won't be as long as this, I promise. Yeah. Can I can I just say as well? Can we all sort of thank Steve as well? Because you know he does all this hard work for us. He he says thanks to 
all of us for contributing. I think, Steve, thank you very much for being there. Sorry, that was the end music cutting in. That was the end music, yeah, sorry, cutting me off. It's like the Oscars speech, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. Yes, thanks, Steve, and we'll let you get off. Yeah. It's now quarter past four, Steve. Yeah. Above and beyond the call of duty, sir. Yeah. Cheers, guys. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at FailedCritics.com, on Twitter at FailedCritics, and Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash FailedCritics. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I think you're actually having a fucking chuff there. I think you've got a flappy foreskin and you're giving it a fucking big. It's such a great noise that it's so easy to do. Look. <laughs> yeah, you're either chewing chewing gum very quickly. Very quickly, have, yeah. Pinch, pinch, pinch your cheek. Yeah. Go on, yeah. try it. Pinch your cheek. With my fingers on my teeth. No, with your fingers on the outside of your cheek. Yeah. 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 And just bang. There you go. Ow, it hurts. You see? Ooh. Yeah, but the the recipient, the other end, they're like, ooh, what is he doing? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just simple things. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.